The podcast of this local government meeting is brought to you by Michigan Radio. For more coverage of local government meetings and to find out how you can support this service, go to michiganradio.org. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the October 3rd meeting of the Ann Arbor City Council. If you're able, please rise and join us for a moment of silence, followed by the Pledge of Allegiance. Would our clerk please call the roll of council? Mayor, if you can give me just one second, I think we're not broadcasting on over the Zoom. Oh, all right, thank you. 
we'll take a, uh, we will pause here in, in chambers until this gets resolved for a bit. I can proceed with. Pardon me? I can proceed with roll call. We're ready when you are. Thank you. Okay, Councilmember Hayner? Present. Councilmember Dish? Present. Councilmember Griswold? Present. Councilmember Song? Here. Councilmember Grand? Here. Councilmember Medina? Here. Mayor Taylor? Here. Councilmember Iyer? Here. Councilmember Nelson? Here. Councilmember Briggs? Here. Councilmember Ramawi? In attendance. We have a quorum. We have a motion, please, to approve the agenda. Moved by Councilmember Dish, seconded by Councilmember Grand. Discussion of the agenda. All in favor? Opposed? The agenda is approved. Do we have communications today from our city administrator? No, Mayor. Thank you. We now have an introduction from the chair of our Independent Community Police Oversight Commission, her monthly update, Dr. Jackson. Dr. Jackson, Chair Jackson, you have the con. Mayor, Dr. Jackson is joining us on Zoom. Thank you. Hello, hello. I think I'm going to be joined by the actual current chair of the Oversight Commission. Mr. Doro should be joining us on Zoom as well. Here we go. We're gonna do a handoff today. So for those of you who don't know me, I'm Lisa Jackson. I've been the chair of the Independent Community Police Oversight Commission for the last three years. I'll remain on the commission for a bit, but I'm stepping down as chair. So this will be my last time addressing you in this capacity. Um, it's been a privilege working to bring police oversight issues into the public consciousness. And I'm really looking forward to how our next chair, Francis Tadoro Hargreaves, will keep police oversight moving forward. Our commission gave our first address to council in 2019 as we returned from our national oversight conference for the first time. So it's fitting that I bring that full circle tonight. Just a couple of weeks ago, our incoming vice chair, Stephanie Carter, and our commissioner and city council nominee, Cynthia Harrison and I went to the national oversight conference. The National Association for the Civilian Oversight of Law Enforcement or NACOL is the national oversight body that does training and accreditation of oversight practitioners. It's composed of oversight professionals from all over the United States, as well as international oversight groups. And this year, there were people from about 30 states, Mexico, Sierra Leone, and several Eastern European countries in attendance. And the structures vary widely all across the country. So there were oversight commissioners, there were investigators, there were city attorneys, there were even community members who had had a child killed by police. There were elected officials and others, all of whom are trying to work hard to improve policing across the country. 
I want to talk a little bit about what we did, what we learned, and how that relates to the work we do in Ann Arbor. We attended seminars on understanding the impact of trauma and building resilience, which is critical for oversight professionals. We attended seminars on social media use among law enforcement personnel and on analyzing the use of force and other police data, which is something you guys know we're all actively engaged in. We also went to a seminar on how a detonation by the LAPD bomb squad went horribly wrong and devastated a neighborhood. And that might seem unrelated to Ann Arbor, but in fact, it had several parallels to situations we've seen in Ann Arbor, including the AAPD breaking into the wrong house on a home invasion call and how it was handled afterwards. And it became clear that oversight can have a unique role, not only in looking at how policies and procedures work differently in the field than they do on paper, but also on how issues of fatigue and infrequent training can make situations harmful for people who live and work here. We also went to a session on something that we get asked a lot about in Ann Arbor, which is providing victim services to complaints. We learned that there are other cities who offer trauma-informed counseling services to those who have been negatively impacted by policing. So that's something that maybe we should consider. Our commissioners have certainly heard from several Ann Arbor residents about how they felt traumatized by police interactions, but weren't, any, but weren't offered any resources to address that harm. We went to another session that has particular relevance for us, and the session explored sexual misconduct in law enforcement and why, far from being simply an internal HR problem, that misconduct actually matters to the community. As you might imagine, when police officers engage in sexual misconduct with other officers, they're also more likely to engage in transgressions of many kinds in the public. So it's important to create a culture where sexual misconduct is not tolerated on any level. When police officers get a slap on the wrist, it demonstrates that the behavior is not very problematic, so they might continue to exhibit such misconduct. Further, it communicates to other officers to, who have been transgressed upon that they are somehow less important, which leads to stressors and retention issues. One thing we see from our complaint review process is that the percentage of complaints that are sustained against officers is significantly higher when the other complainant is an officer. Yet, if a culture of sexual misconduct is tolerated in the AAPD, how can we expect civilians to come forward to complain about sexual conduct if they're even less likely to be believed? We've already had documented cases of sexual misconduct in AAPD against civilians and other officers. And I can't tell you the number of women who tell me about sexual misconduct incidents with law enforcement, but they indicate they've never filed a complaint for fear of retaliation or not being believed. So it's really critical that there be a culture shift in the AAPD, both for the mental health of officers, but certainly for the safety of the public that they are sworn to serve. One of the most enlightening sessions that we went to was on addressing the white supremacy and extremism that exists in law enforcement. That session drew on academic research and government audits that show the pervasiveness of white supremacy in US law enforcement and a continuing series of incidents documenting the presence of extremist groups and views among law enforcement. So for example, we can't forget the use of exclusively black people as target practice in the Farmington Hills Police Department that came to light just a couple of months ago. The NACOL session pointed to the desperate need for both departmental and legislative policies to prohibit people who engage in racist conduct to join the police department or to remain on the police department. Please understand that our Vice Chair Stephanie Carter will be working diligently on this issue in the coming months.
So the new chair of the Independent Community Police Oversight Commission, Frances Tadora Hargreaves, is a founding member of this commission. She also has significant experience in community development and knows Ann Arbor inside and out from her years in the former mayor's office and as an executive director of the State Street District. With her at the helm, ICPOC is certainly in good hands and I turn it over to her now. Thank you. Good evening. Uh, thank you for that introduction, Lisa. Tonight, I'd like to speak about the un upcoming unarmed emergency response unit and the ways in which work towards that project is being handled. The commission spent a considerable amount of time discussing this at our most recent meeting. Unarmed response programs are vital, not just because they increase the number of people who feel comfortable accessing public safety services, but also specifically because they expand public safety services for historically disenfranchised groups. The city recently accepted a bid for nearly $100,000 from Lansing-based consulting firm PSC to survey the community attitudes regarding the upcoming unarmed emergency response unit. Unfortunately, the survey process thus far has been incredibly disappointing and inspires little confidence in that the disenfranchised voices were specifically looking to protect will even be represented in the data the city will use to determine the parameters of the program. Included in the city council packet this evening is a communication from ICPOC regarding our concerns about the community engagement process thus far. Though I trust all of you have read it thoroughly, I'd like to go through that communication for the benefit of the community. It says the um, city resolution 210612 directed the city administrator to work in consultation with the Independent Community Police Oversight Commission in the process of exploring an unarmed response program. ICPOC asked that the city do significant community outreach of individuals most likely to benefit from an unarmed response program before determining the structure of such a program. After, a commission, after our commission was informed that the city would not undertake such in-depth outreach, the city decided to solicit proposals to conduct that work. And on June 15th, Public Sector Consulting, PSC, was contracted for $99,918 to do community engagement. However, however, after a number of interactions with PSC, our commission has grave concerns about the outreach process. In conversations with PSC, it has become clear that they do not intend to outreach or have direct contact with those most in need of an unarmed response program. These people include those who are unhoused, people ha who have experienced behavioral or mental health crisis, LGBTQ individuals, immigrants, people without immigration documentation or those from mixed status immigration families, college students, high school students, sex workers, those who are criminalized for their substance use, people who are over-policed, whether in neighborhoods or on public transit, and those with previous contact with the criminal legal system, those who are asset limited, income constrained, and employed, those in poverty, marginalized black and brown people, 
and all groups historically excluded from participating in the development of programs that impact them. PSC is not located in Ann Arbor and has no local connections to the city. Maybe that's why they have not done outreach to the library, the overall downtown community, which includes businesses, churches, and entertainment venues, who all have a vested interest in this kind of public safety support. So far, their sole instrument is an online survey, which is only accessible to those privileged enough to have a computer and internet access. An unarmed response program is fairly innovative. So we asked, we asked for, what we asked for was a deep engagement of people who have been historically disenfranchised and left out of the decision-making process. It is not acceptable for the city and PSC to simply survey the same people who always participate because they have a lug the luxury of time to participate and a business as usual online process. It is critical that unarmed response plan be designed with community members and not for them by people with no context of situations that might lead one to prefer an unarmed response. We request that those most likely to be impacted by an unarmed response program be prioritized in outreach. We further request that PSC must include outreach to and participation of disenfranchised and underserved populations in order to fulfill their contract to the city. We also request that PSC be contacted as soon as possible and that the city determine how they plan to accomplish the goal of community outreach as outlined here. We also request to see the raw data collected by PSC. Last, we request that the city administration report back to ICPOC as soon as they get feedback from PSC regarding how they will accomplish this outreach. In addition to the concern outlined in our statement in the city council packet, I'd like to directly address, frankly, how unprofessional and out of touch the survey itself is. In a survey about unarmed response, there is no mention of what unarmed response programs even are. The very first question of this survey asks whether or not the respondent supports something for which they have not been given any context or definition. It goes on to ask what the goals of such a program should be without soliciting any information about what a such program should look like or the kinds of situations in which the respondent might consider using it if it were available. The last half of the survey is dedicated to ascertaining demographic information about the respondent, including not just their age and ethnicity, but also how much money and if they have a criminal record. Mind you, this survey asks not just if they can make the information public, but if they can do so attached with the person's name and their responses. And this question is at the beginning of the survey, not at the end where they're answering demographic questions. It is hard to feel that this process is going to yield honest representation and feedback from our community when it fails to understand the lived experiences of the people within it if such fundamental errors 
are made in the construction and deploying of something so simple as an online survey. And that begs the question, if errors are being made on something this simple, how are we supposed to feel confident that the planned focus groups that are going to be conducted in a way that represent the disenfranchised? The community has fought so hard for an unarmed response program because it's believed in serving those who often don't have a voice. It would be a huge disservice to anyone who has participated in this process for that work to be undone due to what can only be viewed as an in, insufficient feedback. If you are someone who has ever felt afraid to call the police because you thought a loved one's mental health crisis would be criminalized, or if you've seen someone overdosing and question whether or not you should call 911 because you don't want them to be arrested for drug possession, or if you are a parent who has ever needed help because your child is on the spectrum and was having a meltdown, but do not want to call the police for assistance, your voice matters. If you feel comfortable filling out the survey, please tell us about situations in which, which you feel you could have benefited from having access to an unarmed response unit. And if you understandably don't feel comfortable doing that, we still would love to hear from you. Or if you have questions about one arm, what unarmed response is and how our community can benefit from us, please contact us. You can email our commission at icpoc at a2gov.org or tweet us at a2ipoc on Twitter. Thank you. Thank you. We now come to public comment reserve time. Public comment reserve time is an opportunity for members of the public to speak to council and the community about matters of municipal interest. To speak at public comment reserve time, one needs to have signed up in advance by contacting our city clerk. Speakers, both here and online, will have three minutes in which to speak, so please pay close attention to the time. Uh, our clerk will notify you when 30 seconds are remaining and when your time has expired. When your time has expired, please conclude your remarks and cede the floor. Our first speaker today is Ralph McKee. Good evening. My name is Ralph McKee. I live in the Fifth Ward. My comments on TC1 are uh, hopefully directed as to the public as well as to this body. Uh, I learned last week, uh, I did a presentation or helped with one, uh, a citizens meeting on this topic at Westgate Library. Soon afterwards, I was uh, accused by a couple members of this body of spreading disinformation and uh, being anti-housing, at least that was for the supporters' view, and uh, as fear-mongering. I said at that meeting that I was in favor of dense housing on every vacant site in that corridor. That's not anti-housing. I then said that I thought this process should have started by uh, quickly banning all undesired uses, then meeting with the owners of the vacant sites and try to get those owners to induce to uh, create new housing there. Beyond that, though, every single, there's 10 vacant sites, roughly. A couple of them are large, most of them are small. Beyond that, every single property will, that is a, a new development will displace an existing business. 
how, how would that inducement happen? The, the TC1 would raise some height limits and would, uh, more importantly, uh, change the, the floor area ratio in order to, in the typical case, uh, allow double the square footage allowed now up to seven times. Those are pretty big inducements. The uh, Planning Commission refused to do a summary of the current height limits and what they would uh, change to. Citizens did that. There are 66 parcels approximately that would be 120 feet or higher. 100 that would be 75 or higher. The uh, uh, council member Nelson asked for a list of the non-conforming structures. Uh, the staff didn't answer that question in dodging in my view. Virtually all of those structures would be non-conforming. I, I challenge staff to give me five that, are, that are, would conform to the TC1. So that means that every single addition uh, or expansion of a business would have to go to the ZBA for a variance. I read the ZBA ver uh, standards today. One of them is it's got to be substantially more than just getting a better financial return. Another is that it has to be the minimum variance that allows a reasonable use of the property. A successful business presumably has a reasonable use of the property right now. I think those are strict standards and as a, as a lawyer looking at that, I think going to the ZBA is a crapshoot. This affects every single business in that corridor that exists now. Those I think are the, the uh, there's also a safety issue that didn't come up till the, the CPC vote. Uh, I'm not sure that's solved. I'm not sure if you, you think that should be solved either. Your goals, you say this, should, this will help get rid of the uh, vast parking lots. It won't. Those parking lots will still be there or the stores won't. You say it, it would help this to achieve an urban streetscape. It won't. It will be a hodgepodge. There's a lot more I'd like to say, but I think my time is about up. Thank you. Thank you. Our next speaker is Jim Pike. Hi. Uh, let's see. I am here to voice my support for the Maple Stadium rezoning to the new but long-planned TC1 zoning code. While it is possible that TC1 rezoning may not ultimately have the best case effect of rapidly creating a more walkable and bikeable area full of mid-rise buildings with street-level retail below several floors of multifamily housing, the very least we can definitely expect from it is that, as former Planning Commission member Scott Trudeau recently wrote, Quote, what TC1 does do is make it harder for property owners in the rezoned area to do any substantial redevelopment that maintains their property as a suburban style strip mall, end of quote. In fact, it is reasonable to assume that New York City-based national strip mall developer and owner Bricksmore has registered its displeasure with the rezoning because they run strip malls and they are not interested in their property in Ann Arbor being repurposed for strip malls that also include housing. It is not in their business model to include housing in their strip malls and they want to keep imposing their business model onto our community regardless of what we want in our community. 
Since we need more housing here in Ann Arbor, I'd like them and other property owners to be pushed a little closer to serving our increasing needs for housing. Rezoning to TC1 does this. Strip malls full of profitable businesses are not going to go away. If we need, if we get nothing else from TC1 in the areas where it is applied, at least we get more building options than strip malls that can only be redeveloped into differently configured strip malls. Even just that much more, even just that much is more than good enough for me. But maybe we also get some other things, including new housing without any housing displacement, retailers and restaurants that become neighborhood businesses because neighborhoods are built up around the existing locations of those businesses. Increasing, increased walkability and bikeability in the rezoned areas, increased bus ridership synergistically helped by the revenue from the recently approved transit millage, and decreased vehicle miles traveled within the city because more people can live closer to retailers and restaurants. The first step toward getting any of this is approving the application of TC1 to more parcels of land in Ann Arbor, and I look forward to seeing it approved in the currently proposed area around Maple and Stadium. Thank you. Thank you. Our next speaker is Eric Lipson. Eric Lipson. Ms. Boudry, is Mr. Lipson online that you're aware of? show that he was supposed to be in person. Perhaps if he calls in, you'll let me know. Our next speaker is Robert George. Thank you, Mr. Mayor and members of council for affording me this opportunity to speak in favor, or excuse me, to speak in opposition to agenda item DC3, which pertains to the nature of how our local municipal elections would be structured. My name is Robert George and I'm a member of Labor's Local 499 and a trustee on the Huron Valley Area Labor Federation Executive Board. Additionally, I am a resident of Ann Arbor's Third Ward. I come before the council tonight in opposition to agenda item DC3, which would move our local municipal elections from being partisan elections to nonpartisan elections. Local organized labor has repeatedly opposed such moves in the past, and our position in opposition to nonpartisan city elections remains steadfast. I would like to paraphrase some points from the National League of Cities. Proponents for partisan elections argue that, that the absence of party labels can confuse voters and prevents them from having a knowledge base of a candidate's ideological positions. In the absence of a party ballot, voters can turn to whatever cue is available to them, which can result in a voter using a candidate's ethnicity or gender as a deciding factor in a vote. Nonpartisan uh, elections tend to produce elected officials more representative of the upper socioeconomic classes than of the general populace and aggravates the class bias and voter turnout. Additionally, nonpartisan elections in Ann Arbor were extremely low turnout affairs in the past, at times less than 10% of all voters voting in these elections. This structure often benefits those with means and ability and is not representative of the city's progressive values. Broadly speaking, in Michigan, the Democratic Party has been the party of organized labor, fighting for better conditions for working people, fighting for equal rights, and fighting for a just transition are all parts of the labor movement that intertwine with the current Michigan Democratic Party. 
as a city that is heavily democratic and a progressive bastion for the state, we should take pride that our current city council members were all elected as Democrats. This should be a point of excitement, not a point of shame. Changes to our elections are needed to ensure maximum access, especially for students, but, that is a, but it is important that we maintain a city council that is progressive and having partisan municipal elections can help guarantee that. Additionally, I would like to state organized labor's broad support of agenda item C1, the TC1 rezoning ordinance. It's important to all of our members that additional housing is built, that rezoning itself will stimulate economic growth, creating new jobs, and will allow new residents to move into our wonderful city. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Our next speaker is Peter Eckstein. Hello. Uh, five years ago, I spoke here to support the, an urgent resolution on the need to erect barriers on the middle and upper floors of city parking structures to check an ongoing epidemic of suicides. DDA had not treated this with sufficient urgency. I suggested inexpensive chain link fencing as a stopgap measure. The resolution urged DDA to pay, place the highest priority on providing such temporary bar barriers if permanent structures are delayed for any reason. And this is an example of a more permanent structure that was adopted in the city of Grand Rapids, which is uh, a quite a progressive city in this respect. The resolution passed unanimously and DDA agreed. Within several weeks, installation of chain link fencing began at the most dangerous spots. But before it could even begin, there was yet another suicide from a structure. The man had had an argument with his wife, gotten drunk, and jumped. Both curable situations. Once installed, however, the rooftop fencing proved effective for several years. But DDA did not adequately secure enough of the windows at another structure. And two and a half years ago, a student jumped to his death. To this day, DDA has not added any barriers to the windows on the floor from which he jumped nor has it installed any permanent barriers on rooftops. Covering windows with well-attached chain linking makes them relatively secure, but on rooftops there is always the danger that someone might breach or climb a chain link fence. That danger was realized six days ago when another troubled person jumped. That flaw, that flaw the flaw that enabled that tragedy still has not, at least of, as of two days ago, even been patched over. So please pass the parking structure resolution before you. But also please ask, your, ask Mr. Dahoney to find competent safety inspectors to supervise the immediate filling of the two known gaps, to survey all the city-owned structures for weaknesses, and to recommend both temporary and permanent barriers. Our, our parking structures should never again be available as platforms for death. Thank you. Thank you. Our next speaker is Jonathan Levine.
Caller with the phone number 546, go ahead. Hello, this is Jonathan Levine. I'm calling in support of TC1 zoning for the West Stadium and North Maple area. Transit supportive zoning is needed as one of the means to help the city address some of its principal challenges. It's housing shortage and its sustainability, particularly its housing and transportation sustainability. One way this works is by giving the people the opportunity to reduce driving. For example, the housing living on Ann Arbor's west side drives about 17,000 miles per year. Sounds like a lot, but that compares with about 24,000 miles for a household living in, say, Ypsilanti Township or Dexter. Combine this with the fact that multifamily housing, because of its shared wall construction, reduces a household's building energy consumed by about half. So welcoming new neighbors into Ann Arbor means giving people the opportunity to choose a relatively low carbon zone compared to the other locations they might choose if they were not accommodated here. And since buildings and transportation in combination account for almost 60% of U.S. greenhouse gas emissions, it's impossible to reach our sustainability goals without this kind of attention to these two sectors. And the West Stadium North Maple area is an ideal location for transit supportive zones. It's as low as 11 minutes from downtown by bus, which offers frequent service. Ann Arborites make a considerable investment in their bus system, and transit supportive zoning is one tool to help make sure that they get their money's worth. I've heard concern about the businesses in the area. Now, businesses thrive on customers, and giving many people the opportunity to live close to shopping will only increase the range of opportunities available. Ann Arbor lacks walkable neighborhood retail, and our zoning code is a big part of the reason why. Mandated park, mandating parking as we do uh, is, uh, is just that. It's a recipe for mandated parking and the auto-dominated landscape that it creates. It's not a recipe for, for preserving existing business any more than low-density zoning is a recipe for preserving affordable housing. I've also heard concern uh, for, about the supposed standardization of the TC1 zone. I disagree with this assessment for two reasons. First of all, the TC1 is designed to be a self-adjusting zone. Its maximum height varies with distance from residential districts, and it has building-specific standards based on the width of the lot. That means its expression will vary from context to context in which it's deployed. 30 Second, seconds. standardization is ironically pretty good a descriptor of the problems with post-war auto-oriented parking-heavy zoning codes. That's why so many places look like so many other places. Zoning reform won't transform these places overnight, but it's a necessary step towards a pedestrian, cyclist, and transit user-friendly area that Ann Arborites, through repeated planning processes and the two most recent elections, have shown that what they want. Thank you. Thank you. Our next speaker is Tom Stolberg. Tom Stolberg, phone number 534. You can unmute your phone. Go ahead. Hello, this is Tom Stolberg calling from Lower Town in Ann Arbor. Later on tonight, I will recommend that you support tenants in Ann Arbor by passing the right to renew amendment to the housing code and by voting to allow the possibility of nonpartisan elections because many of those tenants are disenfranchised by the current system. But now I will ask that you not pass item C1 
which is a very problematic city-initiated mass rezoning of about 200 parcels to a zoning category that is being backed into as a one-size-fits-all citywide solution. A set of rules called TC1 does not fit this part of town very well. Many of the issues were brought up in June meetings with citizens. The planning staff listened to what people had to say, and in a very good report, dated June 28th, came up with some possible solutions to be brainstormed, but a subcommittee of the Planning Commission shot them all down. Why can't we have a solution that meets the specific needs of Stadium and Maple? Because any changes to TC1 now would have to apply to the 70 properties that the city already masters on the TC1 at State and Eisenhower. Let me repeat that. They can't tweak TC1 now to fit Stadium and Maple because those tweaks would have to apply to the 70 parcels that were just mass rezoned at State and Eisenhower, which has very different characteristics and issues. They could and probably should create another zoning category called TC2 that would work better for Stadium and Maple than TC1. Well, why won't they do that? Because they're in a rush to get it wrong? The Planning Commission just didn't want to take the time to do that. So they voted to put the square peg in the round hole, and thus TC1's rules must apply here. If City Council votes for that, it's highly likely that this is what will happen for Plymouth and Washington, too. And then the same TC1 will be used there, and then for Packard, and so on. A one-size-fits-all zoning category that was created before adequately looking at the details of each area and the needs and the wants of the citizens in those different areas. You make a rough plan first, then you refine that into a detailed plan. Then you codify the detailed plan into an enforceable legal language, the zoning code. That is the intent of the Michigan Zoning Enabling Act, and we are not doing that right here. As a longtime proponent of transit-oriented development, I am disappointed in the poor plan that we have before us. The proposal isn't likely to give us what is being touted by its proponents and cheerleaders. The comprehensive plan should be revised, either for each of the areas individually or citywide. The parcels should be identified as eligible for transit zone. Then they can be rezoned as property owners and developers bring in new proposals. That way we'll be able to tweak a TC2 or a TC3 as we see how this develops. It also allows us the opportunity to take advantage of Thank you. Our next speaker is James Damore. Mr. Damore, phone number 411. Go ahead. Press star six to unmute your phone. Hello? Go ahead. All right. Uh, can you all hear me? Yes, we can. Thank you, Mayor Taylor. Um, thank you. This is James Tamore, and I speak to you as a member of a former uh, planning commissioner for this city. I've been listening intently to the TC1 uh, zoning uh, uh, conversations, and uh, it does sound like a promising uh, tool to use, uh, uh, certainly uh, for the area discussion tonight, but also throughout the city. And I agree there needs to be some, uh, uh, um, maybe some careful scrutiny. Uh, I want to read from uh, what the city safety goals were. This district has been created to facilitate, encourage, and support redevelopment and infill development to realize mixed-use developments and achieve mixed-use corridors that support and sustain transit service as well as encourage affordable housing, enable housing choices, more sustainable forms of development, 
will reduce resource and energy needs. Pedestrian-friendly designs are critically important in this district, as all transit units anymore begin and their trips as pedestrians. Um, again, very promising. What I see lacking, and I attended the public uh, citizens meeting last week uh, regarding uh, TC1, they pointed out these things. There are zero requirements or incentives for affordable housing uh, between 36% AMI. There are no requirements or incentives for sustainable building materials, um, solar and, uh, and protection for important natural features. Um, there's zero allowances or incentives uh, for uh, protecting green or open space. I really think we should incorporate these uh, uh, changes into the uh, plan. And I realize that uh, they, the, this plan has its strong supporters. Um, but I think if we're going to do this, we need to have this as part of the uh, um, discussion, a comprehensive land use plan. Um, also, a different tool, and this is something, the reason why I say this is, Throughout our discussions of uh, if we build it here, we won't build it there discussion, preventing sprawl. Um, if we are going to go for a higher density, um, if we have a notion of building it here and not building it there, we should begin to incorporate transfer development rights for the participating townships. Again, that comes with the uh, discussion of the comprehensive land use plan. Now, this is just for growth or growth sake, as Lisa Disha uh, referred to in last week's meeting. Um, to uh, help remove a stru financial structural deficit. Just a reminder uh, that the more you build, the more people that you build into uh, uh, um, a uh, municipality, the more demand on resources. 30 seconds. And eventually those roads and other infrastructure wears out. So I think we need to be careful. I do think we have an attractive plan here, but we need to have the right discussion with it. I would say put those in, uh, requirements back in uh, or put them in in the first and let's have a real, real attractive TC1 uh, process uh, moving on. All right. I think I'm close to the end of my time and thank you for considering my remarks. Thank you. Our next speaker is Adam Goodman. Adam Goodman. Adam Goodman, go ahead. Yeah, hi. My name is Adam Goodman. I'm calling in from the west side of Ann Arbor tonight uh, to say that I strongly support the stadium in Maple TC1 rezoning. We are, as I'm sure you've heard before, facing crises in our city and housing, climate, and traffic balance. And, you know, I live relatively nearby to this corridor, so I want to talk to you about why I feel a sense of urgency to get this done, particularly here. And to illustrate that, actually, let's talk about what will happen if we don't do this rezoning. We will continue seeing sprawl development out in the townships and beyond. There's a huge demand to live in Ann Arbor. And when we don't meet that demand, we will see more people moving into the region into detached McMansions that have zero sustainability requirements of any kind on them and are not accessible by any modes of transportation other than private cars. We will continue, as a result, to see more traffic in our city from all of those people driving into the city. And we will continue to see housing prices rise precipitously because these exurban developments won't be affordable. And in addition to that, they'll also be burdened by high transportation costs because cars are expensive to own and maintain. Um, West Stadium will continue to be a hostile place to walk or ride a bike. And it really is a pretty hostile place to walk or ride a bike right now. It's full of drive-throughs and giant surface parking lots, 
And, you know, look, the, the last time we updated the comprehensive land use plan, 2009, there was actually a whole set of programs to try to improve this. And, you know, some of them have been done, but ultimately it's failed. Let's, and let's not forget that somebody was killed trying to cross this road earlier this year. So the lesson is we cannot make this corridor truly welcoming for people using all modes of transportation unless we actually change the underlying land use patterns. And look, if we don't rezone this corridor, it's going to get worse, not better. The developments we've seen proposed along West Stadium in the last few years and drive-through banks, a big self-storage facility. And, and you know, now, like the, the empty lot of 2060 West Stadium has a sign-up advertising maybe somebody could build a new Carlet dealership there. Really? Is, is that what we want? These are the sorts of uses that tend to drive a disproportionate number of car trips and create disproportionately dangerous conflict areas for bicyclists and pedestrians. And look, I, I love a lot of the existing local businesses on, on this corridor, and I, I won't lie, I do share some of the concerns expressed by others about losing some of them, but change is coming to this corridor, whether we like it or not. And the risks of not doing TC1 are much worse than the risks of doing it. This is the baseline that we're comparing against if we do nothing. Change is coming, but we can influence what form that change will take. And that's why we should do TC1. This is why TC1 is good for sustainability and affordability, even if it doesn't include specific requirements. Thank you. Our next speaker is Anne Bannister. Anne Bannister? Phone number 604. Ann Bannister, go ahead and unmute your phone. Great, thank you. Hello, I'm Ann Bannister, board, former Ward 1 City Council member and former candidate for mayor who received nearly 39% of the vote in just four months of campaigning. Tonight, I'm calling to urge you to vote no on C1, the Transit Corridor District for Stadium and Maple, and avoid irreversible mistakes with our land use and avoid great loss of our community benefits. Furthermore, we don't want this one-size-fits-all unzoning in its current form to spread next to Washtenaw Avenue and Plymouth Road. I'd like to say all the residents and local business owners and city staff who have provided their valuable feedback and input even if it has fallen on deaf ears at the city planning commission and amongst the, the mayor and his council majority i urge everyone to ask where's the public benefit and who's benefiting and follow the money to the mayor and his allies campaign donors listed on their campaign finance report while most residents are greatly in favor of walkability, sustainability, and affordability of our neighborhoods, the TC1 unzoning that we're discussing tonight does not achieve our stated goals and is merely a land speculator's dream come true. It gives developers free reign to develop as densely as the market will bear without fees for the consequent impact on the quality of life for residents and without including community benefits like many of our peer cities provide. City Council often says that the city will be sued if we don't approve new development that complies with the zoning. And it is at this very moment when the city is unzoning property that we should include our requirements for community benefits. 
DC1 is creating buy right conditions for developers without consistency with our stated goals. Without the overdue comprehensive plan update and truly listening to the rigorous discussion going on with residents and local business, the push and rush through TC1 now amounts to spot zoning and that even city planning staff, staff recommended against but were ignored by the mayor's appointees on the city planning commission. For example, the planning commission and the council majority uh, are ignoring a June 28 memo written by city staff. 30 seconds. That responded to res resident concerns and, and they went on ahead and approved it six to zero. Uh, furthermore, um, the Bricksmore Property Group had written an August 11 memo that, and that is being ignored at great legal peril to the city where they oppose this TC1 zoning and suggest other alternatives. Time. Lastly, thank you. Thank you. Is Mr. Lipson here? Ms. Boudry, is Mr. Lipson online? I don't see Mr. Lipson online either. Our next speaker is Adam Yaskevich. Adam Jaskevich. Hello, this is Adam Jaskevich in the fourth ward. I've been following TC1 in general and West Stadium in particular through many meetings and listened to and given public comments on this topic. I wanted to again register my support. I live in the Dickin neighborhood at the southern end of the corridor and I grew up near the northern end of the corridor, so I've seen plenty of changes here over the past few decades and frequent several businesses along the strip. I wanted to direct the bulk of my comments to some concerns I've heard. Sustainability. Reducing vehicle miles through denser, more walkable development while connected with transit is a huge sustainability win. Furthermore, multifamily housing requires less infrastructure and less energy per person to heat and cool due to shared walls and economies of scale. Setbacks. Walkability needs what Jan Gell calls sticky edges, active street level uses that pull people in, storefronts with window displays, sidewalk dining, and so forth. This is the very definition of neighborhood character and liveliness, and it is what makes places like downtown so walkable. Deep setbacks and lawns separating sidewalks from storefronts have a negative effect on walkability. Shadows. Walking along the sidewalk with speeding cars on one side and a parking lot on the other in the hot sun is not pleasant. I usually prefer walking in the shade. Buildings up against the sidewalk provide a sheltering effect. Designed for State Street or one size fits all. TC1 was designed to be flexible enough to be applied to many corridors. In fact, West Stadium was brought up as an appropriate example where it should be applied as were Washtenaw and Plymouth. Business displacement. There's plenty of empty space in the corridor for infill. I'm not convinced this rezoning will cause the displacement of businesses. On the contrary, new residents and better walkability and transit mean more customers for these businesses. Process. The process on TC1 has been quite thorough. It's been discussed at countless meetings, from TC1 itself to the rezonings, neighborhood meetings, planning commission, ORC, and now council. I've attended many of those meetings and heard many members of the public speak both for and against. I disagree with assertions this has been some sort of backroom deal without public input. I'm excited to see this happen in my neighborhood. I'm excited to see more neighbors and more pedestrian and transit-oriented development, and I'm excited to see movement toward an active, sticky, sheltering street wall as properties get redeveloped. 
This supports so much of what we're trying to do in Ann Arbor. I strongly support this rezoning and I do not see a need to adjust it in any way after so much discussion. Please pass it tonight as written. I would also like to express my support for banning turns on red downtown. While I have not been hit by a car, I've had a lot of close calls and times when I've had to stop short despite having the right of way to avoid being hit. It's almost always due to someone turning on red, not even glancing in my direction because they're too busy looking for an opening to cross tra in cross traffic. I hope banning turns on red downtown will be seconds. the first for banning this unsafe practice throughout the city of Ann Arbor, and I hope we can take control of the MDOT roads so we can ban it there too. Thank you. Thank you. Are there communications today from Council? Councilmember Griswold. Uh, yes, I'd like to report on the resolution calling for workforce housing on U of M property uh, being built by private developers uh, on property that the university can lease up to 99 years. Uh, this is still in the communications and problem definition phase, but that is really the most important phase. And I like to think about this as density with minimal disruption. We seem to like to have a lot of disruption in this community, and uh, that's not what I'm aiming for. Uh, there are three resolutions on the agenda tonight, and they all have one thing in common, and that is the ability to see around the corner or sight distance. There is a generally accepted engineering standard, uh, and it's called a sight distance triangle. And the size of the triangle is determined by the speed on the roadway. For some reason in Ann Arbor, we don't think we need to adhere to that because we're special and we can see around the corner or everyone follows the rules. Uh, that's, that's not the case. So uh, I'd just like to conclude that if only we were not a democracy, if we had communist government, it would be so easy. We could just decide all of the good things that are necessary and take care of them for our public. Councilmember Dish. I just wanted to quickly remind everyone that this Friday is the second annual Mayor's Autumnal Green Fair. It will be from 6 to 9 p.m. Friday evening on Main Street. And I will be at a table talking all about the circular economy and probably getting very cold. But I look forward to seeing everyone. Councilmember Amlawi. Uh, thank you. Um, just wanted to highlight what was brought up by the Independent uh, Community uh, Oversight Commission, uh, Police Oversight Commission, and that is um, their reaction to the um, efforts being made for engagement, public engagement for the unarmed uh, police response or unarmed emergency response, that is. And uh, I appreciate um, uh, Mr. Dehoney's response to that communication that we received from McPock. It's included in our agenda um, in the email that we received from Mr. Dehoney earlier today. Um, hopefully um, the city and the commission um, continues to engage um, so that the end product is, is what the public deserves 
and is asking for. And uh, uh, I feel comfortable um, believing that Mr. Dahoney is, is doing just that. Um, also, I'm not sure if this is communication, but just a, a request uh, that uh, we, we move the closed session to talk about Gelman um, in the agenda um, after um, C1 or something before we get into DC um, into some of the other policy issues that are going to be lengthy and we have expensive attorneys I believe um, waiting for us to go into closed session. Thank you. Further communication from Council. Councilmember Hayner. Yeah, thanks Mr. Mayor. You know, generally I'd agree to let the attorneys stop billing us, but um, I think there's a lot of people here who are here specifically for that public hearing and other things, so I'm not sure that would be a good agenda change. Um, I'm glad that my council co board colleague here mentioned the Green Fair in case you hadn't seen it in the Ann Arbor Observer ad or the banner on the front of the building or the many postcards that have been coming to my house that make me think that perhaps the city really wants to s slip around the rules about not promoting a climate action millage. These came on the same day. The city of Ann Arbor seems to find plenty of money to send postcards to houses, all the houses, when they want to promote a millage, but not when we rezone 24,000 parcels with the ADU <laughs> as an example. And so I think it's kind of odd and I'm a little concerned the, the dog and pony show that's gonna happen at this uh, green fair says here that collaborators are going to spread the word on what you can do to help us achieve carbon neutrality. I'm guessing that that word is vote yes on the climate millage, but you know we're not allowed to say that. We're not allowed to use taxpayer dollars to actually promote a millage. Although I noticed that in the um, campaign finance reports that the mayor gave a direct $6,500 contribution to this postcard here. So make of it what you will. Thank you. Further communication from council. Councilmember uh, Radina. Thank you, Mayor. Uh, for those of you who would like to vote yes on the community climate millage or any other, uh, participate in any other le local election, I just wanted to take a moment to applaud our city clerk's office for once again working to make voting more accessible for students on the Ann Arbor campus. Um, they have returned with their polling or with their uh, satellite office at the Museum of Art, which was opened in 2020, and have expanded to a second location at Duderstadt on North Campus as well. Um, so I encourage students who are looking to get their ballots, vote early, um, or, or get other information about the election to, to visit those locations on campus and, and make use of those. And thank you to the clerk's office for doing so. Further communication? Councilmember Song. Uh, I wanted to thank our city administrator's office as well as our lobbying firm for assisting me in uh, coming up with a, an email to the, um, the White House and encouraging uh, President Biden to visit and uh, hopefully give us a bit of support with our uh, um, solar, solar projects and our um, our solar infill projects, which will be the largest project in the U.S. if we can get to the final federal funding. So this was a concerted effort. Um, hopefully he can come and visit and we can, all come, we can welcome him. Um, I also wanted to uh, report that I'll be participating in U of M's Big Idea Summit uh, in a couple of weeks. And some of, one of the issues that we'll be discussing includes affordable housing, 
climate action, transportation. So I'll report out what I learned there. It's an all-day, actually it's a two-day effort on the 14th and 15th. Um, and I hope to see other folks there. Thanks. Councilmember Briggs. One more thing on voting. Uh, thanks to Councilmember Rodina bringing up the um, on on campus um, uh, voting at the um, art museum. Also to mention that on October 14th, um, there's going to be at the art museum a Feel Good Friday. It's an interactive night of political issues and artists, and so you'll be able to come and hear from hear about from local policy experts on important ballot issues. Um, and um, we'll be talking about a variety, wide variety of issues. I'll be there talking about transportation. Um, and there'll be a lot of other interactive, interesting um, things going on at the museum that night from 7 to 10 p.m. And thanks to, well, I'll just leave it at that. Further communication? I'd like to request confirmation of the following appointments that are presented to council at the September 19 regular session to the Downtown Area Citizens Advisory Council, Angela Peet. To the Energy Commission, Mike Berkowitz, moved by Council Member Dish, seconded by Council Member Grand. Discussion? All in favor? Opposed? They are approved. I'd like to recommend the following for your consideration to the Ann Arbor Area Authority Board of Directors, Chris Allen, to the Downtown Development Authority, Teresa Nicholas, Stephen Brummer, and Danielle Vaughn. We have a motion, please, to approve the consent agenda. Moved by Councilmember Dish, second by Councilmember Griswold. Discussion of the consent agenda. All in favor? All opposed? The consent agenda is approved with 11 council members present, all voting the affirmative, thus satisfying the eight vote requirement with respect to CA2, CA6, CA7, CA. I'm sorry, Councilmember Hayner? Well, thanks. I mean, I was going to vote for it, but I had my hand up to make a comment, if I oh, may, after apologies. the fact, if that's okay. Pardon me? If I can after the fact. If yeah, that's yeah, okay. let's, uh, let's roll that back uh, with anybody who would object. Councilor Hainer on the consent agenda. My yeah, apologies. I just want to call out CA10, which is on here, if people hadn't noticed that. We have a, somebody whose project is in development here, a pretty large project here in the city, the downtown area, and they are asking us to, uh, for our to consent to pull back from their parking agreement because at the last week's meeting we uh, did away uh, recently we did away with parking uh, minimums so anyone can build a building now in the city without providing a lick of parking and um, because this is in the process it isn't built yet um, they're asking for some modifications to that development agreement to get out of providing parking on that space uh, in a manner and so I just wanted to point that out to folks that you know some things that we do have immediate effect here in the community for good or ill thank you Further discussion of the consent agenda? All in favor? Opposed? The consent agenda is approved with 11 council members present, all voting the affirmative, thus satisfying the eight vote requirement with respect to CA2, CA6, CA7, CA8. That is all. We now come to a public hearing. Public hearings are opportunities for members of the public to speak to council and the community about a specific item of the agenda, that is to say, the specific subject matter of the public hearing. To speak a public, at public hearing, you need not have signed up in advance, but your speech must relate to the specific subject matter of the public hearing, that is to say, the specific item on the agenda. Speakers have three minutes in which to speak, so please pay close attention to the time. Uh, we can only have one person speaking at a time, and when your time has expired, please conclude your remarks and cede the floor. 
Uh, is there anyone uh, who would like to speak at public? Uh, pardon me, is there any? So public hearing number one, an ordinance to amend section 8530 and add section 8531 to chapter 105, housing code of title eight of the Ann Arbor City Code. Is there anyone who'd like to speak at this public hearing? To do so, please just uh, come on up. No need to raise your hand or cue. folks, my name is Evelyn Smith. I've been a renter and resident in Ann Arbor for the past six years, and I'm here today, obviously, to talk about the Right to Renew Ordinance. When I talk to friends from out of town about how our rental market works and what it's like to rent here, they generally look at me like I have three heads, right? It's news to nobody that our rental market is deeply dysfunctional. Um, in fact, I was asked by my landlord just today to renew a lease that started fewer than 40 days ago. The right to renew ordinance is not an extreme piece of legislation. We're just trying to get a rental market to function a little bit more like most other rental markets in the country. It's been reviewed uh, by multiple, reviewed and endorsed by multiple parts of city government as well as the community. But I've talked about that at prior meetings. I want to talk today about landlords. Right, we have heard from landlords and their allies on council and their associations about how they how they have not been engaged appropriately on this issue and. Um, we know that's not true. We FOIA emails between landlords and city council. We know that there's been a healthy volume of engagement between landlords and members of city council. Uh, but I want to talk about the substance of the complaints that they have made about the ordinance. Right, so landlords claim that there is a silent majority of undergraduates, for example, who do not support right to renew and do not want to see it passed. Uh, the center, uh, central student government, which is the body that represents undergrads on U of M's campus, has endorsed right to renew. And on top of that, I do not know of a single tenant, undergrad or otherwise, who has been contacted and engaged by their landlord on this issue. Right? They're not calling us up and asking what we think. They're just sort of imagining it. Right? Don't fall for that. Second, uh, landlords say that they love lease renewals and that this isn't a problem. Well, we've heard from public commenters and people who have emailed city council who have had their, uh, who have been essentially evicted from their homes because they did not renew on their landlord's timeline. Right? We know this is a real problem. Lastly, uh, they say that under this ordinance, they won't be able to evict problem tenants. This is also false. Under the language of the ordinance, it's very clear. If you violate the terms of your lease, you are not entitled to a renewal. This is not a complex legal question. It is addressed pretty clearly and unambiguously in the language of the ordinance. Right, so to be fair to landlords, there have been landlords who have off offered useful feedback on the language of the ordinance. That feedback has been incorporated by members of the Renters Commission and members of city council. Um, and the idea that they need more time to consider this ordinance is a bad faith attempt to delay its passage indefinitely, and I hope that you can see it for what it is. Uh, I just want to say one more thing. Uh, landlords don't speak for tenants. They try all the time, but, uh, you know, they... Um, they don't represent us. They do not advocate for us. Renters are perfectly capable of speaking for ourselves. And what we're asking you tonight is what we've asked for the past several months. We want you to pass right to renew into law. So I hope tonight that you will listen to us and that you will do the right thing. Thank you. Thank you. Hi everyone, my name is Amir Fleischman. Uh, I am a GEO member uh, and a grad student here at UM. I am um, here today to talk about Right to Renew. Before I get into it, I would like to present our uh, petition, which is 678 signatures. Should I? 
present uh, to the clerk, please. Thank you. Three years ago, I was living in a property owned by or managed by Cabrio. And uh, they asked me to renew my lease in November 2019 until August 2021, which is, you know, totally ridiculous. I asked for more time. They told me someone was coming to see my apartment in 24 hours. I asked if I could include an uh, early termination clause in the lease, something extremely generous, where after six months, I could give them three months' notice to break my lease. Uh, they didn't think they would ha that was enough, so they absolutely refused. Surprise, surprise, when I renewed, uh, 10 months later, before the next term of the lease had even started, I already knew I couldn't stay in the apartment. They refused to even negotiate with me about getting out of it. They threatened to sue me. I eventually was able to find a subtenant. The subtenant lost their job because of COVID. They tried to evict the subtenant going around the COVID ev eviction moratorium. Sued me again. And now here we are. So I'm glad to see that, uh, you know, from that experience, we've been able to generate some actual change for Ann Arbor renters. Uh, hopefully after today, you know, tens of thousands of people, the majority of this town, are no longer going to have to wonder whether their apartment has been rented out from under them without the landlord even giving them a courtesy of asking if they want to renew. They won't have to live in fear of saying the wrong thing when they're interacting with their landlord and then being thrown out of their apartment as a consequence. And they won't have to worry about being seen as an uppity tenant when asking for much needed repairs that landlords more often than not do not even make. I would be remiss if I didn't mention that I'm quite disappointed that tenants with leases for the 2022-2023 academic year are not going to be protected by this ordinance. People will be evicted because of this failure. I understand that it took two and a half months to get the to get the ordinance from where it was when we first submitted it to the city to where it is today, and those are improvements. What's frustrating to me is that those two and a half months were July to September and not April to July. We still have not been given an explanation for why this delay occurred, and City Council still has not taken responsibility for the fact that people are going to get evicted this year. Nonetheless, we're still very glad to see this happening. And we hope this is a new page for council. Uh, we, want it to, we want Ann Arbor to take the lead Thank you. on issues like this, both in Michigan, blazing a trail for tenants, in other t municipalities. Thank you. All right, thank you. Thank you. Is there anyone else who'd like to speak at this public hearing? Hi, my name is Julia Good, and I'm a tenant in Ann Arbor. Um, a couple things I want to push. I'm really glad graduate students are here, and they've been leading the fight on this, because a lot of people my age who are tenants, which as far as I can calculate, is about a quarter of the city. That's a lot of people who are tenants and not related to students. Um, and I think we are really disregarded. Um, and this does affect us. It's not just student housing that this happens in. I moved in a place September 1st, and the first week of December, uh, I was told, we're going to start showing your apartment. I'm like, I just, I haven't even, you know, I've been here a couple months. You're going to show my apartment. It doesn't make any sense. 
The National Apartment Association says a healthy vacancy rate is 5%. Ann Arbor's been beneath that for decades. It takes one day for a landlord to rent an apartment. Why do they need to rent my place eight months in advance? Most of my friends who are homeowners in town, when I say to them, well, I have to leave the place I'm in because I didn't know eight months in advance. They were like, what do you mean? They can make you move. Don't you pay rent on time? I'm like, I always pay rent on time. Well, then they can't make you move. I'm like, yes, they can. They can do anything they want because all the laws favor landlords. So I think it's really important that right to renew is passed. It has a huge impact on the city. Thank you. Thank you. Is there anyone else like to speak at this public hearing? Um, yeah, so, so basically I uh, hope you can pass this because um, I think my landlord doesn't want to offer me a re lease renewal um, when they can. Uh, I've been trying to get a housing voucher set up, and well, I know my landlord's listening to this too, so uh, I want to talk to them as well so I don't have to call them in the morning. Um, they've told you again and again, they're going to contact you and say, hey, this is going to disrupt our business. You know, this is the busiest time of year for us. Like, they send me an email every year saying, hey, all the students move back. There's a lot of requests for maintenance. You know, it could take four to six weeks, even longer, to get to your requests. And I'm like, so this is to you, landlord, not to you up here. You can tune this out if you want. Landlord, if you are charging 10 to 20% more year over year on all of your rents, you can afford to hire some new people to, uh, some new maintenance people, some office assistants, whatever you need, you can afford it, I assure you. Um, and when you're complaining about not your business being disrupted so much because tenants are asking for just a little bit of rights, you know, when we look around, <laughs> It doesn't cast you in a good light, you know? And I'm somebody who has paid, I paid rent on time for two years, and I've been fighting with my landlord to get this housing voucher accepted. Um, you know, the first thing they told me is, hey, we don't accept housing vouchers. And I said, well, we'll see about that. Um, <laughs> I had to call, you know, Call around and figure out, you know, what kind of commission. There's um, somebody from the city who was able to call, and they called me right back and said, "Oh, oops, our mistake. We'll we'll do it." And you know, well, oops, it's three months later, landlord, and you still haven't come by to scrape the paint, the lead paint that's peeling off the side and the the top of the house, that Mishta. Uh, federal inspector told you to do oh, and that's another thing I want to bring up is um, we should update our um, code of inspections because 
there's a lot of safety issues that city inspections let pass and there's inconsistencies with state and federal guidelines that make things like getting housing vouchers more difficult to be accepted. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Third Ward. Ms. Grant, thanks for everything. Um, I've hit about a thousand doors in the last week for election-related stuff, and some of these comments about maintenance really speak to me, actually. Uh, the student runners need your, I deliberately targeted student areas. They need your leadership, they need your protection. So I hope you're hearing what they're saying. And I, as a homeowner in the Third Ward, I can attest they're not asking for much. The, the landlords need to do a better job on maintenance. That really speaks to me, and I'd like to thank you guys for speaking up. Thank you. Is there anyone else who'd like to speak at public at this public hearing? You think there's someone online trying to call them? I, I tend to do, I tend to roll through people uh, in, in house and then kick it over. Hi everyone, my name is Nathan Chesterman uh, and I've lived in Ann Arbor for about eight years, most of them as a renter. I'm here tonight to urge you to pass right to renew uh, and relocation assistance payments. As a renter, I can say with 100% certainty that it sucks to experience non-renewal. One minute you feel secure in your home, the next you feel completely destabilized. I shared with you all at a recent city council meeting that last spring I emailed my landlords to renew my lease and they told me they leased my house to someone else and that I'd have to vacate my home. They gave me no reason for non-renewal uh, because they weren't required to. They gave me absolutely nothing to offset the cost of my move because why would they if they weren't required to? I ended up spending close to two months rent moving to a new apartment, uh, which is exactly what this legislation would promise to tenants who experience situations similar to mine. I've seen landlords emails to city council through FOIA request. They're saying that you have to delay the ordinance because they haven't been consulted enough, but based on the volume of emails, I think they've made themselves heard. Uh, they're claiming to speak for the, quote, silent majority of non-student renters or students who haven't moved to town yet, saying that we'd rather shop in an unregulated housing market, and I call BS. Nobody wants to be thrown out of their home for no apparent reason. Nobody wants to receive an email a month and a half or even less after they move into a new place that says commit to renewing uh, your lease in the next three days or lose your spot on a wait list. Nobody wants to live in fear that the landlord will retaliate against them just for asking for repairs. Landlords say they love renewals, but we've multiple documented cases like mine. Uh, so it seems that what they really love is not being held accountable. So we need right to renew because it's time that we held landlords to account. Their brazen power tripping behavior has gotten really out of hand. It needs to be reined in. And this isn't just about protecting students. I am not a student. And 54% of residents in the most recent census are not, are, are renters here. And every one of us deserves protections from abusive and extractive landlords who don't care about our well-being. I'll note that the Google and Yelp pages for many of the landlords who have been in touch with you all are rife with reviews saying how the heating doesn't work, how unresponsive they are to maintenance requests, or how they've stolen security deposits. So these landlords do not speak for us. Uh, ultimately, getting this legislation passed isn't about this single protection. It's about having a city council that legislates based on the needs of its constituents. This legislation is a huge step forward, and I'm really grateful that you're all taking it up and for, for debate and vote this evening, and I hope you pass it. Nonetheless, uh, in a city with over 60,000 renters, I think it's really important 
that we have a city council who, even though it's made up of all homeowners, is paying attention to renters' needs. And so I'd really love to see more leadership from you on renters' issues moving forward. Thank you. Thank you. Is there anyone else in house who'd like to speak at this public hearing? Ms. Boudry, is there anyone online who'd like to speak at this public hearing? We do have a few callers online. Adam Goodman, you have a comment? Hi, Adam Goodman again. Um, just, I want to say that I, I fully support this. I think we should pass this tonight without delay. Um, what concerns me, I guess, is what are what are y'all going to do next? Because I, you know, I'll be honest. I'm not sure if this is going to do that much good for our community or solve that many problems. The early leasing ordinance and right to renew focus on allowing existing tenants to renew. That's good. But I also think we need to support people who are moving to town or who need to change their arrangements for whatever reason. When I was a student, I moved basically every year, and I don't think these ordinances would have particularly helped folks in that situation. And in fact, I think some of the you know, ways that landlords are exploiting loopholes in the early leasing ordinance might actually be making things worse, not better, because they're demanding folks pay deposits to be on a wait list instead of at least, you know, at least you sign a lease, you have a lease, right? So um, all of these ordinances that you're working on um, for tenants' rights I, are treating symptoms of the problem. And the true root cause is that we have massively less housing in town than we need. I saw an article recently from State College, Pennsylvania, which, which is, it was wild. The, the city leadership were concerned that they were building too much housing and the city in its infinite wisdom was looking to downzone. The problems they were having Vacancy rates were ticking up a little bit. Landlords were actually having to compete with each other to attract tenants. The horror, right? I, I think a lot of folks in Ann Arbor would have, do unspeakable things for our community to have that sort of situation. So that's where we have to get. But of course, even in a best case scenario, it'll take a very long time to build enough housing to begin to correct this imbalance. So y'all should absolutely be taking actions like right to renew tonight to make things more equitable in the meantime. But here's the key point. Because we are treating the symptoms rather than the root cause, you have to assume that landlords are going to find loopholes to circumvent this ordinance or just find other ways to screw the tenants. So pass this tonight, but don't celebrate because tomorrow you need to start thinking about the ways that you are going to continue working to protect tenants in this city. This ordinance is not going to be enough. The work will not be done anytime soon, if ever. And, and of course, also, please do everything you can to support building lots of new housing in Ann Arbor, because that's the way that we eventually get out of this. Thank you. Thank you. Caller with the phone number ending in 534. Press star six to unmute your phone. Go ahead. Good evening. This is Tom Stahlberg again. One of the hats I wear is as a landlord, and out of respect for what one of the early callers said about not speaking, landlords not speaking for tenants, I won't. I won't speak about any of the details. Uh, I'm speaking just for myself, not for any of the landlords, not for tenants. Please support and pass this item tonight. Please support our lower-powered position people, the tenants. That's who needs city government to work for them. There may be some problems in this that will crop up. Wouldn't be surprised if they do, but overall, 
I'd like to see City Council support over half the residents of town who are in a lower power position. As I said earlier, and I won't dwell on it, but I think if you have nonpartisan elections, that is also supporting our tenants, many of them who are students and who are disenfranchised by the current system of, of essentially electing our council and mayor in August. Thank you very much. Bye. Thank you. Mayor, I don't have any other callers on the line with their hands up. Oh, one more. Michelle Hughes, do you have a comment? Hi. I don't have anything uh, eloquent to say on the topic, but I support the right to renew. Please pass it tonight. Thank you. Is there anyone else uh, in-house or online who'd like to speak at this public hearing? with the phone number ending in 604. Do you have a comment? Yeah, hi, this is Eric Whitson. I'm uh, sorry that I seem to have missed the notice that I had gotten selected to uh, speak at about TC1. I'll speak at the end of the meeting. But in the meantime, I just wanted to say that is, I really support this motion, uh, this ordinance to allow tenants to have more rights. We all know that in Ann Arbor in particular, the landlords have a great deal more leverage and power than the tenants who are often students coming in from out of town and whose, whose voices are often not heard. So this is a big step forward. And I applaud council for entertaining it and for especially uh, councilperson Nelson who has spearheaded this. And the one other thing I'd like to say is to remember that student rights and tenant rights are human rights. And this is a human rights issue and is helping to remediate a long, long standing problem. When I was in student legal services representing tenants, the power imbalance was obvious. And so this is taking a small step to correct that problem. And I applaud you and I hope you'll pass it tonight. Thank you very much. Thank you. Caller with the phone number ending in 067. Do you have a comment? Press star six to unmute your phone. Go ahead. Uh, um, my name is Karthi Kaskula. Um, I'm a third year undergraduate student at the University of Michigan. Um, and I'm here representing the central student government and I'm the speaker of the 12th central student government assembly. Um, so I'm here again to talk about right to renew and how it would massively benefit students. Um, I think I mentioned a lot of my comments before and a lot of the speakers have put it more eloquently than I can. Um, but I think that Students in large part, uh, the vast majority of students, I would say, support Right to Renew, and we have gotten massive support from the student body um, in support of Right to Renew. Um, I mean, uh, we haven't heard a single bad thing in regards to the ELO or even Right to Renew on um, like opposition from it. And I think that numerous times we hear horror stories um, on, on parts of undergrads and grad students on how landlords mistreat them and not giving them like appropriate time to renew and non-refundable deposits and all these things. And I think even through empirical methods, um, like surveys um, that GEO has conducted and even CSG, uh, we've got that many renters uh, felt pressured to renew their lease and felt pressured to spend money to put their money uh, towards non-fundable deposits uh, and other things that I think should not be allowed um, on behalf of CSG and um, like the student body in general. Um, I think in Ann Arbor, right now, renters have minimal power 
And a lot of landlords across Ann Arbor use whatever loopholes they can to force students like me uh, to renew earlier use wait letters. Um, so I think it needs to be, revenue needs to be passed this meeting, um, and I hope all of you pass it. Thank you so much. Thank you. Caller with the phone number ending in 404, do you have a comment? Hello, I'm Claire Arneson, a resident of Ward 1, and I've been a renter in Ann Arbor for the past four years. I've been fortunate enough to have been offered timely renewal and to live in the same apartment for this whole time. This has offered me stability and is beneficial for my landlord as well, who has not had a vacant apartment in four years. Despite some claims, this has not prevented my landlord from making necessary repairs to my apartment and ensuring a safe living space. As we have heard tonight, this is not the case for every renter. Stability, reliability, and landlord accountability should not be rare qualities for renting. It should be ensured for all renters. The right for new ordinance will ensure this. I would also like to address claims that only a select number of graduate students are backing this ordinance. While it's true that this effort has been spearheaded by a group of community activists and graduate students, this group has worked incredibly hard to reach out to the population of Ann Arbor since they began work on this, this ordinance nearly a year ago. I was one of the many renters in Ann Arbor to whom, to whom they reached out, and through their efforts, I was able to educate myself on this ordinance and make the informed decision to support it this June. Anyone in this room who has had the same opportunity and amount of time to learn about this ordinance, and I hope that the City Council will vote to pass this ordinance and continue to work with renters in the future. Thank you. Thank you. Luis Vasquez, do you have a comment? Uh, hi, yeah, uh, Luis Vasquez, uh, resident of Ward 1. I think all this uh, just points towards um, council making decisions along with the Planning Commission to uh, increase the number of housing units that we build in Ann Arbor in the next few years. Thanks. Good night. Thank you. callers with their hands up. Is there anyone else like to speak at this public hearing? Seeing no one, this public hearing is closed. We have before us the regular session meeting minutes of September 19, 2022. May I have a motion please to approve these minutes. Moved by Councilmember Rodina, second by Councilmember Amlawi. Discussion please of the minutes. All in favor? Opposed? Minutes are approved. B1, an ordinance to amend section 8530 and add section 8531 to chapter 105, housing code of title 8 of the Ann Arbor City Code. Moved by Councilmember Nelson, seated by Councilmember Rodina. Discussion, please, of B1. Councilmember Nelson. Thank you. I, I appreciate the outpouring of support tonight for this measure. Um, as many people know, I have been talking about this for a very long time. It was first suggested to me by leadership from GEO. Um, they deserve the credit for raising the visibility of this issue. Um, I, there's, a, there's a lot that could be said about this ordinance. I've spent a whole lot of time sort of trying to explain to people how important this was in the last year. I'm glad to see it finally happen. I share the disappointment of many that we managed to time it to miss applicability to the bulk of student rental leases. Um, by what a month 
couple months, I guess. Um, this has been an ongoing conversation. I am really glad to see it move forward. Um, I, I urge community members who care about tenants' rights to pay attention to what happens in the next 10 months before the next leasing cycle. Um, the last time we passed an ordinance that had a greater effect some months in the future, it was amended before it could have that effect. Um, so it's true that there is much work still to be done. I am particularly grateful to um, the speaker who, who mentioned having visited a lot of doors in student neighborhoods I, when, when the early leasing ordinance was passed and I was worried about um, potential lack of awareness around that ordinance. I actually passed around leaflets in student neighborhoods and I, I felt like I was in danger in some places trying to climb up stoops and porches. I, I was alarmed. Like they were like blocks and neighborhoods of the city that I hadn't hadn't had reason to visit before. And I um, I look forward to a lot more conversations in the future about what we can do um, to pay closer attention to what tenants needs needs are in this community. Um, so I um, I look forward to seeing this ordinance pass. I expect it to pass based on the long list of co-sponsors. And I thank everyone for pushing pushing this elected body to think about the think about housing in a different way um, than probably we typically do. Thank you. Councilmember Ramlawi. Uh, thank you. <clears throat> by, again, by the list of um, co-sponsors, pretty safe to bet that this is gonna pass tonight. There has been concern raised by, by landlords um, who, who say they haven't been uh, at the table as much um, with the Renders Commission and, and drafting this ordinance change and others as like the early leasing ordinance. Um, and that will be argued as to what degree they have been involved in. Um, but I hope as this uh, Renters Commission moves forward and, and does more work, um, that the voices of the landlords will be included and be at the table. I think it's important um, for all parties to be represented in negotiations. Um, and I'll say this because it's on the tip of my tongue all the time in, in many cases as a Palestinian. I believe Palestinians should be present at the table when discussing their future. So I, I see this in many different facets. And this is uh, another one. This, um, at the first reading, I wasn't sure whether I was going to support it or not at the second reading. Um, but after looking at it, I don't have great cause to object to this. Uh, there are um, remedies and in it that will take care of the concerns that have been raised. Um, good cause will be argued about. And the relo relocation assistance also is a good remedy for, for instances where, where people have been unjustified treated so you know there's a great power imbalance there's housing insecurities for thousands of people 
Um, and these are real threats and real issues that people are dealing with. And when you're housing insecure, I'm not sure you can manage to deal with much else in life. So I think it's, it's important to pass this here tonight, and I don't see a reason to, to not support it. And I appreciate everyone's work uh, on this and hope the work can continue uh, improving the lives of renters and everybody else. Thank you. Councilmember Adina. Thank you, Mayor. I, I want to echo some thanks to the community activists here in the room and, and those watching at home and, and really everyone who has participated in this process throughout. Um, you know, as, as has been mentioned, GEO brought this to us initially and um, had meetings with us about this concept um, before early leasing ordinance even. And so um, this is a, a long time coming. I, I do want to thank folks for their for their patience on working through some of it. I know it has taken longer than than many folks have have wanted. Um, I do want to briefly address um, because because I think I think there is maybe some confusion about um, if this had been act, enacted a month ago or, or a couple of months ago that it may have impacted leases that were starting this fall. Um, it is my understanding through the conversations that I've had that because of, of contract law here in Michigan, we would have actually had to have enacted it before any of those lease agreements were signed. And so it likely would have needed to happen um, months and months and months ago rather than um, rather than just you know a couple of months ago. But but I do hope that um, that we we can pass this tonight. I agree. I think based on the long list of co-sponsors, I hope that it, it, we're not going to have any surprises. Um, but uh, I also want to acknowledge that I think that this is just another step in the process of balancing uh, the incredible power imbalance that exists in the community between renters and their landlords. Um, you know, I, I will echo that I don't believe that that all landlords are are evil and and trying to trying to do wrong by their tenants. We have heard actually from a number of landlords who wanted to participate in this process and who helped to strengthen this and who support its passage. Um, what I what I hope we don't see is you know a lot of continued expo exploitation or efforts to create loopholes um, to get around the intent of the ordinance. Um, I imagine there will be some, and we will need to continue, as I mentioned last last meeting uh, to continue to make improvements to our local laws to, to make sure that we're protecting our, our residents. Um, and, and finally, I will, I will also say that I just think, you know, this is the reason that we created the Renters Commission. We know that there is a dramatic power imbalance. Um, we know that we needed a process for, um, for, for ordinances like this and others to come to us um, with, with renters' voices being front and center. Um, and so um, I appreciate, again, the continued activism from, from our community groups and community leaders, but I also hope that now with the Renters Commission in, pro in, in the process, we'll be able to, to have a more formal way of continuing to move these, these items forward so that we can continue to make improvements. Uh, thank you. Further discussion? Councilmember Hainer. Yeah, just a few remarks. Um, I, I think it's gotten sort of a, it, it sort of um, has come to be that it's considered progressive to interfere in private party contracts, and that's what this body does. Um, you know, we did a thing a while back. Uh, uh, we we got rid of background checks for renting, and I think all these things are come from come from the right place to create a set of tenants' rights and other empowerments. And so we looked at at removing background checks. We've looked at the early leasing ordinance. And some of these things have, um, you know, they have good goals, but they have um, unknown outcomes. Like I've been heard from many um, uh, building owners that early leasing has put them 
kind of in not only in conflict, private housing in conflict with the university as an example, but um, we, we've created, uh, you know, um, uh, kind of out of sync, out of synchronous uh, leasing patterns with say international undergrad students as an example. And so when I look at all the things that we do, I'm always asking myself to, you know, what, are, what is the potential for a poor outcome from this? From this? And, and that's what you have to look at. Uh, we, we only want to improve the lot of, of everyone in our community. Um, and so if we're going to do something that's going to uh, make it worse for all parties involved, that's certainly nothing worth doing. I mean, is this going to prohibit walk-in leasing, for example? Is it going to, does it have the potential to load the courts with um, uh, the judgments of good cause? Um, it, the undefined good faith offer to renew that leads the penalty phase of this ordinance basically leaves it to the courts to decide what that definition of good faith offer to renew is. Could that include, like it is often included, um, can it, you know, should we define that so that it, you know, good faith meaning honesty in the con conduct and uh, what is the definition of a renewal offer? Um, I know a lot of uh, large, the large building owners and, and lessers here in this town, um, they, they have to adjust their rent um, generally upwards, just create upward pressure on rent. And um, that is a result of, uh, you know, often a result of the policies and practices at this very table. And so, you know, uh, will we end up in the, in the courts again with people saying, hey, good faith isn't a 10% increase. And then they, we get that, that point of argument. Well, if you can't control your rent yourself, either as a tenant or as a landlord, and you ask the courts to control your rent, it's rent control and it's unconstitutional in the state of Michigan. And I'm sorry to say that, but that's the facts. And so I'm, I'm just, I'm concerned that some of the vagaries that we include in these um, uh, definitions and we leave it up to the courts to decide are not really you know, working as strongly in the interests of, of uh, uh, tenants as we could. And so I'm, I'm still quite on the fence about this and likely will be until my name's called. Further, uh, Councilor Ramlawi. Uh, thank you. Um, you know, Councilmember Hayner obviously uh, is a lone wolf at this table many, many times, uh, but hearing him and hearing his, his point of view and being the devil's advocate, I think does um, help the body um, come to a better conclusion. Um, you don't need to agree with, with his positions, and I know understand uh, many, if not all, don't on many things. Um, but we have a power imbalance now between the, the tenant and the landlord. But we're creating a power imbalance amongst landlords where, you know, in this ordinance, the, the university is exempt. Um, and you also have big box landlords, like the standard, we're gonna be voting on something here later, 244 units versus your, what you would have, you know, mom and pop type of, of landlords who, who have been reaching out to us and, and saying, uh, well, slow down here. All these changes um, have unintended consequences, and they do. Uh, but you know, I won't be here when those unintended consequences come back. Um, and you know, much of this is going to be decided, you know, in in the 
in these areas of, of, of power imbalances, if, if it, things do go to the court systems, that favors people with resources, which happen to be landlords. Um, and then, of course, we're making this other, we're picking favorites with, with who, who the landlord is. And so the, the much larger um, investor types will, will continue Councilman. and not, not be affected by this. Further discussion? Councilmember Song. I think the discussion is leading us to um, our next steps in this work, which is something I've talked to Councilmember Rodina about, which is the need to push for right to counsel. So if we follow the, this work in Detroit that just passed this, this was multi-year effort in collaboration with foundations. Um, you'll see data from where other cities have passed this, this, these similar efforts, San Francisco, Washington, D.C., New York, Cleveland, Philadelphia, Denver, that landlords have access, over 80% of landlords generally have access to legal representation in eviction proceedings versus uh, tenants have, 5% of tenants have access to legal representation. Um, Detroit Future City has a fantastic kind of one-page overview back in 2020 when they started advocating for, the, for this. Um, if Detroit can do this, uh, similarly to how we pushed uh, UBI or a guaranteed income here, and they've, they've passed that in Detroit just recently, It'd be great if we could take the lead here, and then it would be also great to see how this would be moved throughout the county. Last I checked, we had 500 cases in our eviction courts. Sarah, which was COVID emergency relief rental assistance funding, ended in June. The Hawk line, which is our intake, home, homeless and housing intake line, went down in June, where we had 2,000 calls waiting unanswered. Um, we do know that there are families who are struggling. It's not just students, folks who are rent burdened. If you look at the county's opportunity index, where uh, you can see extreme housing burden, which is that 50% of your income exists in the county. Um, we know folks are rent burdened here in Ann Arbor. That starts at 30% um, of your income. And it's not just students, it's families, right? So I thank the folks who worked on this. I'd really, really encourage you to bring this to the county commissioners, bringing it to other municipalities. Um, renters do work, uh, do live in our, and in our townships. Um, social services also work in our townships. Um, so my request of everyone here is that we think about these next steps when it comes to legal representation. Speak to MAP, Michigan Advocacy Project, Legal Services of South Central Michigan. These folks have been doing this work long before the pandemic and are struggling with trying to represent folks now. So thanks. Further discussion? Councilmember Hayner. Well, I think, I think it's a good, thanks, Mr. Mayor. I think it's a good point that has been made that there is, um, there, this has the potential to um, favor one group of, uh, uh, you know, building owners over another, or landlords over another. And I, again, I'm loath to use that term because it's all the kind of, vile demonization of the landlord has gone on around this conversation. But when you look at the penalty phase, the relocation assistance, two months rent. So imagine you're somebody who has a single home and they, they, you know, they say it's a single duplex or something they rent. 
couple thousand. So they're on the hook for a lot. Now let's say you're a large corporate listower and you have 900 beds in your building and you would happily write a check for $3,000 or something to get, to get a problematic tenant out without even bothering for good cause. And it would mean very little to the bottom line of a very large corporation or the university to pay this relocation assistance where it would mean everything to a small landlord. And so in the penalty phase of this, I think we're, we're making a mistake. And if the essence of right to renew is to provide stability in our housing market, I, there, there's, this is one approach. I'm sure there's other, but I'm, others, but I'm not sure that we've really looked at any others. I think this is sort of following a, a bit of a formula after the um, you know, early leasing ordinance. And so, and it's well and good. And I spoke with Councilwoman Nelson who kind of brought all this forward last year about at length. And I think that is the goal is to provide stability and, and kind of remove some of the stigma with being a renter in our community. And um, clearly this is gonna pass, uh, um, but I think that there's, uh, I think we should be roundly looking at other innovative ways to do that, not, not just by interfering in private contracts. Further discussion? Uh, for my part, I am uh, I'm very excited about uh, about this having been brought forward, and I thank the uh, the resident uh, community member activists and members at council here, and of course in the renters commission, who have done a great deal of work to uh, to bring this to fruition. The passage of right to renew is going to improve the lives of thousands of Ann Arbor residents, uh, both today and uh, over over the years to come. It's going to uh, improve their lives with particularity with respect to housing stability. Uh, it is, of course, uh, bundled into being a renter is, uh, is your, your tentative status. The landlord controls the, the fact of the lease and uh, your obligation, uh, rather your opportunity is to accept it or not, not accept it. And that is an asymmetry and that's an asymmetry that we're working here uh, to engage it to the best we can. Um, I don't think that this uh, this particular iteration is necessarily perfect, and I don't think, uh, but I do think that it is uh, getting us very much in the right direction, and I'm excited uh, about the changes that it will affect. Um, it has been asked, what is next? Um, and I guess that's an open question, and it's one, too, that I'm excited about. And I guess I will, for my part, be looking to the Renters Commission uh, to see uh, where they next believe that we have an opportunity uh, to make the lives of, uh, of community members here better. Uh, it is uh, a commission I know that is excited, engaged, uh, and eager to, to take action. And I know that it is, uh, uh, that we are all, um, I believe, um, similarly excited about the prospect of being responsive in this area because it's incredibly important and because it has not been, uh, well, because its time has come. Further discussion? Roll call vote, please. I believe starting with Councilmember Dish. Councilmember Dish? Yes. Councilmember Griswold? Yes. Councilmember Song? Yes. Councilmember Graham? Yes. Councilmember Rodina? Yes. Mayor Taylor? Yes. Councilmember Iyer? Yes. Councilmember Nelson? Yes. Councilmember Briggs? Yes. Councilmember Ramlawi? Yes. Councilmember Hayner? No. Motion carries. C1, in ordinance to amend. <laughs> 
An ordinance to amend Chapter 55, Unified Development Code, rezoning of 190 parcels in the West Stadium and North Maple area to TC1, Transit Corridor District, City Initiated Rezoning. Moved by Councilmember Dish, seconded by Councilmember Iyer. Discussion, please, of C1. Councilmember Dish. Thank you, Mayor. So, as you have heard, this ordinance proposes to rezone 190 par parcels in the West Stadium Boulevard and North South Maple Road area as TC1, Transit Corridor District. This ordinance is a map amendment. It affirms that this area is appropriate for designation as a transit corridor because it is well served by buses. There are commercial employment and recreation centers nearby and more residents and improved walkability would contribute to the flourishing of those businesses. The TC1 designation is the product of extensive political, uh, public participation that went into the development of no fewer than seven elements of the city's current comprehensive plan documents, including the land use element, South State Street corridor element, the reimagined Washtenaw document, and more. Extending TC1 to, new, to this new geographic area means that we are catching up on our existing plans, not that we are jumping the gun on the upcoming comprehensive planning process. Now, what does TC1 zoning hope to accomplish? We hope to enable more people to live in Ann Arbor in multifamily market housing within walking distance of grocery stores and bus routes. We hope to facilitate a mutually supportive relationship between land use and traffic. Uh, I'm sorry, transit. <laughs> So it is puzzling to me to hear people label TC1 a one-size-fits-all model. Height maximums in TC1 adjust depending on how close they are to residential districts. How would that self-adjusting mechanism play out on West Stadium, Maple Road? Almost all the land northeast of Stadium would be limited to 75-foot tall and that's, excuse me, six-story buildings. There would be some 11-story or 120-foot buildings permissible closer to the street, in the Westgate's shopping mall, and in the area between Maple and Stadium. But for the most part, TC1 zoning will not make a dramatic change with respect to height. Current zoning now allows four-story residential development on roughly two-thirds of these 190 parcels. We've heard concerns that the promise of data, greater density attracts developers and that we can expect displacement of local businesses as landlords sell the leases out from under them. Existing landlords for commercial properties in this area are currently using only 25% of the square footage that current zoning allows. This means that if excess density really were such a hot commodity, we would already see landlords selling out small businesses to turn a profit. I've talked a lot about what TC1 encourages, but I would Council like member? under... Am, am I... You minutes? are. I'm, I'm done. Cool. I'll talk later about what it prohibits. <laughs> Councilman Griswold. I provided questions this morning for a staff introduction. Oh. Thank you. Mr. Dahoney? Mr. Mayor, we have Raymond Hess available for this item. I'm sorry, um, Brett Leonard.
Mr. Leonard is joining us on Zoom. Good evening, Mayor and Council. Um, I do have a series of questions uh, that I'm happy to go cover. Um, late last week, a constituent shared an August 11th, 2022 letter from Rich DiPolito, a VP of the Bricksmore Property Group. The letter is addressed to the mayor, city council members, and planning commissioners. As you may know, Bricksmore is the owner of Arborland, Maple Village, and another 400 plus shopping centers. Does staff distribute this letter to council members? And if so, when was it sent? No, planning staff distributed this to the planning commission. Um, it was included in the publicly available August 16th planning commission packet on the website. Uh, Rich DiPolito resent the letter to council members last Friday, September 30th. Please provide a summary of any communications, including phone calls that the city staff had with Bricksmore staff to address the issues raised in their August 11th letter. Staff has had multiple emails and one video call with representatives for, with Bricksmore between March 22nd and August 22nd. Um, I would describe the summary of this as clarification and education on the impact that result that ultimately resulted in Bricksmore sharing that they were not supportive um, of the proposed uh, zoning for the property. Um, city staff uh, encouraged them then to address that at the Planning Commission public hearing and to share their concerns in writing for the benefit of the record. Uh, the planning staff raised in their 20, June 28th, 2022 communication to the Ordinance Revisions Committee. Could staff explain how those issues, specifically in the next step brainstorming ideas sections, were addressed or resolved? Uh, the options were presented to the Ordinance Revisions Committee, and after that discussion, we as planning staff elected to proceed with the proposed rezoning uh, in totality. Um, part of some of those scenarios was considering different areas for different zoning, other uh, revised amendments to zoning districts. But after that discussion, staff elected to proceed with the TC1 zoning as presented to the planning commission. The Ordinance Revisions Committee had played a significant role in the TC1 ordinance revision before us this evening. Would staff please explain why we do not have minutes of the ORC minutes meetings? Our videos of the Zoom meetings available to Legistar. Uh, the Ordinance Revisions Committee is not authorized or unable to make any decision. Thus, no minutes or recordings of the meetings are created. Is staff aware of any communication implying litigation if documented issues cannot be resolved? No, we are not. Staff and at least one commissioner questioned the limited setbacks as a safety hazard. Could a transportation engineer explain why we are not complying with the generally accepted engineering standards for site distance triangles based on the existing traffic speed on Stadium in North Maple? Um, this assumption is not accurate. The city reviews all plans to ensure that they meet accepted engineering standards for site distance triangles regardless of setbacks. Could staff identify the maximum number of housing units possible under TC1 in the stadium Maple area? And what is our target number of units to support optimal transit? Um, no, this would require a development scenario planning for each parcel in the proposed zoning area. Public transit in the city um, is responsive to land use uh, as density and the corresponding trip generation increase. Um, AAATA has the ability to respond with increased service, such as increased frequency and time span or in the case of their recently adopted long-range plan, uh, transit hubs in some of the quarters that the city is considering for transit zone. So, um, that's the last of the questions received. Thank you. Councilmember Griswold. Uh, thank you for those answers. Um, first, I'd like to request that the city administrator ensure that when communications are addressed to the mayor and city council, they are delivered to the mayor and city council, either electronically or by putting them in our boxes. Um, I searched for the Bricksmore letter, 
<clears throat> and could not find it on Legistar or Outlook scanning the word Bricksmore. Um, so I am a little concerned about that. Uh, I would take exception regarding the Ordinance Re Revision Committee. It seems like a, many public concerns went into the Ordinance Revisions Committee and somehow during that process, and maybe it was after it went back to planning, we decided not to consider any of the issues that were raised by the public or by the largest landowner. So we have to accept in Ann Arbor that we have a very, very powerful hidden political machine. And if you get in their way, you're roadkill. And I am very, very upset that somehow all of the public's concerns were simply paved over. Now, also, the Ordinance Revision Committee does play a significant role, and I believe minutes are required per the council rules. Lastly, passing zoning that is actually contributing to pedestrian and cycling crashes, not to mention vehicle crashes, seems to be extremely irresponsible to me. Why not put it in the zoning? I talked to one developer and he said he actually had to ask for an exception in order to have what he considered a safe sight distance triangle on the corner of his building. So I, I don't mean to uh, be negative towards staff, this is not, these decisions are not made by staff. They are made by a bigger power in the city of Ann Arbor. But we have got to recognize that and take corrective action. Thank you. Councilmember Grand. Thank you. Um, you know, this is a first reading, but I'm incredibly excited to be supporting this tonight. I was excited to see it happen at State and Eisenhower. Um, this has long been council policy, it's best practice. Um, a lot of experts see you know, transit zoning as, as fairly low-hanging fruit in achieving our goals and one where we, um, well, it doesn't happen automatically. Um, as we can see, you know, State and Eisenhower, I don't think that there's been um, this mass exodus of local businesses leaving since um, that area has been rezoned. Um, so I, I also just, you know, after having done this, job for, for some time, um, there is a, a significant difference between listening and agreeing. And just because um, one disagrees doesn't mean that they weren't listening um, or taking into account concerns. It just means that you hear them and based on your values, best practices, input from um, experts, you may then disagree. Um, it doesn't mean that there's a conspiracy. It doesn't mean that there are um, dark powers that are um, somehow influencing one's brain. If they choose to disagree, they just, some of us, you know, disagree on policy issues, and that's okay, um, especially if you're transparent about what those values are. Councilmember Briggs. Thanks. Um, I'm excited to see this um, on the agenda tonight and us moving forward with the um, rezoning of um, Stadium and Maple to TC1. This is um, in the Fifth Ward, and I can say that when I knocked doors in 2020, I heard pretty clearly um, that there was strong support across the Fifth Ward for increased density along transit corridors. 
that's reflected in our community plans. And I've checked in with um, Fifth Ward, um, incoming Fifth Ward Councilperson Jen Cornell, and she heard the same sentiments at the door this um, during this election cycle. So, um, you know, certainly. Um, there are a lot of questions that come up during this process, um, and it's important that we make sure that they get addressed um, and people's uh, confusion about what this is and what this isn't um, get addressed. I would like to ask one question. Um, a few things came up during public comment that I'd like to address. One statement was that city staff recommended against this rezoning. I was wondering if Mr. Leonard could address that question, that comment. So um, during the consideration of this uh, proposed rezoning, we held two public meetings. One of those public meetings was actually held in place of a regularly scheduled planning commission. So um, planning commissioners definitely had the opportunity to hear from the public. Um, we um, presented to and discussed with the ordinance revisions committee as discussed some potential responses to some of those concerns. Um, we. Um, a lot, much of that was based on the fact that the size of many parcels in the stadium are quite small. And smaller parcels um, may be more challenging to meet some of the design elements of um, the TC1. So, um, but at the end of that discussion, as I indicated previously, we um, presented to the full planning commission the widest um, zoning map potential that had been contemplated to date um, all throughout to give the Planning Commission the opportunity. Um, we believe that the TC1 zoning is um, an improved um, benefit for that quarter, both for consistency of zoning and to help eliminate um, some adversarial aspects of the current development pattern towards the goals that have been already discussed tonight. So yeah, we are supportive of the TC1 zoning. Great. Thank you so much for that clarification. Um, further, you know, we've heard in public comment that this is an unzoning, um, and that is simply not true. Um, this is a new zoning category, and um, it's important to recognize that some of, um, I think there are 54 parcels that are currently zoned that have no height limits along Stadium and Maple area. Um, and actually TC1 caps height on all of these properties. Um, and there are, as Councilmember Dish mentioned previously, there are height adjustments based on um, proximity to residential um, properties. So I think that's an important clarification that's been a mischaracterization around this, um, this zoning category. Um, and with regards to safety, um, we heard very clearly both now and um, Planning Commission heard that um, the setbacks will provide um, be reviewed for um, safety risks and um, adjustments will be recommended by staff if need be, need, need be to address the safety issues. Councilmember Iyer. Thank you. I'm delighted to see this before us tonight. Uh, like Councilmember Dish, when I ran in 2020, uh, transportation or transit uh, corridor um, zoning increasing density along our transit corridors was something that I heard wide agreement from um, con uh, con constituents, residents uh, throughout the fourth ward, which uh, abuts this uh, area. And indeed, this is one of the areas that I, that I mentioned to those residents uh, when I spoke with them. So I do believe that uh, in supporting this, uh, I'm doing exactly what uh, 
a majority of residents uh, want and, and express that desire uh, for when uh, they voted for me. Um, to some of the questions that have been raised, I, I really appreciate Councilmember Dish uh, shedding light on a couple of the largest concerns that have been raised. One, that this is somehow outside of process. It is not. Um, it is very much within um, the process, and as she noted, we are behind, um, not ahead. Um, this type of uh, density along our transit corridors is mentioned in seven, as she said, different aspects of our current comprehensive plan. Um, and so uh, this is right in line with our current process for uh, doing such a rezoning. Um, and finally, the concerns that I have heard most uh, from residents have, have been about the business uh, potential loss of business. And I think Councilmember Dish, again, I just want to underscore what she said because I think it's so important that currently uh, landowners are only using 25% of the possible density uh, under current zoning. So if we're not seeing uh, businesses being bought out and raised uh, for redevelopment now, um, I, you know, it, it seems very unlikely that it would happen with this rezoning. Um, and finally, at the, uh, at the Westgate Library meeting um, this week, or last week rather, um, the one and only business owner who did show up, uh, Molly Ging, who owns the little seedling children's store, um, was incredibly supportive of it. And as she noted, uh, as a business owner who doesn't own her space, um, there's always the, the threat of being kicked out for one reason or another, and that's just something that they live with. But um, she expressed excitement for the idea of, of having new residents in the area, walkable, to um, support her business. So I appreciated her sharing that perspective. Councilmember Hainer. Thanks. I have a question for our city attorney. Did our just recently passed right to renew ordinance cover commercial? leases as well? I'm actually not sure, Councilmember Hainer. I believe it was directed to residences. I'm about 90% sure on that. Yeah, but I can yeah that's what I thought. Me. So, you know, the notion that we've provided any cover for these small businesses is, is not really accurate. Um, this, is a, this is a city initiated rezoning. What that means is that we've taken it upon ourselves to change something that exists, a variety of things that exist, to one thing. And that one, that change is based on the assumption that the highest and best use for a property in our city is dense residential development in some proximity to transit and perhaps walkable areas. Now, we all know, and of course, we all know, especially in Ward 1, that the comprehensive land use plan called for Lower Town to be a mixed-use urban village. We also know that on Packard, that George has thrown in the towel on any kind of mixed-use, and Planning Commission has allowed them to convert their building to all residential, thereby doing away with whatever walkability existed in that neighborhood prior to the building of the George. So we have a couple examples of how, one, this body has failed to implement its own policies repeatedly, and also um, how an example of an effort to do a walkable neighborhood failed in the marketplace. Okay, I'm going to set that aside. We have an A2-D2 plan which focuses on the downtown core, residential density in the downtown core. 
when we talk about 75% in or 175% increase in the land use here in these TC1 corridors potentially obviously businesses are going to get wiped away if this is set on top of all these different properties with all their various zonings any change they want to make to their properties has to fall under this TC1 the city initiated rezoning so why in heaven's name have we not come created a type of zoning that requires all the goals that we have in our A20 plan that is coming up on the ballot that we have in all our other plans. Why are we saying the highest and best use of this is standard, go ahead and build whatever you want as long as the volumes meet this description? It doesn't make any sense to me. City-initiated rezoning should be held for improvements in what is going to be constructed there and still be standing in 2030. Not just more of the same maybe. We have a downtown core. The way we're treating our zoning right now is that we're treating the freeway ring like it's the edge of downtown and we're treating the townships like they're the neighborhoods and our green belt is like Portland's failed growth boundary. Council and I'm, I'm not up for it. I'm, I'm not going to support this. For the discussion, Councilmember Amali. Thank you. Um, as the other fifth ward representative, um, I'll be speaking to this also as a 30-year 30 30 small business owner as well as a 20-year resident of the Old West Side. Uh, I think I have extensive knowledge and history of what's happened in our community, what's happened to small businesses, and the disappearance of small businesses, especially in the downtown. Uh, after D1, D2 was passed 15, 20 years ago, there was a rapid acceleration in rents because of the value uh, that the airspace gave to that ground floor level. You know, and, and <laughs> they're not, uh, actually, Mr. Councilmember Hayner, this body doesn't fail to enact the policies. It fails to reach its goals. This is a laissez-faire approach to affordability and sustainability. This will not work. You will not get the sustainability goals that you want. You will not get the affordable housing you are calling for. That's what I heard at the doors. I heard about sustainability and affordability. Not very many people talked about TC1. Um, we know this has lots of negative consequences to it, but yet we want to ignore it. Um, this is a hodgepodge way to redevelop that area. And this area is not like State Street and Eisenhower. It's apples to oranges. Name me five small local businesses over there on State Street and Eisenhower. As a resident of the Old West Side, it's real nice to be able to go to that corridor right now and do my shopping on a daily basis. It's convenient, it has a lot of things, a lot of small businesses, and it's gonna be wiped away. 
It's going to come into uh, another uh, franchise alley, just like we have in downtown. Who comes into downtown now? Is it a small mom and pop shops? How long do they last? They don't even get to the end of their first, uh, their first uh, term of their lease. They only make it five years. Um, this fails to embed any assurances. Zero. Councilmember. Zero. That's what you'll get. Zero. Councilmember Griswold. Yeah, I think we all agree on the goals of sustainability, affordability, and in some respects, density. But they're over here, and TC1 is a giant leap of faith over here. And there are unintended consequences that we're just totally ignoring at this point. And one of those unintended consequences is the discriminatory and racist result of trapping people into apartments. And I've heard nothing about condos or any type of housing. And we're not looking at that. I also want the record to show that I specifically asked to hear from a transportation engineer. That's someone who's licensed in the state of Michigan. And I have been, been denied that right to hear. And instead, it's just, oh, don't worry about it, Kathy. It'll all work out. We'll take care of it later. That's not how you do transportation engineering. That's like building a bridge from both ends and hoping it meets in the middle. Now is when we should be looking at setbacks, and we're not doing that. Uh, lastly, I'd like to offer an amendment that we remove the 26 acres owned by Bricksmore from the TC1 zoning map. Is there a second? Is there a second? Second? I'll second it so we can vote on it. Seconded by Councilmember Dish. Oh. <laughs> Councilmember Griswold. Um, I have nothing else to say. Mayor Taylor. Any discussion on the amendment? Um, I find that probably problematic legally, and I think maybe that's what the city attorney is maybe going to help us. Yeah, um, Mayor Taylor, we, we might have to look. I mean, you can move on the amendment, but we'd have to check. Um, whether we're allowed to do that carve out. Would you repeat that, please? You can move on the amendment, but I'd have to check on whether we can actually do that carve out. Okay. Is there any discussion of the amendment? Roll call vote. Councilmember Hayner. Uh, um, I, have, I have a question, perhaps also for the attorney in that vein. <clears throat> So we saw in the report that there were several properties who came to the city and requested, either in writing or in person, that they be exempted from this application. And I was, were, were those exemptions allowed prior to this application for the 190 parcels coming forward, like where originally there were 200 some or whatever? Or were those handful of people who didn't want to be part of this allowed to opt out prior to it reaching my desk here? Maybe, uh, maybe Mr. Leonard knows. Yeah, we presented those uh, requests to the Planning Commission. They did not uh, modify the, the map. Part of that was part of the in original intention of focusing on currently zoned commercial properties versus residential properties. Um, 
and including the correspondence. But in short, uh, those requests came in, they were presented to the Planning Commission, the Planning Commission elected to maintain those parcels in the proposed rezone. Thank you. For the discussion of the amendment. Uh, Councilmember Ramlawi on the amendment. I think Councilmember Briggs had her hand up first. I'm sorry. Councilmember Briggs. It's okay. Back row, it's hard. <laughs> My, um, fault. My apologies. Yeah. Thanks, Councilmember Ramlawi. Um, yeah, I'm not, I'm not supportive of this. Um, I do think that this rezoning is intended to address um, in redevelopment exactly um, situations like that, the Bricksmore property. Um, that is a suburban development um, that has a big parking lot out front and um, it's not conducive to what we're looking for for the future of our of our community um, down the line. So um, explicitly this, this rezoning tries to address um, that strip mall context moving forward. Um, also, I would like to note the irony that um, we have been accused of, many of us, of being a political machine um, and being bought out by developers and yet there's only one person at this table um, responding to development at this moment. Further discussion on the amendment, Councilmember Hayner. Well, I'm not sure what that last remark meant, but I would just point out that when I'm we applied TC1 to the State Street corridor, um, we the Uber suburban development of Briarwood Mall was specifically excluded from that. Why is that? Doesn't it have the same faults and and uh, incompatibility with our our goals that? say the Bricksmore parcel does? Isn't it a lot of coming and going of retail and commercial uses surrounded by parking? So another example of the inconsistent application of policies and especially around zoning and land use by this body. Um, I, I, I just find that, I found that whole thing curious at the time and even more so now that there is a, uh, a uh, uh, a pushback on perhaps removing one of these parcels. Now, I, I won't support removing this parcel because I don't support the thing at all. Um, and I mean, it, you're, you're all in or not. Obviously, Planning Commission felt that way. We had business owners, longtime business owners, some of them who said, please don't, don't apply this to me because it's going to be limiting in many ways for me as a business owner. And they ignored those entreaties to be left out of it. So, you know, why, why would we why would we allow this one? That would even that would double down or triple down on our inconsistencies. So, I, I guess to that to say, I, I don't support removing bricks more from this. Obviously, they don't want to be in it. I don't think a lot of these people necessarily want to be in it. One person out of 190 parcels coming to a meeting doesn't make a uh, informed survey. Councilmember Ramlawi. Uh, thank you. Um, like my colleague, I, I, I won't be supporting this even at first reading. Um, I won't be supporting this amendment either. I think um, I have a problem um, picking favorites and picking winners and losers as a government. Um, I know um, others don't have such a such an issue with it. Um, and I think here's a case where um, you know, which was was brought up. Great point. You know, you know, we, we, we didn't take uh, into account Briarwood. Here, you know, we have the same, relatively the same kind of issue, uh, but yet uh, we're including it. Um, but, you know, if 
I haven't been up here for four years, uh, I would, you know, I, I would be surprised, but I'm not. Um, I, asked, I have a question for the city attorney and whether, because um, this is a city-initiated uh, rezoning, whether we'd be theoretically capable of taking a property um, by causing the hardship that some property owners and business owners may face with the triggers that this rezoning does when they go to um, make uh, changes to their building and the enormous hardship that will be caused. Um, you know, when businesses have expansion, and, and I've gone through that, and I've experienced a lot of things, and new businesses do that when they come into an existing space, and you come into this existing space, well, now, now you gotta be ADA compliant. Well, the, the, the other tenant, well, well, that was the other tenant. You're the new person, now you gotta come in. And, and these kind of costs are, are not cheap, and uh, I embrace ADA, and that's one of the great things about where I'm at now. I, I can have people come in who couldn't come into my old location. Um, but uh, the, the, the forcing people to have to come into compliance with the city-initiated um, uh, upzoning, uh, would that constitute taking a property? Council member, if you would like advice on that, we'll be happy to provide it in written form, but we certainly wouldn't provide it to you within this forum today. I would only add to that that takings law is uh, very specific, and um, I think it is ideal for a city to have continuous improvement in enforcement of laws. Um, and while I have the mic, Council Member Hainer, I quickly checked on your question and the right to renew applies to housing accommodations only. Well, thank you for that. I much appreciate it. On the amendment, and I've, can I ask folks to stick with the amendment exclusively, Dish, Redina, Nelson, Grant. Okay, you can judge if this is on the amendment because it might not be. But it has been mentioned that we are inconsistent in not uh, if we would vote not to exclude Bricksmore when we did exclude Briarwood. I got that out. <laughs> and I was wondering if staff, Ms. DeLeo or Mr. Leonard, would want to explain the rationale and the, you, the, the, why Briarwood was not seeming to be appropriate for TC1 zoning. Um, I'm happy to uh, take a stab at that. The Briarwood Mall is not a corridor. Um, it's more of a node, and it needs a different treatment than the transit corridor. The TC1 district was crafted to be broadly applied across different um, areas of the city, but it does have a, it was crafted to be a corridor. Um, and on transit corridors. The Briarwood Mall, AAAA, TA, doesn't treat it as a corridor, it's the end of a line. Um, and they would really have to redo their service routes to accommodate it. And plus, 
the Briarwood is so large, um, its redevelopment is going to look a lot different and its next generation is going to look a lot different from our, our commercial corridors. Um, I think that when we were looking at State and Eisenhower, no one disagreed that um, Briarwood needs looking at and maybe and its future is probably not what it is today but it was a universally agreed that it gets a different tool than tc1 council member Redina. thank you mayor I, i'm going to be very brief i'm i'm not going to support a special carve out for this single property owner um i i think it also seems relatively clear that folks know how they're voting on this. I, th I think we have, I hope that we can move along quickly and vote on this uh, amendment so that we can get back to having the conversation that we seem to kind of already be having during this amendment process. Councilmember Nelson. I, I appreciate that Councilmember Griswold is trying to elevate the concerns that were raised by Bricksmore, and I think that it would be valuable for others to look at it. Um, like a lot of residents on this corridor and like a lot like a few of the planning commissioners and some suggestions proposed by city staff even um bricksmore is suggesting that there was a different path to do this that would have been a good bit smarter and better and a little bit less disruptive um i'm not going to support this amendment i mean i, the, I the, frankly like it's 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 a perspective that is informative but i that i of all of the people to be um to enjoy a carve out bricksmore is probably the last entity that i would offer it to <laughs> um just no councilmember grant thank you um i'll obviously be not supporting this um it's fairly mind-blowing actually uh but i i do think it's important when we hear statements that are made at the table um that target um, groups that don't necessarily have a voice at this table, that it's important to um, to address it. Um, Councilmember Griswold talked about uh, forcing people into apartments being a racist strategy. Um, one, I think that makes a lot of assumptions about who is living in apartments um, that's questionable. Um, two, I think it, um, and it's not the first time that we've heard negative comments about um, people who live in apartments uh, and and I think we have to really understand that if we want to be um, a welcoming inclusive community that means embracing people who live in all types of housing as equal um, participants in our community um, so I I just think that was um, a comment that that could have been really hurtful actually to to a lot of folks and um, just important to to make it clear to the public that not all of us share those views. Councilor Griswold. Uh, to the amendment, my motivation for offering it was after carefully reviewing the process and all of the document, my intent is to avoid possible litigation. Bricksmore is a large corporation, and our experience regarding Gelman dealing with a large corporation is that it has been very, very expensive and not successful. My other comment about apartments being discriminatory and possibly racist is that if we don't provide a diversity 
of living arrangements, people move into an apartment, the rent keeps going up, and they get trapped. We need to have pathways. We need to be building co-ops. We need to be building condos if we're not going to build single-family homes. And so, again, we need a path for people to move into other types of housing. Thank you. Further discussion of the amendment? Roll call vote, please, starting with Councilmember Dish. Councilmember Dish? No. Councilmember Griswold? Yes. Councilmember Song? No. Councilmember Graham? No. Councilmember Rodina? No. Mayor Taylor? No. Councilmember Iyer? No. Councilmember Nelson? No. Councilmember Briggs? No. Councilmember Lowey? No. Councilmember Hayner? No. Motion fails. Further discussion of the main motion? Councilmember Hayner. Thanks. I'm just going to comment generally on, on why I don't support this, and I think this is the overarching reason. That the notion of transit-oriented development, which is how this all started, not necessarily with our community, although reimagining Washington a while back was in that right direction. The notion of transit-oriented development centers itself around transit connecting various parts of the city and in a sort of a hub model where we create these areas that are walkable neighborhoods but people are able to take advantage of the entirety of the transit network to go from area to area and what it came out as was transit tc1 transit corridor type districts not transit-oriented development, but transit corridor districts. And so the essence of that is that any, eventually, I imagine, any parcel within a certain distance from a bus stop, no matter how busy the corridor, say Pontiac Trail, for example, will have some type of corridor overlay put on it, which allows the construction of the substitution of existing properties with uh, high-density housing and potentially mixed-use housing, although the requirement is very minimal in this TC1. And again, there's no requirement for any kind of, um, you know, sustainability or affordability or anything that is in keeping with our goals. So it's just, it's not worth it for the city to initiate this rezoning on the hope that it changes something for the better based on a flawed vision of what transit-oriented development is supposed to be. It, it, it's not ready for prime time. Sorry. Councilmember Dish. Okay. I'm just very happy to say that two AAATA routes serve the length of this area and five routes cross it. So it's, um, it's not simply a question. It's a you know, frequency and comprehensiveness of service. I wanted to uh, follow up on Mr. Leonard's description of the uh, robust discussion uh, on Planning Commission and ORC. It is true that both of these bodies recognized that the city infrastructure, especially on West Stadium, is inhospitable to most pedestrians and cyclists on West Stadium. Um, and we considered possible tweaks to the finer details of TC1. And we did not reach consensus on which ones might be desirable or even effective. But that's not what we're asked to decide tonight. What we're asked to decide tonight is something that Planning Commission members were unanimous on, and that is on the broad question 
of whether the goals and objectives of TC1 are appropriate and beneficial to the West Stadium Maple area. And they are, not only because of what we hope TC1 will achieve, and we do not have a crystal ball, we do not know, but we know that it will prohibit uses that draw automobile traffic, such as gas stations, auto repair, car washes. It also prohibits storage facilities. Um, existing uses of, that will become prohibited can continue operating indefinitely, but let me tell you that we did, on Planning Commission, recently consider a proposal for a storage facility. Residents were opposed. The developer backed down. That was great, but if we make this rezoning, we will never have to have that debate again, and I think that's really significant and important. It's a benefit. Further discussion? Councilmember Ramlai. Thank you. Um, it's just disappointing, to say the least, that this is the best this body can do. <laughs> um, you know, when, when I'm out there and I was talking to constituents and, you, and they ask you what you're going to do for about affordable housing, what you're going to do for climate change, what you're going to do to help small businesses and, and people, you know, um, afford to stay and live and move into Ann Arbor. And, you know, uh, for a lot of it, we, we really can't do a whole lot. We really can't move that needle very much. State prohibits us from doing much. Federal banking laws are what they are. The systemic racism and, and discrimination that occurs in our society um, permeates all the way through in every facet. We, we can't make those, those big changes here, but we can, we can make some changes when we have a city-initiated rezoning. You can actually do something and not just leave it to the markets that have failed us to this point. But what I'm hearing and what the community is receiving is that, nah, that's, that's, it's going to be all right. We, 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 the market will provide what it hasn't provided for the last 150 years because it will. <laughs> you know, we had a, a planning commissioner talk about the frustration they have with getting developers to go all electric recently. And it was quoted as saying, it's like pulling teeth. It's like pulling teeth Councilor. to get developers to adhere to new building practices. Councilor Briggs. Thanks. Um, I think it's, um, I talked earlier about why I was very supportive of this. Um, I wanted to speak just briefly about, um, you know, some of the, the concerns that, that have been raised here at the table and also um, within, you know, in communications. Um, you know, we've heard about this is not going to solve affordability. I think it's, 
um, dangerous to suggest that there is any one silver bullet um, to addressing our affordability crisis in Ann Arbor. It's going to take a wide variety of policy solutions um, to help us move the needle a little bit. Um, over 70% of our land is zoned single family only, and providing more housing options along Transit Corridor is a step forward in our community. It's not going to solve the problem, but it is going to help. It is going to address it and help help us move us forward. Um, I do think that. You know, it, this is a very strong local retail environment. Um, that is something that many folks in the Fifth Ward are concerned about, um, is maintaining that. Um, it's something that I ma maintain some concern around, around what we know that when redevelopment happens that um, the incoming space is more expensive, and that's a challenge. And we need to look at what policy solutions that we might be able to bring to the table in the future that might help support affordable retail space. Um, that's a different policy solution that I think we can consider in the future. Um, but as we saw um, at the George, um, mandating retail is not always effective. And so we need to learn from our past lessons as well. Um, one issue that has been raised, um, obviously what we're approving to, um, moving forward at first reading, is a map amendment, um, whether or not this is appropriate for rezoning to TC1 or not. Um, I you know, have debated myself and, and talked to others about whether or not there is a need for TC1, TC2, TC3. You know, at this point, I'm not sold that we need multiple TC designations. The only um, significant issue that I've seen Council that is st structurally different is the setback issue in terms of... Um, Council member. Which I will speak to at second reading. Further discussion? Councilmember Song. I'm really glad that we touched on our housing commitment to building affordable housing. Um, if we take a look at the housing affordability and economic equity analysis that the county did in 2015, we know that we need to build 3,139 non-student affordable rentals in the next 20 years, and we're already behind. We've only built 90 since then. In that 55-page report, one of the very first recommend policy recommendations is actually to introduce transit corridor zoning. So uh, this is not a new idea. This is not. This is an idea that's been in community beyond our own city since 2015. Uh, actually, and if we want to take a look at an example, we can look to 2013, where right on Plymouth Road. There's a great Ann Arbor Observer article on the Plymouth Road Plaza opening. Uh, the developer and owners themselves talk about how this is an example of infill retail. So if you go up on Plymouth Road and you remember that parking lot, which now is busy with Songbird Cafe, with minority-owned businesses, minority-owned businesses owned by folks who grew up in Ann Arbor, went to high school here in Ann Arbor, multi-generational multi minority business owners uh, are the majority in that complex. And that development, at the end of the article, Jenny Song actually says, we do better and better every month. I don't think any of the food places in the mall were worried. Um, the developer at the time points to how uh, the two-story structure gives more infill bang for the buck. The second floor is office space. It's close to the sidewalk. And he, the developer says, it reflects the philosophy of making the city more walkable, 
All four of the ground floor businesses can be entered either from the parking lot or from the sidewalk side. I also took the opportunity to talk to the Ann Arbor District, Ann Arbor District Library Director and his worries around the zoning. Uh, and the comment was, unless the library burns down and needs to be rebuilt, we would welcome a bigger building. But even he and trustees are following this. And uh, given that that Westgate branch is the most visited branch of all library branches and actually is the, the business anchor of that, of that plaza, um, that, that's the reason why TJ Maxx stayed. That's why uh, Nicola Books expanded. Sweetwater is expanded to another location in there. So I think if you talk to the folks who have businesses there, you'll, you'll understand that there's anticipation for a growing need, growing retail need, growing uh, housing need along that quarter. Uh, I've spoken to a number of business owners there. They are in the early conversations of forming, forming a business association. Councilmember. And the hopes is they'll come at the second reading in support. Further discussion, Councilmember Nelson. Thank you. That was that was a whole lot to unpack. Um, I I'm I'm really um, I'm in I'm intrigued by um, the talking points that I regularly hear. Um, the phrase affordable housing repeated over and over again, and yet none of the things that we are actually talking about are requiring affordable housing. The the goal of getting 3,000 more affordable housing units are we clearly admit on the one hand. Well, of course, this isn't the silver bullet. It's not going to achieve it. But then five seconds later, we're tap dancing on a different part of the dance floor. Um, just substituting affordable housing as a goal in connection with this. Um, I, the biggest problem that I have with this is there were so many forks in the road, so many opportunities for our members of our planning commission, our ordinance, ordinance revision committee, others, to, to take into account reasonable suggestions. Like for instance, the state and Eisenhower corridor is fundamentally very, very different than this one. Um, the, the things that are appreciated and cherished by the community on West Stadium are things that simply do not exist on state and Eisenhower. When we talked about state and Eisenhower, we had virtually no pushback from residents who could point to things that they enjoyed about the corridor or hazards that could happen based on implementing these like new requirements. Uh, I mean, it's that's the thing that's most concerning to me. Like we we actually went through a process, and folks who have who are not elected, who are not accountable to anyone, repeatedly and consistently refused to accept any suggestion of. Of tweaking or adjusting, and I and no one has offered a compelling argument for why, why we couldn't take into account how fundamentally different this is from State and Eisenhower, why we couldn't take into account concerns that were raised by people who are going to be really impacted by this. I, I supported the rezoning of State and Eisenhower, and everybody at this table is aware that the city is growing and needs to grow and needs more housing. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about pushing forward and rushing ahead to, yes, we went through the proper process. I'll grant you that, but it's, it's remarkable. Anybody who followed this process closely to see how many, how many concerns were raised and how many concerns were ignored. 
I'm not going to support this at first reading. I, although I really look forward to the public hearing, I think it's going to be really interesting. I know we're going to hear a lot of the same talking points over and over and over again, and we're going to hear a lot of really specific, nuanced analysis pointing out how this could have been done differently and better. Further discussion? Councilmember Song. So I feel like sometimes we forget we, we have a chicken and egg problem when we talk about development and housing and zoning. Uh, we had an opportunity, oh, not we, I was not on council at the time, but there was an opportunity to welcome affordable housing here close to that area, and that was Lockwood. So uh, when business owners and the library at the time had anticipated Lockwood, you know, potentially anticipated Lockwood being developed there, the discussion was, this is ideal for 100 low-income seniors to be able to access transportation online, AAATA was available there, and walk to the library. Uh, folks who could have worked there could have come off of 23 pretty easily. Um, think a little bit beyond that stretch, and you'll see the potential to how that community can really grow. I've joked, why? I've joked, you know, I'm sure, I'm sure there's appeal to living close to the skate park. Um, and I hope that is the case. And when talking to young families who attend Abbott, who live uh, in Section 8 housing down the road, it actually is a serious thing because skateboarding is a sport that is low cost, does not require parents to drive. Um, and when that park was actually uh, considered, in the, in the onset, it was supposed to be, uh, it was a prime spot for equitable, um, for folks who who really could have accessed that, that park differently than other parks. So uh, beyond that quarter, beyond think of multi, uh, large corporations who are in protest of this, I'd like to think about the communities who live there, and we can talk to them too. Further discussion? Councilor Griswold, I think you've spoken twice on the main motion. I think we started counting over again after the amendment, and many people spoke more than twice. But That is not true. I was just going to correct an untruth, but it's not true. Okay. Further discussion of the... Councilor Rodina. Thank you, Mayor. Um, very briefly, I'm going to be supporting this here at first reading, and, and I also, you know, we've heard a bit tonight about the process and how this played out and how folks have come forward with ideas on how to improve this and, and to make it better. Um, I would point out that a, a second part of this process um, is happening right now at this council table and generally it is at first reading when amendments could be offered or changes could be proposed for this body to debate and discuss as we are elected representatives of the community. Um, we are not seeing much of that tonight. Instead, we're hearing opposition at first reading and opposition that is being planned at second reading. And so um, I would say I encourage folks to continue to be part of this process and to propose amendments and changes when they think something can be approved, uh, improved. But um, unfortunately, I think that we're hearing a lot about that, but really there is just an effort to oppose this tonight. So um, I'm going to be voting yes on first reading and look forward to the, the public discussion at the next meeting. Further discussion? Uh, for my part, I am excited to uh, to be uh, in support of this this evening. I think the expansion of TC1 uh, will uh, will improve the 
uh, will improve the community. Uh, we are, all of our efforts are, are imperfect and iterative, and this, of course, will be. But the bottom line is, is that the, uh, the existing uh, zoning uh, on the corridor does not meet our aspirations. Uh, it does not meet our housing aspirations. It does not meet our commercial aspirations. It does not meet our ho uh, housing attainability uh, aspirations. It doesn't meet our, uh, our pedestrian and cycling uh, and, and even vehicular safety aspirations. Uh, and I believe that in, uh, in, in those areas that TC1, a context-sensitive uh, designation, uh, will be uh, a substantial improvement. Uh, it will not be the end of the story because, you know, we will continue to work. We will continue to observe what can be improved and we'll work and we will, uh, we will strive to do so. But the bottom line is that this, uh, this will be a, a substantial improvement uh, in, the, in the short and long term and I'm excited that it will be moving forward. Further discussion? Roll call vote please starting with Councilmember Dish. Councilmember Dish? Yes. Councilmember Griswold? No. Councilmember Song? Yes. Councilmember Grant? Yes. Councilmember Rodina? Yes. Mayor Taylor? Yes. Councilmember Iyer? Yes. Councilmember Nelson? No. Councilmember Briggs? Yes. Councilmember Ramlawi? No. Councilmember Hayner? No. Motion carries. Let us take a break. It's uh, 9.53. We will return at 10.03.
We are back after a short break. DC one resolution to restrict turns on red downtown moved by council member Briggs, second by council member grand discussion, please of DC one council member Briggs. Turn on my mic. So this was introduced at the last council meeting, and as you'll recall, we postponed it at the request of the legal office. Um, I'm going to, oh, sorry. I just tried to send you guys a message in it. Deleted, one second. Um, apparently I can't talk and send messages at the same time. Um, so I am sending around uh, some proposed amendments, um, just briefly to discuss um, what the purpose of this resolution is, um, it's restricting turns on red uh, lights downtown, and the goal of this is to improve pedestrian safety. Um, I, um, this is something that's been long recommended in our community from the Pedestrian Safety and Access Task Force Report of 2015. Uh, it's been reinforced by our recently updated transportation plan, um, and it's, it's a best practice recommended by the Federal Highway Administration. So it was uh, first introduced to Transportation Commission in August, um, and there were some meetings with staff, um, with the AATA, um, and it was unanimously adopted by Transportation Commission and brought forward here. So I've sent around some amendments um, for folks to look at. One is the recommended amendment. Let's deal with them in, in order, if you please. So move that first amendment. Um, so I will, yeah, um, I'll move the first amendment that is, um, sorry, I need to pull up the message that I just sent. Um, you will see in the email that you just received, the second to last resolved clause um, adds that um, basically this applies, um, the scope of the where it applies, but it says on streets under city city's jurisdiction and to the extent permissible by law, that's aimed to address the fact that we can't, um, we don't have control on MDOT roadways. Is there a second? Second by Councilmember Grand. Is this amendment friendly to the body? Friendly to the body. Second, number, okay. second amendment, Councilmember. And the second amendment um, reads, Resolved City Council directs the City Administrator to provide data on enforcement activities annually, including demographic data, which includes race and ethnicity of the driver during traffic stops. Is there a second? Second by Councilmember Song, just Councilmember Briggs. Yeah, thank you. And the purpose of this, um, we had some discussions around um, equity in the last um, meeting. Um, I think that many of them were unfounded, um, and we certainly received a report from um, that I, I think other co-sponsors are going to speak to in more detail. But uh, recently, in conversations with incoming council member um, uh, from the first ward, um, Council Member Her Cynthia Harrison, um, one of the things that she raised was um, sort of the, the policing of, of black and brown bodies and the concern around how um, new enforcement activities um, might play out. And so I think one of the things that we can be doing and we should be doing on all um, activities is just evaluating them, seeing what the impact of them are. Um, and so that's the purpose of this, um, just to gather data. Um, and my guess is that it will eventually be added to a list of other data that we're collecting. Councilmember Amai. Um, you know, I still have that Bridgeport report that we got when this council was first at how we can be all more professional and should get that framed. Um, 
you know, the, the, the issue of, of equity, the concerns, I'm not sure how someone can just dismiss them as unfounded as quickly as it was just dismissed. Um, my concerns of, of equity don't necessarily just rely on the pigment of one's skin. I know that's all the rage or how someone identifies what pronoun they use or don't use. My issue with equity and will continue to be the economic injustice. And I think this board going forward will lose out and this community will lose out when we talk about the economic justice or the economic injustice. Um, but I but I digress. This this last res this last amendment really to me doesn't seem necessary. ICPOC has been working on this. The Transportation Commission also worked on this. The Disabilities Commission I think chimed in on this for the police and the city administrator to collect data on this and many other factors and report them back to council uh, for all traffic stops in the city of Ann Arbor. So I'm not sure if um, what this is aiming to do, but um, I quite frankly think it's unnecessary. Further discussion? Councilmember Graham and Solon. Thank you so much. Um, so I, I have a, a few things to respond to that. Um, one, I think this was a, you know, a concern that was brought up in, in good faith to Councilmember Briggs and, and a, a response that is in line with some of our other practices. And, um, you know, when we, we want to do this, hopefully, or many of us do, um, because we think it's going to improve safety, but you know there are always um, trade-offs and, and concerns, and, and so I think this is a, a reasonable um, request. Uh, but I, you know, I think this will be kind of a, a twofer, both to the, the you know, amendment and, and the you know, resolution overall. I was so excited um, to see in this memo from Mr. Dahoney that we had our first equity analysis now that we have um, an equity officer at the city. And um, it responds to actually a lot of Councilmember Malawi's concerns. Um, so I'm going to just read the first sentence. Um, that was the summary. Restricting turns on red in downtown is expected to decrease negative impacts on BIPOC populations, lower socioeconomic status individuals, and individuals over 50, as detailed below. So our equity officer isn't limiting this issue of equity only to race, um, but also looking at um, socioeconomic status as well as um, age in this analysis. And you can see it in your packet if you're interested. There's some um, nice you know, infographics as well. So, um, and it does reference our you know, opportunity index um, and it's pretty exciting. It does speak to outreach and education. So we know that, um, well, we, I like the idea of collecting this data that in the first month, 
ish, we wouldn't be issuing any tickets and that any enforcement efforts would be purely educational. Um, I do, um, I would be remiss if I didn't respond quickly to um, Councilman Malawi's concerns that, that some of these things seem um, somewhat trendy, like pronouns. Um, introducing your pronouns, as many of us did when we were on Zoom, is something that can be done just to make other people um, feel comfortable at really no cost to you um, and to denigrate people um, who choose to make others feel comfortable and wanting um, to express um, their gender yeah, identity. Yeah, um, speak to a topic. It's Council just an unfortunate remark to me. No, uh, um, I, was, I, was, I was maintaining order, not cutting you off, Council Member. You have 30 more seconds. I think I made myself clear. Council Member Song. Um, I just want to go a little bit more in depth on the equity analysis. This is work that includes uh, reporting out from the 2020 Washington County Opportunity Index. And for those who are unaware, this index was worked on by uh, the U of M School of Social Work and the Ford School Poverty Solutions Center, um, along with the Office of Economic Development to the county. Um, and in the analysis, it points to how um, the impact of vulnerable populations, uh, the score itself includes uh, composite of health, job access, economic well-being, community engagement, stability. These are complicated demographics, and it also includes a zoom on the area, the catchment area where this would be enacted, and it points to how much of the area has a low access to opportunity index, um, and that this would address the needs of vulnerable populations who would benefit from a no turn on red restriction by increasing safety, especially those, especially among those that rely on walking, biking, transit, and other forms of mobility. I really appreciated the point, the analysis made on elderly individuals and how 11 crashes involved persons over the age of 50. Um, and this is based on Federal Highway Administration research and technology. So. Thank you to the efforts of staff for pulling this together and requests of council members. I think that pretty much answers, uh, hopefully that answers the need for uh, an equity review on the impact on the most vulnerable community members. Council Member Romlawi. Yeah, I don't think I was denigrating anybody in my prior comments. Um, again, I wish everyone would go back and read that recommendation from Bridgeport from two years ago, but yeah. Um, I just refer to window dressing, I think. I would call it window dressing. Um, um, <clears throat> the, and I did read the memo from our city administrator, thank you. Um, I don't think it includes collecting um, person's income. How we're gonna know if this is being applied to equitably and uh, for those, uh, are we collecting income? I guess there are a couple of things here I got to ask the city administrator is are we already collecting this information with resolutions that have been um, brought forward by ICPOC? And secondly, whether we're gonna be able to collect legally or practically income of people who are issued tickets. Mr. 
I'm not sure how we're gonna how we would go about collecting the income. Um, the the ICPOC request that I'm familiar with was not only asking that we collect demographic data on the driver, but they also asked for us to collect it, my recollection, for everybody in the car. And to me, that's problematic. Because when an officer starts questioning who's in the car, if that's not profiling, I don't know what is. That's how it's viewed. So it's, we, we, did, we had issues with that request. Um, so what is being done with those calls that ICPOC has as well as, the, as well as the other commissions on collecting the data from traffic stops or traffic crashes? Are we, are we pursuing anything? Um, has, will there anything be done unless council takes more action or is? Uh, we, we've committed to providing data to ICPOC, uh, to be honest with you, Councilman, regarding specific crash data, I'd rather do my homework and give you a better answer than sort of going off cuff here tonight. Uh, these were issues that were dealt with when Chief Cox was here. We haven't really been in. I haven't been in any meetings with ICPOC with Interim Chief Metzer to get a current status, but I'd be happy to get that. The only issue I raised, though, was around the ICPOC request that was made to me was to approve or support getting demographic data on every person in the car. Got council members Hainer, Griswold, and Briggs, and perhaps we can vote on this amendment and get back to the main motion. Yeah, just make it, well, thanks for clearing that up, Mr. Mayor. I didn't think we're still talking to the, to the amendment here. So, I mean, I don't have a problem with the first one. I don't have a because I understand where that's coming from. With the second resolve clause, I think it would be, I think we could avoid the whole of the debate here and let other overarching um, efforts underway at the administrative level and also at our policy level by striking the last line. So I'm going to move that we strike everything after the word annually. Let's just strike including demographic data. And I think it's kind of horrific to consider that uh, in that we're, we're really, are we really thinking about having a police officer put in a standard MCL form, the other, the race and the ethnicity or whatever of other people in a car? That is a gross violation of the First Amendment right to assemble freely. Is, is there a second? Is there a second? Second by Councilmember Lowey. I'll, I'll observe that it's not the other persons in the car, Councilmember, it's just the driver. Okay, well, I still want to strike that. I move to strike that from All this right. amendment. Discussion of that amendment? I only do so because it's, I don't believe it's necessary. I need clarification. Councilmember Nelson, I'm inferring a point of order. <clears throat> Thank you. Yeah, I, I just need clarification of what, the, what, is, what is your proposal, Councilmember Hainer? We are, we are talking the there were two amendments. The first was by acclamation, was friendly to the body. The second is the added resolve clause in red that Councilmember Briggs read out loud. I would propose uh, that we do ask, direct the state administrator to provide data on enforcement activities annually, period. 
Okay. It is the deletion of that second clause in the third in the third resolve clause, the proposed third resolve clause. Do you understand? I, yeah, I understand now. I, I guess I have a comment on the amendment. I, I don't I don't have a problem with the amendment. I don't have a problem with us. Or I, I should say no. I, I should say I don't have a problem with that language, and I'm I don't understand the amendment. Um, if we are are if we have commissions that are already urging us to collect this kind of data to understand how our law enforcement is operating, um, I certainly want to understand if this particular ordinance is triggering um, an imbalanced um, law enforcement intervention on disproportionate impact on people. Um, and actually, I guess I, I also, I, I, maybe this is a, a ridiculous question, but isn't race or ethnicity already noted on, on a ticket? I mean, is that not something that is written down I guess I haven't gotten a ticket recently enough to remember. Like, I mean, I've, I, I remember my mother getting a ticket years ago and being offended by the, the fact that she was identified as a man on the, on the ticket. That's been 30 years ago. What kind of information is typically put on a ticket? Maybe one of our Mr. Dehoney? chamber yeah. officers could tell us. Detective Lee? Mr. Dehoney? Information I, from I the can't answer that question. Mayor Taylor, may I try? Um, information from the driver's license will be noted um, on a traffic ticket. So, oh, okay. Well, that's and our race and ethnicity is on our driver's license, isn't it? No. Um, I think it's just race, not ethnicity. But I'm not 100 percent oh. sure on that. Okay. All right. Well, I'm not going to support this amendment. I'm sorry. I, did, I it. And maybe it feels like belt and suspenders if we are coming at this from other directions um, and this is a, there, there is a move for, uh, from other bodies to, to get this information. But I, I think it's fine to reiterate that this is demographic, this is data that we would like to be, like to know. Further discussion, the amendment to the amendment. Mr. Dehoney? Just to provide some uh, clarity on, just on this one issue that regarding data, the gathering of data on its face is something that is promoted and supported because that's the way you determine if there is a disparate impact. So there are plenty of ways that this item that's listed here is supported and addressed and there is a need for that kind of information. The, the sensitivity of it, the best way I can put it, sometimes it is not immediately obvious the race or ethnicity of the person you're talking to. And when the officer asks them that question, well, what race or ethnic background are you, you have a problem. <clears throat> so if it's gathered and we will accept the officer making assumptions based on site, that's one thing, but if there's a probing to get at it, it becomes problematic. Councilmember Romali, Briggs, and then Hainer on the amendment. So the amendment. in the conversations I've been involved with, with IGPOC and, and, and others about this, it is left to the officer's discretion as to fill in what they believe the answers to these questions and data 
uh, fields are. I'm just <clears throat> slightly confused as to where that ask and request is on all traffic stop data that we that those bodies recently asked for. And I thought, and I could be wrong, that this council approved. Um, perhaps not yet, but I believe they were going to be asking this council to direct the city administrator to report out this information on all traffic stops, not just turn on reds. And so not that that's that's the problem I have with this amendment. It is it is too too narrow and doesn't go far enough in the in, in the efforts to collect the data on all traffic stops and more than just traffic stops, but traffic crashes because that <clears throat> we have found to be filled with less bias than than traffic stops for a certain uh, different number of reasons that I won't go into right now. Um, where are we at with that? And I, I just can't support this. I think there needs to be a better, bigger policy you know, discussion and adoption for this kind of thing. And it shouldn't just be, you know, a resolution or uh, amendment at, at this point right now. There, there needs to be a bigger policy change. Okay, Councilmember Briggs and Hayner on the amendment to the amendment. Then perhaps we can vote on that, then get on the amendment, then get back to the motion. Councilmember Briggs. Yeah, I agree. This is very narrow. Um, and I agree a broader effort needs to be done. However, we have not started that, and that is something that we need to see, um, we need to have in our community. It's something that's available in many other communities, um, and we should have an annual report from our police department. We should have annual data regarding um, disparities um, on a wide variety of different data points that we can collect on. Um, this is simply um, one small step moving us in that direction because it is an opportunity where um, we are increasing enforcement and questions have arisen about whether that might have disparate impacts in our community. Um, and so that's why that's included and why I will not support the, the, the piece of removing that. Um, this is something that I know is public, readily available data on traffic stops in other communities and so I feel confident that our, our police department can find a um, acceptable way to collect that data. And I want to be clear, this is just on the driver. Um, Moving forward, so um, this is to to address the one you know one issue that I felt um, was raised um, by a, a member of our community that 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 I felt like needed to be addressed. Councilmember Hainer. Yeah, thanks, Mayor, Mr. Mayor. I, th I mean, I think it's I, I I get where this is coming from. I just moved to strike it because I just don't want to piece into these policies. I think these policies should be overarching, and I agree when the ICPOC folks come up here and they say, "Hey, we need to have this data available to us." And we saw a couple years back when they did an analysis of the county's treatment of drivers, we saw huge disparities in the way they treated and pullovers and so on. Uh, but we shouldn't just be piecing it in one type of ticket at a time. It should be a wholesale change that's made to our reporting activities. And so that's why I moved to strike it. So you vote yes to strike it here and hope that the next week or in the near future, we will have a wholesale change to this type of reporting. Now, I, I can't let it go by without commenting somehow on the curious turmoil we've created here where 
we have an equity analysis of this that says that a right turn on red is uh, right turns on red disproportionately affect certain groups. We we had an outcry when someone else suggested that we do an equity analysis of the uh, um, uh, makeup of our apartments in our community of renters in our community, and now we're saying that. People who this equity analysis says that it's likely that uh, certain groups are not driving cars, and yet we want to know how many people of that group are driving a car and got a ticket for turning right on red. The whole thing is just kind of odd. And I would also suggest that the demographic data that would be put forward from the amount of tickets that may or may not be written on this topic will be minuscule compared to the total number of tickets that are written in the community and really not an effectual uh, test of what's happening out there on the streets. So that's why I moved to remove it. Further discussion of the amendment to the amendment? Roll call vote, please, starting with Councilmember Dish. This is on the amendment to the amendment, the removal of the second clause. Councilmember Dish? No. Councilmember Griswold? Yes. Councilmember Song? No. Councilmember Graham? No. Councilmember Radina? No. Mayor Taylor? No. Councilmember Iyer? No. Councilmember Nelson? No. Councilmember Briggs? No. Councilmember Malawi? Yes. Councilmember Hayner? Yes. Motion fails. Further discussion of the amendment. Roll call vote on the amendment. Starting with Councilmember Dish. Councilmember Dish? Yes. Councilmember Griswold? No. Councilmember Song? Yes. Councilmember Graham? Yes. Councilmember Rodina? Yes. Mayor Taylor? Yes. Councilmember Iyer? Yes. Councilmember Nelson? Yes. Councilmember Briggs? Yes. Councilmember Mlawi? No. Councilmember Hayner? No. Motion carries. Further discussion, the main motion as amended. Councilmember Hayner. <clears throat> Thanks. I'll, I'll share with this body and the community an example of what it's like to have customers downtown and have no choice but to arrive to provide the services that I provide in a motor vehicle. Many, many days, almost every day that I am down there, I am westbound on Liberty, wanting to turn right on North Division to head back toward one. A no turn on red at that intersection. It's almost impossible to make the turn even with the light now because of the huge amount of foot traffic in that area. Now I've long advocated for a scramble at that intersection so that we could open up the access to Liberty Plaza and so on and get people who are crossing the street across the street safely. And then maybe that will come in the future, I don't know. But what I see now are long lines of idling traffic waiting to make that turn with the light. Imagine what it's gonna be like with a no turn on red as an example on that corner. Now, I believe it's already been added because of the bike highway there. So what happens is you sit there and you realize you have a gap in the oncoming traffic. If only I could turn and get out of this line of idling traffic. If only I could make this right turn, but I can't because it would be a violation of no turn on red law. And they'd write white guy in their book or whatever. And it, it just doesn't happen. I've sat through two, three light cycles where no one is allowed to turn right even with the light. When, you, when the light 
is in the favor of the flow of traffic, so is the parallel flow of pedestrian traffic. And that's going to happen all over this community. And to tell me that it's a safety issue, when you look at the actual safety report and the low occurrence of actual physical injury that's in that report, if you read the report, that it's more dangerous for me to turn on red with my 18-foot light pickup truck than it is for a 40-foot Gillig bus that has a graphic across the side. You got to carve out for buses. Something's not right with this no turn on red. I don't believe it's really a, necessarily about pedestrian and cyclist safety. And I can tell you what it's going to lead to is long lines of idling traffic in direct opposition to our carbon neutrality goals and, frankly, the clean air of this community. And so I'm not going to support this. I, it's been coming a long time. I think Chip Smith floated this. Councilmember Smith floated this in, I don't even know when, 2016, 2017, something like that. And so here it is before us. Uh, no doubt it will be passed, and no doubt um, you will not be there to hear the curses of everyone who works and lives and has to service industries and businesses and residential areas in our downtown, because it's going to be a big pain. And it, it's going to clog up traffic, and it will have a slight, if any, effect on the safety. Everyone who has proper driver education knows... You look before you open your door for cyclists, you do a Dutch door open, and you look before you turn on red. Councilmember. Councilmember Griswold. No. Uh, I submitted questions for a staff introduction. I believe Mr. Hess is available for that. Thank you for reminding me. My apologies. Good evening, Council Raymond Hess, Transportation Manager for the city. Um, so I'll quickly go through the uh, question Council Member Griswold raised. Uh, the first was, uh, based on the UD10 report, three were right turn on red and three were right turn on green. Um, I wasn't able to check the UD10s um, today, but we'll take that um, as fact for purposes of the remaining responses. So the first question was, could staff identify the number of crashes that we expect to prevent by prohibiting right turn on red and the number of additional crashes resulting from more drivers waiting and then turning when they have the green light and the pedestrian potentially has a walk signal? Um, so this one's kind of difficult because really we have to look at the historic trends in order to kind of speculate what the uh, future impact would be. And so really this gets back to what's identified in the uh, supplemental memo that the three crashes uh, that were identified over that five-year period would have been the ones um, that were turned on red that would have been expected to be prevented by prohibiting a right turn on red. Uh, however, this does not necessarily address the crashes involving a vehicle which has the green light. Uh, the next question was, safety for right turn on green is improved with a leading interval for pedestrians. Do all signals in the designated area have leading intervals for pedestrians? If not, what is the implementation schedule? Uh, yes, all intersections that are city controlled have leading pedestrian intervals citywide. Uh, we implemented that during the pandemic. Uh, the one note here is that um, MDOT controlled intersections on the trunk line. So in this area, in particular Huron, um, many of those intersections do not, or most of those intersections do not have leading pedestrian intervals because that call is up to uh, the state to make. Um, some nearby communities use an overhead no turn on right sign when the message is only visible when it is illuminated, allowing enforcement during specific periods of the day. Have we considered this option? Um, I have not heard consideration of that. 
Um, but given the high pedestrian activity throughout the course of the day, um, I don't know if a timed restriction um, has applicability uh, in the downtown area. Uh, and then the last, or no, there are two questions. Uh, last two questions. The Federal Highway Administration recommends prohibiting right turn on res when there's a substantial number of pedestrians. Does the Federal Highway give any numbers or ratios between vehicles and pedestrians? I did a scan through the literature today. I couldn't find a hard and fast rule uh, in terms of what the numbers are or the ratios are between vehicles and pedestrians. It's more about the crash occurrence uh, in some of the literature I cited. Um, and then the last question is, uh, pedestrian crashes are at unacceptable levels throughout the city, but primarily in downtown area and major arteries. Is staff considering any other action to reduce the number of pedestrian crashes when a vehicle is making a turn on green? Um, and yes, as part of the um, Vision Zero implementation strategy, one of the deliverables of that was what we originally called a major streets traffic calming program, but uh, have since kind of rebranded it as a uh, speed management program. Uh, and so we're currently working on that with the consultant. We hope to vet that publicly starting later this month and into next month. Um, and that might afford us some opportunities to reduce speeds, which would then improve safety of all users of the corridor, including pedestrians, cyclists, and motorists. Um, and so that may include you know, vertical devices that people drive over. Um, but we're currently looking at all the options and what's acceptable to our emergency responders, transit, and the community writ large. Okay, thank you. Um, and if you'd like me to send you the, um, the six UD10 reports that I looked at, I can, I can send them to you as an attachment so you don't have to look them up. I've got the PDFs. Councilman Nelson. Um, I, the one addition to this uh, resolution um, that was on our agenda was about coordination with AAATA. And Mr. Hess, I think you serve on that board, right? Aren't you like the city's rep for that board? No? Oh, well. No longer. Um, hmm. Okay, well, I mean, I got, I'm, I'm looking at a, a systems map for the AAATA right now, and I guess I'm, I'm curious if um, if you have any thoughts off the top of your head about where where that part of this resolution might have an impact in terms of exemptions. Yeah, in our preliminary uh, discussions with the AAATA, they indicated three intersections um, where this um, exception for transit might uh, stand to benefit their operations. Um, I can look those up. I might need a moment to look up the email. But I, I remember 4th and Huron was one because all the buses that are coming out of the Blake that are headed north um, make that turn from 4th onto Huron. So I think that was one of the locations. And I, I can't recall the other two off the top of my head, but I can look those Well, and Huron, but Huron is not um, controlled by the city, is it? Fourth. Anyway. Oh, 4th is. No. Correct. But the 4th street movement is controlled by the city. So gotcha, okay. while the right turn prohibition wouldn't apply to the trunk line, it could apply to fourth. Okay, all right. Well, thank you for that. I appreciate that. <clears throat> Councilor Hainer. Thanks. Yeah, I would think that most of the um, exemptions are designed to carve flow traffic in and out of the downtown hub there. We do, we do um, you know, for ATA, we do variable right turn on red signage. I know it costs more to have that type of sign, but uh, an East Huron River Drive 
um, at um, Huron Parkway, for example, by the Huron Hills Golf Course, we have a variable no turn on red that's part of the signal group that's overhead there. Um, and I assume that's for the safety of the golf course pedestrian flow. Um, so it's not an unknown technology, and I certainly think that after a certain hour, it would be appropriate to waive that um, restriction. You know, who's who's going to sit at a at a corner at four in the morning idling in traffic like we do at the bottom of Swift? Now that the Pontiac Trail now with the no turn on red, who's who's going to do that? You know, so we're creating lawlessness in a sense because I, I think this could be applied in a way that is not a blanket manner like we're doing here. I, I like the idea of variable no turn on red signage and I think it's I think it's appropriate and I think it um fits the the goals of this, whatever those may be. Councilor Ramlawi? Yeah, I mean I think this will be passed tonight. Um it's got some some false hope in there. Um, I don't think it's going to lead to necessarily what the sponsors would hope it leads to. Um, we, we do have increased congestion in, in downtown. It's, it's pretty bad. It's getting worse. But I guess that's maybe the point, is to make it so difficult that people give up on it altogether. Um, don't know. Future will future will tell us. But it, it is there. There's if you do hire a contractor to come and work in your place downtown, it's going to cost you more. There's no question. You tell any contractor your address. <laughs> once they hear Ann Arbor. It costs you more. There's an Ann Arbor tax uh, that contractors put on um, business owners and property owners and homeowners. Um, so I'm not saying this is this by itself is going to make a, a big impact, but you know, uh, over time, uh, the city has adopted policies that are counterintuitive to its goals. Um, this may be another one. Um, I think it's going to cause people to try to turn on green uh, at times where it's in conflict with pedestrians who are moving in the same direction. Because like what you just said, Councilmember Hainer, they maybe have been waiting there for three, four, five minutes and frustrated and going to take some chances that are not going to be um, positive. And so I hope that after this passes that there are other instruments and technologies that are deployed that improve safety. Uh, I, I think this might be a step in the right direction. But if this is, if nothing else is followed up, this is going to be counterproductive to our A20 goals, going to be counterproductive to quality of 
living standards, it's going to be counterproductive to affordability, it might be even counterproductive to safety. So um, those are real things. Um, humans are humans. Um, they're going to act in ways that are, quite frankly, myopic. Thank you. Councilmember Briggs. Thanks. It sounds like there's a lot of worries about how this might play out. Um, it's why I've tried to rely on sort of federal, the expertise on this. So Federal Highway Administration has said that this is a proven countermeasure for improving pedestrian safety. So I've, I've leaned on, on, on that um, fact. Um, in terms of affordability, um, we, we, we got an equity analysis on, on that piece, but we know that um, transportation is the second biggest cost in households. So um, this is something certainly that improving the pedestrian experience um, is helpful in that. Um, it's important to note that when we talk about improving the pedestrian experience in Ann Arbor, that's, that's very relevant. We're lucky. We have a very vibrant downtown, um, and we have a very high walk mode share in the city of Ann Arbor. 17% of um, folks in Ann Arbor walk to work, um, an additional 9.4% commute by transit. Now, nationally, the average is 2.7%. So when we talk about improving that experience and improving that comfort level, that's really important because we have a lot of folks out there walking. And while we have um, crashes, we also have a lot of near misses. And I think everybody at this table has probably heard about a number of near misses downtown. And that's a lot of what this resolution is aiming to improve, is that that oh my gosh, I almost got hit. Um, and that's not, that's not the feeling and that's not the experience that, that we're going for here. We have some, um, our, our sustainability goals, um, our transportation goals, all hinge on getting folks um, to consider alternative modes of transportation. And so, you know, that's why our Office of Sustainability um, also weighed in and said that they believed that this was um, a positive um, in terms of the impact on sustainability. Further discussion? Councilor Song. Uh, going back to the memo, um, we the conversation is focused on um, traffic and moving traffic. Uh, for me, this this really speaks to the driver safety, too. So uh, when staff had pulled together this memo, they had noted that there were 28 failure to yield on right turn crashes at these, at these intersections, 17 of which involved only motor vehicles. Uh, six involved pedestrians, five involved bicycle, bicyclists. Um, and later on when we talk about um, elderly drivers and the dangers and the number of crashes involving elderly dr drivers, you know, I think of the people in my neighborhood who, who struggle with making sure their parents are driving safely, elderly parents are driving safely. So uh, turning right on right is not a right. <laughs> I think we exercise yielding all the time. Uh, so you know, I, I, I would think that to yield or not to yield is, is not really a question, it's you yield. Uh, we practice this all the time in intersections uh, when we encounter pedestrians to affirm this should not be a difficult thing. I think Ann Arbor is capable, its residents are capable, knowing that this crash data is available to be considerate of, of their neighbors and their colleagues who are just trying to get to work, to school, or to, to shop, or to the library, whatever it is. 
without having to worry about crashing. Further discussion? Roll call vote, please, starting with Councilmember Dish. Councilmember Dish? Yes. Councilmember Griswold? No. Councilmember Song? Yes. Councilmember Graham? Yes. Councilmember Rodina? Yes. Mayor Taylor? Yes. Councilmember Iyer? Yes. Councilmember Nelson? Yes. Councilmember Briggs? Yes. Councilmember Malawi? Yes. Councilmember Hayner? No. Motion carries. DC2 resolution re, uh, recognizing the Mitchell School Parent Teacher Organization, Inc., as a civic nonprofit organization operating in Ann Arbor for the purpose of obtaining a charitable gaming license. Moved by Councilman Grant, second by Councilman Rodina. Discussion? All in favor? Opposed? It is approved. DC3 resolution to order election approved charter amendment of the Ann Arbor City Charter sections to establish nonpartisan nomination and election for the offices of mayor and council and determine ballot language for this amendment. Moved by Councilmember Griswold, seconded by Councilmember Nelson. Discussion, please, of DC3. Councilmember Griswold. Uh, first, this resolution simply places the language on the ballot to let the voters decide. Number two, it will bring Ann Arbor into alignment with the vast majority of other cities in the state and better prepare us for when the state starts mandating some changes. Uh, one change that's being considered right now is moving the primary date to the spring. Uh, another thing that won't be mandated by the state but will be allowed is when we're allowed to have ranked choice voting. Uh, and also important is that the students will be here uh, and will be able to participate in the November elections. Councilmember Iyer. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. Okay, thank you. Um, so, champions of Nonpartisan municipal elections like to say uh, there is no democratic or republican way to fill a pothole. And while that's a catchy slogan, it's utterly false. The democratic way to fill a pothole is to employ full-time unionized workers who are paid prevailing wages with health care and benefits. The republican way is to outsource the job to the lowest bidder who usually pays minimum wage with no benefits. These differences aren't limited to basic services. Democrats and Republicans have vastly different values and policy positions on a range of municipal issues, including affordable housing, climate action, policing, DEI initiatives, multimodal transit, land use and zoning, and more. For example, you know, as a Democrat, I'm really excited that President Biden has proposed a $10 billion state and local grant program to incentivize local municipalities to eliminate exclusionary zoning. Trump, on the other hand, strongly opposes eliminating exclusionary zoning and often uses racist dog whistles and fear tactics to stir up the opposition. So it's clear that there are important partisan divisions on city matters. Therefore, party labels provide a crucial piece of information to voters sing signaling a candidate's values and policy positions. Why on earth would we want to take that information away from voters? Some suggest that because everyone runs as a Democrat here, the information is irrelevant. While Democrats have dominated Ann Arbor politics in recent history, that wasn't always the case. And we can't simply assume that 
the tides could never turn again, even if right now it seems unlikely. When we consider charter changes, we must think of a range of possible situations, not just the one facing us at this exact moment in time. I don't want to deprive future voters of important information, such as party affiliation, in a competitive two-party race. Earlier today, I came across uh, a great graphic, from, and you can Google it, uh, from a study at Brigham Young, Brigham Young University. It's titled, Oh No, I've Elected a Republican. And it presents the study's conclusion. Using data from over 15,300 US cities, they found that nonpartisan elections allow minority party candidates to sneak into office in cities where their party is unpopular. As to turnout, even there, there are concerns. Studies have shown that nonpartisanship de uh, depresses turnout because many voters simply skip the nonpartisan section. There are better ways to increase voter participation. Moving council races to even years and no reason absentee voting have pr both provided a big boost. And we passed a charter amendment recently for ranked choice voting with party labels. So we are ready if and when that is ever allowed. That will ultimately be the best avenue for increasing participation without causing collateral damage to the process as this proposal would. Councilmember Adina. Thank you, Mayor. In addition to everything that Councilmember Iyer just said, I will also be opposing this resolution tonight. Uh, strongly encourage my colleagues to do the same. There is nothing currently preventing Ann Arbor from having robust local general elections. Our mayor is in the midst of his own general election campaign. Each of Ann Arbor's three county commissioners have general election opponents. All six of the state legislative districts in Ann Arbor have multiple candidates running in November. The only thing that has, has recently prevented the city from having competitive general elections is a lack of credible Republican, independent, or third party candidates willing to step forward and make the case to the electorate about why they should shift away from Democratic candidates. So while this proposal would not enable general elections, what it would accomplish is to reduce the influence that Democratic voters have in those elections. It almost guarantees that Ann Arbor elections will become more expensive by extending many campaigns by an additional three months. It reduces the amount of information available to voters on the ballot. It would shift power away from voters to select their party's nominees and instead empower a handful of local party insiders to hand select de facto nominees through their more exclusive endorsement processes. But most dangerously, it would severely reduce voter participation in our local general elections, increase the amount of time it takes to vote, and make it harder for voters to select their preferred candidates. Specifically, this proposal has the potential to disenfranchise up to tens of thousands of current Ann Arbor voters in every local election. With Michigan's highly popular straight ticket voting option, approximately 50% of voters cast straight ticket ballots in every election cycle. In 2020, 55% of Ann Arbor voters, or just under 100. 20,000 people voted straight ticket. 73% of them were Democrats. This process empowers voters with the single stroke of their pen to cast an informed general election ballot for every single candidate carrying their preferred party's designation in a matter of seconds. Anyone with experience in elections knows that there is a considerable voter drop-off in nonpartisan races, either because voters are less clear about which candidates may share their values, or because of fatigue as voters try to work their way race through it, by race through the ballot. This will be especially true in an election where voters who are used to voting in this way are suddenly stripped of this ability. In Ann Arbor, the evidence to support this is considerable. Because of the nature of our electorate, it also overwhelmingly impacts Democratic voters. In 2020 alone, more than 80% of voters 
voters who cast their ballots in every ward participated in their council races. But in a citywide nonpartisan judicial race, fewer than 55% of voters who cast their ballots participated in that election. This pattern holds true cycle after cycle, with massive voter drop-off in nonpartisan elections of all types. Finally, student voter, voters can and should vote in Ann Arbor's elections, should they choose. With our clerk's increased campus presence, new laws to make absentee voting easier and more accessible than ever, and student participation in the 2020 election shattering previous records, student voters who want to participate can and should participate. So while I support making our elections more accessible to student Council voters, Member? I cannot support a proposal that purports to do so by making it harder for Council everyone Member? to participate in their local elections. For these reasons and other, I will be voting no tonight. Councilmember Nelson. I'm sorry, Councilmember Hainer then Nelson. Well, thanks, Mr. Mayor. That is some, well, we got some first-rate fear-mongering going on here. First-rate. In Ann Arbor, the democratic way to fill a pothole is infrequently and at great expense. A simple look at our roads can tell you that. 50,000 students are exempted from participating in the primary, which is essentially where this body is seated, and a handful of party insiders and donors already determine the outcomes of our local elections. A candidate whose political aspirations cannot survive outside of a partisan label is a poor candidate. The big D means less and less, especially if you look around the policies that are adopted by this body. And I'm just going to put it out there that I ran in a Democratic primary and I had an opponent who ran as an independent and ran a fine campaign and we had good conversations about it. And I would have been just as happy with or without the D in front of my name. Because a uh, senile 80-year-old white man does not represent the soul of my nation. President Biden does not represent the, my soul. And you all cling to him because he has the largesse, the federal dollars that you hope trickle down to this body. Just like we cling to the Democratic label because of the state dollars and the funding that comes with it and the union votes and the union support. But you cling to partisanship at your own peril. We risk turning our city, and I fear it's too late, and indeed our whole country, pitting great portions of us against each other, all for partisanship. It makes no sense. Now, of course, I'm going to be asked to be added as a co-sponsor of this, just like I did the previous times we brought this forward, when it was vetoed by the mayor, and that veto was upheld by uh, the slimmest majority here on council that he held. I think nonpartisan elections are perfectly appropriate, and so does every city except three in the state of Michigan, including Ann Arbor. What do they all know that we don't know, or is it the other way around? We're so arrogant here in this community that we think it's the other way around, that we're leading some kind of cause. But what we really are is clinging to partisan labels and divisiveness, and if this would have anything to do with making that go away, I would support it because... Um, the people I hear from are tired of it. So I'm going to support this, of course. Thank you. Councilmember Graham. I'm sorry, Councilmember Nelson. 
I, you know, I, I wasn't sure the purpose of putting this on the agenda, but I want to, I want to thank Councilmember Griswold for urging it because I've, I've been highly entertained um, to listen to some of the talking points that we've had tonight. Um, we had, a, we had a public speaker describe how nonpartisan elections were going to favor candidates with means. And that same public speaker collected $33,000 from bank busting campaigns this summer. Um, I, I, we're supposed to be alarmed that um, no, November nonpartisan elections only have 55% particip participation. And yet our primaries in August had 25% participation. <laughs> um, I, I, I'm going to support this. People who understand how politics are actually happening in this town support this and understand that the real meaning of the D. Um, I have learned the four years that I've been on council challenging property interests, how little real progressive mindedness is happening here. I, you can't you can't push for public investment in a pedestrian path. You can't push back on landlords that are depleting our housing supply. We have to craft exceptions for the investors who, I mean, I, 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 I we know how everybody is going to vote. I, I mean, I appreciate that people wrote speeches and are really proud of themselves, um, but the the idea that the, this. Uh, I, I, this is, I, thank you, thank you, Kathy, for putting this on the agenda, and thank you for letting me co-sponsor it. Councilmember Dish. Uh, this is a, I think, a very interesting discussion. Um, so the figure citing drop-off in nonpartisan judicial elections are real; they're not fear-mongering, and. Um, my colleagues at the university, among the many things that they are pioneers in studying, it is uh, how voters form preferences, how they um, identify where they're going to place their vote. And many voters rely on cues rather than firsthand information to decide their votes. And party ID is a, is a predominant cue. So you can take party ID away, um, as is the case in other cities in Michigan, as is the case in uh, Chicago, Illinois, with which I'm familiar. Um, and what people will do is they will find park proxies for party ID. And one of the most powerful proxies for party ID is name recognition. So. Nonpartisan elections demonstrably favor incumbents. And one of the ways in which, I mean, I know that proponents of this reform would like to see our electoral system be more competitive. competitive competitiveness is measured in several ways. One would be inter-party competition. We don't have that now. We did, we could again, as Councilmember Iyer suggested. But another way that competitiveness is measured is whether you can, uh, whether challengers prevail against incumbents. We've seen that Ann Arbor is robust by that measure. In 2018, in 2020, and in 2022, there, was, uh, there were robust challenges to incumbents. So I think that there are, you know, it is, it is always impossible to, to project 
what, your, what effect your reforms are going to have. I think there are good arguments for preserving party ID where we have it. Council McGrand. Thank you. Um, I, I have been really fascinated with some of the local nonpartisan elections that are coming up on the ballot this November because I hear from a lot of residents and, and voters that they're incredibly confused. I think if you look at the school board election, for example, where we have 13 candidates and people are looking at websites to see if they self-identify and what kinds of cues are they picking up on. And, and one of the things that, that voters may look to instead are, are endorsements from parties. And that's, if we want to talk about an insider process, um, you have to know to ask for it. Um, often those votes come down to who rallied their, the best, you know, the highest number of supporters to come to a meeting who were members of the Michigan Democratic Party and knew to come and were abled and privileged to be able to come to that meeting. So to me, that's a much more convoluted process than just an example of, of why I'll be voting no for this. Um, I also just want to um, respond to Councilmember Hainer, who, who to my knowledge was actually elected um, by the voters. And so if all of us were um, voted in as a result of, um, you know, a few political insiders, I guess that means that you were also voted in as a result of, you know, the influence of a few political insiders. Um, I'm saying that it's ridiculous, of course, but um, so are lots of the conspiracies that are thrown out at this table. Councilmember Meyer. Thanks. I wanted to address the comments about uh, other cities having it figured out and, you know, that we are somehow an outlier. Um, it's funny that Boulder was mentioned because progressive Democrats in that town are actually working right now to change their election cycle from odd years to even. Aurora, Colorado, population 385,000, uh, a Democratic council member is proposing a move to even-year partisan elections. Uh, he called nonpartisan races, quote, a beautiful dream but unrealistic, and said conducting partisan races would be more honest with voters. I quite agree. Uh, and in Austin, which is also mentioned in the resolution, they moved from at-large council elections to geographic-based districts in 2014, like we've long had here in Ann Arbor. So clearly there are other cities out there, benchmark cities even, uh, that we consider, uh, that are becoming more like us rather than the other way around. Councilmember Regina. Thank you, Mr. Mayor. I, you know, I'm, I'm disappointed by some of the comments tonight because it's this continued theme that we continue to hear from a few of my colleagues that whenever folks disagree with them or voters disagree with them that they are somehow either lacking in understanding or completely misinformed rather than simply disagreeing with someone's position. Um, we heard that again tonight that people who really understand would, would know to support this. Um, I think that the voters of Ann Arbor are pretty informed. Um, I've worked in, in elections all over the state. Um, Ann Arbor has incredibly informed voters. Um, and so I think continuing to, to dismiss voters um, is disappointing. Um, I also want to address the fact that the suggestion tonight, the, the, the attack on one of our public speakers who represents a labor organization, um, Organizations representing local workers 
uh, are able to participate in our local elections as well. The fact that organizations representing local workers would want to support candidates in an election that might also support local workers should not be surprising to anyone. Um, I, again, I think it's disappointing when we see this continued trend of people attacking anyone who might disagree with them as either corrupt or misinformed. Um, it, it, finally, this notion that the argument of reduced general election turnout by the magnitude of thousands of votes, tens of thousands of votes, is not important because primary elections have relatively low turnout. Uh, you know, <laughs> again, there is nothing stopping us from currently having robust general elections, aside from the fact that candidates are not choosing to file outside of the Democratic Party. Currently, we have a race that's happening for mayor. There is an independent candidate running against Mayor Taylor. Whether or not that election is going to be close is going to depend on the voters. But what this would have, what, what the impact Member. of this would have is re reducing the general election turnout Council by Member. eliminating Democratic voters, straight ticket Democratic voters. The, the effort here is Council to Member. reduce the influence of straight ticket Democratic voters. Councilmember Ramlawi. Oh, wow, we touched a nerve. Um, you know, if anyone's dismissing the, the intelligence of voters, it's those who don't want to allow the voters to decide on this. We, we are keeping the voters from weighing in on this matter. You know, so... Anyhow, what we've seen here is just um, an acceleration of concentration of wealth and power in the political system here in Ann Arbor. Started many years ago, and it continues to gain steam. If you don't come up through a political vein here locally, that is controlled by a handful of individuals with vast amounts of money and resources, you'll never get a chance to sit up here. This table, this table welcomes diversity as long as they are okay with it. If, if you don't fit the mold, then good luck. May I call absolute the power corrupts absolute. And I think we've reached a point here locally where that's the only thing that's going to allow for greater political participation. You know, we keep hearing about the other side. You know, it's like there's only two parties. Like that's, that's, that, there's a huge failure in this country, in this society because of the two-party system. You know, if, if, if you don't, if you're not a Democrat, you have to be a Republican. 
like, like there's no other choice, right? No, there's there's many different choices. And again, this is to give it to the voters to decide. We're not making this decision. This would simply send this to the voters. And then all these arguments that are being put forth can be put forth during the during the election, during the campaign, and, and, and then of course have the informed voter make the decision. We're not making that decision for them. What we're here is, I think we've got a lot of people who are scared to take this and let the voters make that decision. Council member? I'm so confident in your position, let the voters decide. Council member Briggs. I think Council member Griswold had a call to question prior to. Uh, I don't believe everyone has, as I recollect, our call to question uh, I'll withdraw it. It's fine. Okay. We can pontificate. Yeah, not everyone has spoken yet. Councilmember Briggs. Okay. Um, so, you know, I think the only folks that I've heard clamoring for nonpartisan elections are, are folks that are at the council table. Um, I have not heard a big outpouring uh, on this issue from, from the electorate. Um, rather, I think that um, from my experience, the electorate at large is, is a pretty, um, pretty proud of being a democratic um, town. And as others have mentioned, um, there's nothing stopping candidates from, from running um, if other party labels. Um, I think a lot of great points have been made. One point that hasn't been made yet um, around what happens um, when the partisan label is removed is um, what other, you know, one of the cues that people, that researchers have found that, that voters turn to is the ethnicity of, of individuals' names. And who that ends up favoring um, is white upper class residents, um, largely. So I think one of the, the pieces that, that we can be proud of um, in Ann Arbor is that we have in our incoming um, council, the most diverse council, I believe, in Ann Arbor history. Um, I, we have nine women coming in, two African-Americans, two there will be, when the sitting council will be two African-Americans, two Asian-Americans, um, one, LGBTQ um, member, um, you know, this is something that we can be proud of in Ann Arbor, that um, what, our, what our elections are resulting in, and I'm not anxious to, um, to change, that, change that model, especially um, when that seems to be only being called for at the council table. Councilmember Hainer. Thanks. Yeah, nobody wants to change anything that keeps them in power. It's okay. To put a, to put a, this is all about putting a question before the well-informed voters. You're afraid to do that? There's something going on there. I think we know that in a general election with straight ticket state voting in this community that really somebody who doesn't have a D in front of their name doesn't have a chance. Now, setting aside the comments that nonpartisan elections are racist and classist, which I don't agree with. Um, I think there was a very good description at this table from my colleague about the concerns that uh, exist currently with our partisan election system. You could be a candidate like myself, and you could go to the endorsement meeting, and you could have uh, a couple 
couple council members show up and muster up all their people and violate the Washtenaw County Dems rules to be allowed to get a voting card that very day and drag a bunch of people to that meeting who weren't members until that very day and pay your 20 bucks and sign them up that very day to try and keep somebody like me off the ballot so I don't get endorsed, I don't get in the newspaper that circulated to 20,000 residences here. And she said it was like a bad thing, you know? Well, if it's a bad thing, let's get rid of that. And of course, seven of you voted to kick me off this body twice, and yet here I stand with a D in front of my name. And we didn't have straight ticket voting when I ran. They had to fill in that bubble in front of me. And they had a choice. Now, I would suspect that some of the votes that went to my opponent were the 1,200 some people who voted for the Trump ticket in that same year, thinking it was a Republican under the guise of an independent. Of course, they couldn't have been more mistaken about that. And it's just as well, I, I thought we had a great election debate, you know series of debates and conversations, but uh, this is just the fear of putting something before the voters is just, I, it's unfathomable Council. to me. Council. It's unexplainable except to consider that there is a very good fear that the way of life that we have so much enjoyed will go away. Councilmember Song. I believe I'm the only person at this table who's actually been elected in a nonpartisan election um, with, I think, almost 27,000 votes uh, through the Ann Arbor District Library. That was in 2016. My race cost $700. Um, larger catchment. We're talking about the city, the townships. It's the same geography as the school district and their school board race, which is also nonpartisan. So I guess I'm going to just kind of speak to how we've been on a steady path towards fighting voter disenfranchisement since Trump. And I'm really proud of our community for stepping up. I was on the executive uh, committee for Promote the Vote. That, and if we, if we can thank our city clerk for all the work she's done in improving access to absentee ballots, that's part of the work of nonpartisan groups, ACLU, League of Women Voters. Um, we've seen the fruit of that labor being born. We've seen promote, uh, voters, not politicians, fighting for this right to get on the ballot. Um, there are party issues that our community is concerned about, greatly concerned about. And whether they're identifying candidates and folks who will determine our quality of living how they choose the community they live in. I think they look for representatives that reflect their values. If other parties want to reflect different values, I think we've seen that. And I think I'm really proud of our city to stand up to make sure that our most disenfranchised folks have access to the ballot, understand our values when it comes to uh, undocumented folks, when, it, when there, there are issues that came up from 2016 until now, and a lot of us have been on the doors for different candidates, we name Debbie Dingle here often at this table, Yusuf Rabi. We name county commissioners when we talk about social service agency funding. We know folks are fighting for every single dollar at the state, for every vote to make sure that we are fairly represented. For the first time in almost 40 years, Democrats will have 
the chance to come to a majority because of redistricting. And for Ann Arbor to step aside and say, we're actually not part of that conversation? Is that where we are now? Is this how we report back to our constituents and say, these values that we fought for from 2016 until now can be put aside. So we are now like the library and like the school board. I don't think that's the case. I think when folks look at the voter guide, they watch the debates, they check. We are not the city that's gonna be talking about the forward party. What are we talking about here? We are all elected as Democrats, all of us. Councilor. Councilor Grant. Thanks, um, just quickly, you know, if we look at what this resolution is actually asking to do, it's asking to put something before the voters to change the charter. And that's supposed to be a, you know, deliberative process. If it doesn't happen at the council table, there is a means of, you know, gathering signatures. But part of our responsibility as council members is if we do choose to put something on the charter, we don't do it because we're baited and asked if we're scared what would happen. We do it, not because we're baited, but because, and you know, after we've all sat together for four years, I would hope you would, some of you would understand that I'm actually not scared um, by anything that you say. And, um, but that we do it because, because we really think that this is something that the voters should consider and deliberate and have a community conversation around. Um, that's what a charter amendment is. And that's the responsibility as a council member. So, so refusing to put something on the ballot just because someone says like, hey, are you scared? And like, we should do this. It should be a, a much more serious process. Councilman Nelson. I appreciate that perspective quite a lot. And the community conversation that I see this resolution pushing us towards is understanding what that D now means in our local community. Between, between 2018 and 2020, the cost of our campaigns, the money invested in our campaigns, suddenly dominated by large money donors, tripled and quadrupled. And it wasn't just an anomaly because of the pandemic. This is the new reality. There are people in our community who are talking about, you know, just tonight when we were, all of the activists who were talking about right to renew, they are keenly aware of how much resistance there was to tenants' rights when we started conversations a year ago. And so much feedback they got were about consulting with property owners and trying to see which way the wind was blowing in terms of profit interests in this town. That's the conversation, the thoughtful conversation that I actually do believe that our community is smart enough to have. And I actually don't know that fundamentally um, anyone will be at such a disadvantage, um, those folks who have been able to leverage so much money. Um, it, it may be that all of that money can be leveraged in exactly the same way without the D label. And so I, I, I guess I would disagree with Councilmember Romlawi in the idea that anyone might be scared. Um, I am surprised that, that people would be reluctant to put this on the ballot because to hear people talk at this table, it's such a preposterous idea. Surely our very, very smart community would just reject, reject it out of hand. Um, but I, 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 can we call the question now? Has everyone spoken? Because I, I mean, is that possible if everyone has spoken? We've got Council Member Radine uh, Ramlawi still in the queue. And, and, 
Councilor Griswold. I just want to thank staff, especially Matt Thomas, um, who's still with us. Is there any objection to calling the question? Roll call vote. To make it quick, but I can wait. Roll call vote, please turn it to Councilmember Dish. Mayor, this is a roll call vote to call the question, or? I'm sorry, thank you. No, 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 I think I, I think we're just rolling with the, 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 the vote on the main motion, unless anyone. I, I, if, okay. I would like to, an opportunity. Councilmember Rumlau. Um, again, this has no chance in passing. We, we, we visited this twice before, it's been vetoed. This has zero chance. This was brought up forward um, partly for, for entertainment, I guess, um, venting, frustration. Um, I do think there needs to be a change in the political structure here locally. And I hope to join others in gathering signatures to bring this question to the voters. Um, this same issue, not the same issue, but the issue that, that this council didn't want to put forward something so voters had to go out and collect signatures has been done before. And I think there's enough community sentiment to do it again. All it takes is a thousand signatures in each ward. That's all, folks. We'll all be unemployed from, from this table here shortly. <laughs> it's time to get some signatures. Council Versong. So let's talk about money in local politics. The maximum gift for local races is 1,050 from a donor. You also have to disclose your employer. Um, let's talk about money in Michigan, politics in Michigan, and the expense to run ballot initiatives to, say, protect reproductive freedom, to protect our voter rights. Uh, it costs money for grassroots organizers, for mailers, and aren't we lucky to have folks care enough about our city, our libraries, or our state to fight for, for essential rights? I think if you talk to folks who give five, 10, $15 to each one of us, I think the majority of us had donations of less than $100. Um, please look that up and, and correct me if that's wrong, if that's incorrect. But I think I've said this before, campaigns don't pay for themselves. Signs don't pay for themselves. And if we're talking about coming out of some very difficult times from six years ago, I'm really glad that folks are paying attention now because look how far we've come. Look how far we've come. Those are, those are investments that everyday people have made in this community because they're afraid and they feel like it's, a, it's supporting candidates who speak to their values and who tro show true leadership. So tell me when donations are questionable at city council, for Debbie Dingle, for Jason Morgan, for Sue Schink, for Yusuf Rabi, are those, are those, for Debbie Stabenow, Senator Peters, 
Arian Slay. Where is it? Where is it dark money? When does it become dark money? I think we can answer that question. For the discussion, roll call vote on the main motions, please, starting with Councilmember Dish. Councilmember Dish? No. Councilmember Griswold? Yes. Councilmember Song? No. Councilmember Grant? No. Councilmember Rodina? No. Mayor Taylor? No. Councilmember Iyer? No. Councilmember Nelson? Yes. Councilmember Briggs? No. Councilmember Ramlawi? Yes. Councilmember Hayner? Yes. Motion fails. DC4, resolution to revise chapter 40, rights of way, street trees, vegetation management. Moved by Councilmember Griswold, second by Councilmember Hayner. Discussion of DC4. Uh, this is asking staff to bring forward revisions to Chapter 40, which has been under review for over a year now. Uh, I don't expect it to come back until after TC1 is approved because part of what it specifies has to do with site distance triangles. And we can't very well revise Chapter 40 to have valid site distance triangles when we just passed TC1 that totally ignores uh, site distance. So anyway, I want to thank all the staff who've worked on this. I want to thank the Environmental Commission, the Energy Commission, the Transportation Commission, uh, the Legal Department. Uh, I feel like I'm at the Oscars, but there are many people to thank. And I hope that we can bring it forward in the near future. Councilor Hainer. Thanks. I'd like to be added as a sponsor because, you know, Kathy's kind of doing, or Councilwoman Griswold is kind of doing this because, um, you know, it has been over a year since I offered some modest changes to Chapter 40, the essence of which was to not, no longer punish people who were trying to have food gardens in their front yard that it, perhaps exceeded 18 inches in height or wanted to have, um, you know, wildflower or pollinator gardens that existed outside of the language of Chapter 40, which is very restrictive. And I mean, I can't, after tonight's conversations, I can't even compare, pick an apt analogy, but you would have thought I was uh, uh, trying to get Trump elected again or whatever, you know? The way I just wanted to add, add a few words to this Chapter 40. And it must have hit home somehow. Everybody lost it. And I'm sure Community Standards is quite busy hustling around town, taping tickets to people's front doors if their, their average height on a median is in excess of 18 inches. But as I said at the time when I offered the first Chapter 40 changes, if you have a 60-foot tree and a bunch of 3-inch grass, your average height is in excess of 18 inches. And so the language of Chapter 40 was written in such a way as to invite uh, the catastrophic interpretation and create a sort of a narc system with your neighbors. Somebody doesn't like you, they call community standard and tell them your grass is too high. Well, our grass should be too high everywhere if we want to continue to live on this planet because to, to restrict food gardens, to restrict pollinator gardens, and all the things that we were doing with Chapter 40 is a big mistake when it comes to uh, biodiversity and sustainability and climate action. And so I appreciate this coming forward to kind of move the needle along because uh, we are well overdue to embrace uh, front yard gardens, front yard pollinator gardens, and, and, and the like. So of course I support this. Thank you. 
further discussion? Councilmember Dish? Yeah, I'm just a little confused. Um, the language of the resolution is, um, the resolve clause is that the revisions to Chapter 42nd, Section 3 be presented to Council for consideration not later than the second meeting in October. Am I, am I reading from the wrong draft? Okay, so, and you said you want them to bring it back in the near future. So I'm not sure we need to either amend this language or... I was expecting a friendly amendment from you. Okay, I'm happy to make a friendly <laughs> amendment. <laughs> I'm sorry, we didn't no. totally communicate. I thought you said that was already done. Okay, so I'd like to amend the re resolve clause to say that the revisions to Chapter 40, Section 3 be presented to Council for consideration by the first meeting in October. Uh, November. Me. Yeah. November. <laughs> the first meeting in November, yeah. Is that... Is that that's that's friendly. Second right. by Councillor Griswold. Is that friendly to the body? Sure. I assume staff has no concerns with that, Mr. Dahoney. Thank you. I'm not aware of any issues with it. Thank you. Councillor Griswold? Uh, the legal department has been coordinating this uh, most recently. And, and what, one of the purposes is to reduce staff effort, to make it very clear what's allowed and what isn't allowed so that you don't have to have a transportation engineer go out and, and measure whatever they measure. And you don't have to have a landscape expert go out there and determine if what you're growing is really natural or not, that all of this will be specified probably in accompanying procedures or educational material. Uh, but most importantly, I would like to see proactive enforcement. We have school crosswalks that I have complained about. The vegetation exceeds six feet right at the curb. And if we have proactive enforcement and it's consistently enforced, that will just be the way we do it in Ann Arbor and that will take the burden off the community standards department. So I, I thank the legal department again, and hopefully we'll have this completed soon. Further discussion? Councilmember Briggs. I guess I, I would just appreciate a little bit of feedback from staff around it now the now it's under consideration for the first meeting in November. I assume that there have been some perhaps um, some reasons for um, the time it's been taking, but does this seem like a reasonable timeline well I, I think um, I, I just wanted to uh, say that yes it does seem like a reasonable timeline and I think we kind of indicated that um, in a, a uh, question regarding the agenda that was addressed um, that we answered although I, I at the beginning of this discussion there was some um, relating the chapter 40 to TC1 and something about it waiting until TC1 was resolved and so I want to make sure that I understand that because right now the first meeting in November is when the TC1 consideration would also be coming back uh, because it's a zoning ordinance, so it will come back in 30 days. So is there a, were you trying to have some conclusion to the TC1 discussion before this took place? No, I, I appreciate what you're doing and this is fine. 
Okay. The relation to CC1 is that we are approving a zoning category that is in violation of site distance standards. And I hope that when we do pass Chapter 40, it will be, be very clear what standards we're using. But the two are totally separate. Excellent. Thank you. Councillor Briggs, you still have the floor. I'll, uh, of course, observe, uh, I'll, of course, observe that uh, we are not approving TC1 uh, at the first meeting in November, that the TC1 designation already exists, and it is not going to be amended by anything we do uh, in November. What we are doing is we are altering the map uh, the, to which uh, identifying new parcels to which uh, the TC1 designation may, uh, may apply. Further discussion? Mr. Dehoney. Um, I'd like to ask the question for clarification. Um, I thought I heard Councilmember Griswold say there would be um, aggressive, proactive enforcement separate from community standards. Is that correct? No, not necessarily separate, but it would start with education and notices and develop into a standard. And I'll leave that up to the legal department for what they're, they're planning there. there well, I, I can simply say this, at least as it stands now, there's, there's no um, different approach to enforcement. It would still be enforced by community standards. I think the idea behind some of what we are drafting is to try to simplify this section of ordinance as much as possible so that it could be more effectively um, enforced by community standards. Uh, I think Councilmember Hayner had mentioned some of the, I'll say, um, uh, some of the language in the ordinance as it stands right now is not the most, it's just not the easiest to enforce. Uh, some of it requires, I'll just say, uh, um, uh, some subjectivity, and that's what's been causing some issues with the ordinance. So we're trying to address that as part of that. But it should be easier to enforce by the same department. There's no expansion of enforcement. It's just a matter of trying to get it to be clear language that can be enforced by community standards who is responsible for their enforcement now. For the discussion, roll call vote, please turn with council member Dish. Council member Dish? Yes. Council member Griswold? Yes. Council member Song? Yes. Council member Graham? Yes. Council member Dina? Yes. Mayor Taylor? Yes. Council member Iyer? Yes. Council member Nelson? Yes. Councilmember Briggs? Yes. Councilmember Malawi? Yes. Councilmember Hayner? Yes. Motion carries. DC 5, resolution to approve the City of Ann Arbor Affordable Housing Agreement for the standard. Moved by Councilmember Dish, seconded by Councilmember Rodina. Discussion, please, of DC 5. Councilmember Hayner. Thanks, just for the listening public who's hanging in there. I'm going to put this in perspective. The standard was allowed to exceed the D1 maximum zoning, which is 700% floor area ratio in exchange for this affordable housing agreement. This affordable housing agreement is giving two bedrooms of the 421 bedrooms in that property over to quote unquote affordable housing. Which about nine, so one half of 1% of that property is gonna be affordable housing and 99.5% is gonna be market rate housing. Now, the way, the, re, the way this 
um, uh, agreement reads, it sets the standard that anyone who can apply for these units can only be making up to 80% of AMI, which in the greater Ann Arbor area here, uh, our, by my calculation, is approximately uh, $81,000 a year. Now, the 30% income calculation that's in there limits or sets the rent. Um, and if I did the calculation right again, I'm not sure I did, it's approximately $1,200 a month for the 600 square, two 600 each for the 600 square foot units. So we saw in Lower Town when they had an affordable housing agreement as part of the PUD that a wait list is created for these properties through the Housing Commission, but that there is no mandate that they select from the bottom of the list helping those who are most in need in our community. Indeed, the developer or the owner of the building is allowed to pick from the top. So they can give a $1,200 apartment to somebody who's making $80,000 a year and call it affordable housing in exchange for getting a much larger square footage building. I don't think that's a good deal for the city. I continue to recommend that we view our housing goals as a percentage of the total. And when you got 99% versus 1%, and if we continue to do this, we are never going to catch up. We're never gonna have the percentage of affordable housing that we need in our community. And so, this is sort of one of those things where we made this deal. We have to kind of approve it. Here it is before us. I don't like it. And just for that fact, I'm going to say no to it. I, I get it. The deal was made. I, I, think it's, I think it's a poor deal on behalf of the taxpayers and the community. Um, so I'm going to say no to it. And I think, it, I think if you understand that we consider affordable somebody making 80 grand a year, you see the problem we have in our community. Council Dish. It's a big no. I have a question for uh, the city attorneys who are here. And I just wanted to clarify about the terms of this deal. Uh, is this not following a formula that is written in the UDC? Yes. Um, it's just, this is really just the, uh, I'll just say the, um, an agreement that spells out the administration of the affordable housing. I believe that this section regarding the affordable housing premium has been actually removed by the council at this point in time. So I think this is one of maybe two properties that will have this particular agreement with this number of affordable housing units. And so as part of their development, they agreed to provide two units at 80% um, at of AMI, and that is what they are doing. Uh, and I think we even had a minimum in there that they'd be 600 square feet. And I think they did some reconfiguration of the property, but these, but these units are actually larger um, or different than the other units only because they, they no longer had that product available, but they're keeping these at 600 square feet as promised to the city. Uh, as part of the original requirement for the premium. Councilmember Iyer. Thank you. Um, I'll, I'll be voting to approve this, but I can't let uh, something from the standard uh, or landmark, the company that built it and uh, will be managing it, 
uh, come before council without expressing my deep dis uh, disgust that they employed an electrical contractor on the project, United Electrical Contractors, who uh, are facing a federal lawsuit from nine former employees for obscenely racist uh, behaviors and practices. Um, and it's so disappointing to me that even after the standard landmark was informed of this, they stood by this company. And it's my understanding that they're using them on their next project. So this is what we've got happening in our community, and it's infuriating. Councilmember Amlawi. Uh, thank you. Um, well, this is extremely disappointing that um, that massive structure that, that exists there today, which we approved, which I supported, um, in which this agreement is just a continuation of a prior agreement, so I will be supporting it because I believe it's important we honor our agreements that we entered into. But all we get is 1,325 square feet of affordable housing. That's it, 1,325 square feet. If you want to call it affordable housing, one bedroom at 1,250 bucks a month. As I said earlier, we're really good at uh, setting policies not really good at achieving our goals. Um, this, uh, thanks to the city attorney for, for reminding me that we did change our uh, premiums. Um, and I have a question for staff whether, has there been any uh, um, developers or properties that have applied under the new set of um, premium standards that were enacted um, in you know two years ago, uh, it's been two years, and at that point we were told that what we did was made it um, even more difficult to deliver unaffordable housing units in the D1, D2 area, and so. My question is, has anybody tried taking advantage of the premiums that were adopted two years ago? Council member, I, I honestly cannot answer that question. I think somebody from planning would have to do so, and I'm not sure that anyone is available now at this time. Um, if, 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 I don't know if Brett, Brett's available, I mean, um, if not, I can ask that question at a later point, but it's just, um, it's important that we know what, what the results are from, from, from our adoption of that policy. Again, I think we've just kind of walked away from it at that point and haven't revisited it. Um, I guess no one's around to answer that question. Um, I will, I think, uh, to, the, to the discuss of my colleague that um, this developer, I think, is going to be um, and is building the new um, building behind the Michigan Theater. So, um, anyhow, Council we got a whopping 1325 in total square footage. For the discussion, 
Roll call vote, please, starting with Councilmember Dish. Councilmember Dish? Yes. Councilmember Griswold? Yes. Councilmember Song? Yes. Councilmember Grant? Yes. Councilmember Rodina? Yes. Mayor Taylor? Yes. Councilmember Iyer? Yes. Councilmember Nelson? Yes. Councilmember Briggs? Yes. Councilmember Ramawi? Yes. Councilmember Hayner? Nope. Motion carries. DC 6 resolution terminating the local state of emergency in response to COVID-19 moved by Councilmember Hayner, second by Council Member Nelson. Discussion please of DC 6, Councilmember Hayner. Yeah, thank you. This is just sort of clean up some loose ends. We had a state emergency declared a while back um, in response to COVID and you might remember those early days of COVID and uh, there were a lot of concerns. Nobody knew what was going on and we felt maybe a state of emergency, we, we may have to call up all sorts of local and state resources and so on. And so I asked our administrator to uh, look into how this state of emergency and the emergency authority granted the mayor had been used um, either internally or you know, facing the community. And there were a handful of ways, but nothing that we can't achieve now through policy or various resolutions. Um, and I just actually circulated to the clerk a minor um, uh, change this. I want to strike one part of one line from this resolution and hopefully she can circulate that uh, potential or the amendment I'm offering up. Um, if it's okay, I will uh, read it while it's being circulated. The final whereas clause says that City Council therefore deems it prudent to continue requiring vaccination for persons appointed to boards and commissions and allowing electronic meetings for certain city boards and commissions. And I, I'm gonna be moving to amend this to strike requiring a vaccination for persons appointed to boards and commissions and allowing. It should read, we deem it prudent to continue electronic meetings for certain city boards and commissions. I don't, I, I believe in various health reporting organizations have said the same that people, if they're, if, they're, if they're vaccinating, they're not gonna vaccinate, they've already had well of a chance to decide that. And I don't think it's prudent or necessary to continue requiring it for members of the public who wanna sit on boards and commissions. I mean, were we really checking cards at the door? We talk a lot at this table and, and I agree with it that um, uh, it's been especially prevalent in the concerns over like say our governor's race right now that um, you know, we want uh, to keep your laws off my body, right? That's what we always used to say. And of course, mandating vaccines is the exact opposite of that. And so it's not a big deal, but I'd like to strike that line. So I move there, to amend my own resolution. Is there resolution. a second to that? Second by Councilmember Amlawi. Discussion of the amendment. Does the attorney's office have any thoughts about whether we should postpone this in light of that amendment? Proposed amendment? Um, the resolution in the very last resolved clause will continue um, to require vaccination. And I do believe that we should retain the authority to do so. That would be my advice. But in any case, if you're going to vote on the amendment and you want to amend the whereas clause, you should be aware that the resolution that's referenced in the resolve clause would probably be interpreted to require vaccination anyway. Well, I appreciate that answer. I certainly understand that. And um, so, I, you know, that's why I wanted to change the one because I don't deem it prudent personally. 
So. So just for, for clarity, what I, what I hear the attorney's office is saying is that resolution 21418 obligates vaccinations and therefore the removal from the where, of the whereas, the removal of vaccination related language from the whereas clause is in the attorney's office view immaterial. The answer is yes. Sorry. Thank you. Is that a friendly amendment? No. Uh, on the cue on the amendment, Council, who wishes to speak? Councilman Nelson on the amendment to the amendment. Um, I'm sorry, no, that's not the amendment. The that's just an amendment. Councilman Nelson. I mean, it, uh, frankly, I, 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 I'm going to just make an assumption that probably everybody at this table knows somebody who has an unexpected opinion about vaccination and and it's puzzling um so i i i do think that it's not entirely i i, I kind of hear what councilmember hanner is saying in terms of um this has been politicized in a way that is um well at any rate i if it's not if if leaving it in is not going to or taking it out is not going to have any operative effect i would rather keep it in because it is a it is a statement of what I am perfectly happy to stand behind as a belief, which is that vaccinations are something that we believe in enough to require of our board and commission members. And, and so I, I, I oppose taking it out. I, I, I particularly intentionally taking it out. Perhaps if it had not been in there in the first place, I would not have made the effort to add it, but affirmatively taking it out, I'm not willing to do. Count, further discussion? Council member Ramlawi, then Hainer. Yeah, I mean, it's getting very late. It's unfortunate we're going to be going into closed session to talk about a very important issue um, at midnight. Um, this all, to me, is kind of um, a mute point. I do want to take this opportunity to express the concerns that I have on the vaccine. I've been vaccinated, boosted. Um, but I do know three people who have heart problems that are directly related to the vaccination. So, um, you know, I know um, this board has spoken resoundly on their position with vaccinations, but I also know three people that have uh, heart problems because of vaccination. So do as you wish. But these are the realities. Thank you. Councilmember Hayner. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with what Councilwoman and co-sponsor Nelson said. I, I wouldn't have put that in there in the first place, but it came out like that. It was already added to the agenda, and so I suggested that I would make this motion at the table. I just, like I say, I personally don't think it's prudent and, and necessary. And you may recall when all this bounced around prior to us, I asked 10 questions of our city attorney's office, a previous city attorney's office, um, office nonetheless, and um, six of them were answered publicly and four of them were answered privately. And of course, all the good stuff was in the four that were answered privately, and I'll just leave it at that. And so do we have the authority even to do this? It's still 
a question for the courts, and hopefully it won't come to that. So I just I'm, I don't care either way. The important thing is that I it has not been shown that there has been any excellent effect based on this local state of emergency uh, authorization. And so I just I just figured we should we should be rid of it for now. And when you look at what other countries are doing, and like I mean Canada is getting rid of, of vaccination mandates for travelers and. Uh, just as a one, but one example, um, you know, I just don't think it's necessary anymore that we we hold a state of emergency. That that's the bottom line here. So I I don't care how you go either way on this. I'm I'm going to vote to remove it, of course. On the amendment, roll call vote, please. Turn to Councilmember Dish. Councilmember Dish. No. Councilmember Griswold. No. Councilmember Song. No. Councilmember Grant. No. Councilmember Dion? No. Mayor Taylor? No. Councilmember Iyer? No. Councilmember Nelson? No. Councilmember Briggs? No. Councilmember Romali? No. Councilmember Hayner? Yes. Motion fails. For the discussion, the main motion. Councilmember Hayner. Well, thanks. I just again, I would urge urge folks to consider um, passing this to remove that. As you can see by the final resolve clause, your wishes to mandate vaccines for folks are still in order, and. Um, uh, you know, it's really something uh, not to speak to that aspect of it too much longer. But uh, I mean, I I surely would guess that everyone at this table knows someone who's vaccinated and has come down with COVID. So, you know, it's going to come out in the wash in the future. We'll find out what what the efficacy of this whole deal really was. Um, and, you know, it's unfortunate that, um, you know, the. the that it has had such an outsized impact on the nation and really the world. And, and um, you know, it's washing out to be about a, you know, less than 1% or whatever uh, fatality rate for this. But nonetheless, if it's, if it's your, your dad or something that's at 1%, it's, it's, a, it's a real deal. So I appreciate everybody's consideration for this. Thank you. For the discussion, Councilmember Dish. I just have a, I think a quick question, which is, the resolution that remains in effect by the res final resolve clause, does it need the declaration of the state of emergency as a basis for that policy? Or, have, or does this really not make, really doesn't make a material change to our practices? The resolution would have needed the local state of emergency. That's why we're carving it out and um, asking you to leave that in place. It would have sunset when the state of emergency gets terminated, which is the reason to call it out and leave it in place. Roll call vote, please, starting with Councilmember Council Ramlawi. I drive some of you guys crazy and, 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 and others, um, but I move to just strike that last resolve clause. What? No. Is there a second? The motion to amend fails for want of a second. Further discussion? The main motion? Roll call vote, please, starting with Councilmember Dish. Councilmember Dish? No. Councilmember Griswold? Yes. Councilmember Song? No. Councilmember Grand? No. Councilmember Rodina? No. 
Mayor Taylor? Yes. Councilmember Iyer? Mm. No. Councilmember Nelson? Yes. Councilmember Briggs? We are voting on the this whole. Is the main motion. Okay, just want to make sure. Yes. Councilmember Omawi? Yes. Councilmember Hayner? Yes. Motion carries. DC 7, resolution in support of improved safety barriers at parking decks. Moved by Councilmember Nelson, seconded by Councilmember Hayner. Discussion, please, of DC 7. Councilmember Nelson. Thank you. Um, this Saturday, I visited uh, several parking garages. Um, because of our community member, Mr. Eckstein, who is particularly concerned about this issue and cares about the danger of folks who are in um, a tough state of mind, a temporary state of mind, and are finding an opportunity to hurt themselves at our parking decks. Um, I have not been following this issue closely. I'm grateful for community members who educate me about issues like this one. Uh, Mr. Eckstein and I visited parking decks and looked at locations where people had previously fallen or jumped. Um, one location, I, I can't remember which deck it was at, um, he was very alarmed to notice that, like, to look in, in old photographs that he had from several years ago and see that the conditions had not been improved. Um, I do appreciate that we have a lot of issues that um, we are balancing now, um, but I, it, this resolution is, is basically urging and asking um, the DDA, DDA to follow through with um, activities that we sort of, we asked them to pursue already in 2017. Um, I, I saw with my own eyes, like we have um, chain link fencing on rooftops that are, don't have anything atop them. Um, if I was a bit younger and fitter, I, I can see myself climbing over those fences quite easily. Um, they are a danger and a hazard. And um, this is an opportunity for us to protect members of our community. Um, it, like I said, it's just a resolution urging the DDA to take steps and look at this problem seriously. I hope everybody can support it. Councilmember Hayner. Thanks, when you look at what happened last time, and they basically, we, we had change, changes in the bidding environment and, and um, great discrepancies between our uh, in-house estimations and the contracts that came back in response to the request for proposals kind of shelved this and so they sort of did something it wasn't sadly it wasn't enough and there may have been lost opportunities in there as prices change I, I wish it would have been constantly being looked at and I, I can't let it go by without saying that you know the million dollar set aside that I wanted for our ARPA funds would have been perfect for this because it's clear that the pandemic has affected people in 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 ways that are you know, could very well be tied to this type of thing. And so, um, but that, you know, it, the DDA has has some cash. They've lost some money with the lost parking over the last couple of years and so on. But I think that, I think it's right and um, to ask them to please uh, get it together. If we're going to leave those structures downtown, if they're going to be parking, if they're going to be accessible to people on foot or in car, that they need to be made wholly safe and um you know, let, let's not have to ask a third time, I guess, is what I was thinking when I asked to co-sponsor this. So um, th thank you for your consideration and for putting this together. 
Councilman Lowy. Uh, thanks. Um, yeah, thank, thanks for touching uh, upon the, the fact that um, the pandemic has exasperated underlying conditions that existed for many people suffering from mental health, and, and we're seeing an uptick, unfortunately, in, in preventable deaths, suicide, and, and others. Um, we, we did um, address this as, as, as a city many, many years ago. Um, the cost of, of having a, um, a better solution like we see in Grand Rapids was, was passed on because of the cost and, and the timetable to, to install it. Um, many, many, many years have gone by and unfortunately uh, a few souls have, have taken their lives off the parking decks. I think it's time for us to act. Um, we know that, as, as others have stated, professionals, that this is an impulsive many times, and um, we, we need to um, do what's right. If um, in many, obviously in the right way, concerned with, with traffic fatalities and other deaths in our community, we um, are willing to spend millions of dollars to prevent those. We should be willing to spend a million dollars on our parking garages to prevent these, um, these deaths from occurring. So I hope the DDA is listening, and I hope the DDA takes action and, and, and finally puts um, the right resources in, to uh, install the, the infrastructure that needs to be up there. And, and quite frankly, it should have been up there by now. Thanks. Councilmember Dish. I don't know the history of the negotiations with the DDA, and I am as, um, I can't imagine how it feels to be the family of of someone who um, makes a jump that is either fatal or, or terribly disabling. Um, I am just a little, I just would like a little bit more detail about what would be the cost and where would the budget come from. So it's it's one thing to say we should do this and the DDA should pay for it without talking to them. And if I just, I'm happy to be told that that shouldn't be a consideration and we can go ahead and vote on this because it's an important and strong signal. But, it, but the resolve clause does say um, that we urge them to act. So we're not, it's, it's urging them to act but, but we can't force them back. I mean, could someone interpret the resolved clause for me? That I would find that helpful, just so that I understand what I'm voting on. Because I'm often when we do something like this, there's a budgetary amount attached, and there isn't one here. So I'm just asking for clarification. Have the sponsors affected any outreach to DDA about what this would entail? Is this a question for me or the sponsor? This is this is this is just making a communication to them. We we pass resolutions like this a lot, and it it hopefully will prompt a discussion around the questions that you're raising. And had I had I proposed a funding mechanism that without it going through an actual process with the organization, that would be problematic. This is delegating to the city administrator to have the appropriate conversations around all of those questions. Right. Councilmember Grant. 
Thank you. Um, I was part of council in 2017 when we unanimously passed um, that resolution and it, um, I went back and, and took a look at it over the weekend and, oh, sorry. Yeah, um, and and it, you know, I, I, I do understand why there are some questions around the table because that 2017 resolution had more clarity, it had, um, it had review from staff, um, and I'm assuming legal. So um, I, I truly appreciate the intent of this resolution, but I do find some of the language um, a little fuzzy in terms of, um, you know, for example, anything that could result in serious injury. Um, so I would, I would really like to hear from the DDA, and I'm, I'm hearing from one of the sponsors that the, the intent is to have the city administrator work with the DDA and, um, and do this work, but the resolution doesn't actually say that. Um, so I would propose to, um, to move to refer this to the DDA um, and have them come back to council with a report at date certain and I would look to staff to give us a date for that. I believe the DDA director is on Zoom. Good evening, council members. Uh, this is Jeff Watson, the executive director of the DDA. Um, first, let me say that, that um, uh, we are very sorry um, for the family and, and uh, um, are very concerned about this issue. And, and I just want to let you know that um, from really the moment that we've heard about it, um, uh, we began to talk about um, what are the options and what's the situation. And, and so we've already begun to have conversations around um, exploring uh, options um, to, uh, I guess, enhance the, the deterrent um, on all of the parking garages. And, and so um, uh, we appreciate council's interest and, and um, are uh, already engaged at least at the staff level in conversations and, and will be engaged in conversations with the DDA board. If I can interrupt, the, yeah, jump in the queue super brief. Do, uh, Mr., uh, Mr. Watson, do I infer then uh, happily that, uh, in effect, DDA believes it's already, and you know, happy to pass the resolution if this is the case, but essentially DDA is already underway doing the things that the resolved clause requests? That is correct, yes. Okay. I'm happy to support it on that basis. Uh, I've got Councilmember Song, then Hainer. Um, I was just pointing to Councilmember Grant how I also have the 2017 resolution up at the same time. Um, and that, that resolution ends with that resolve that the current year's DDA budget does not permit immediate action, but the City Council requests that the City Administrator discuss with the DDA alternate sources of funding. So I assume that those expectations of our City Administrator are still in place if we're talking about trying to figure out what potential funding where we can find alternative funding to support ongoing on, ongoing needs or an ongoing response. Is that correct? Maybe I should ask the city administrator. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm not. This is from the 2017 resolution that 
the resolution we're discussing is referring to. So is that still? If I can jump jump in briefly, I, I believe the language of that refers to a specific fiscal year, a specific year. Okay, but not to that not to that specific resolution. Correct. But since that was passed in 2017, it's still that refers someplace. to the 2017 or 2018 fiscal year, year rather than an ongoing engagement. Okay, thank you. Sure. Got Councilmember Hayner and Ramari. Well, I want to thank Mr. Watson for staying up late to comment on this and appreciate that. I, I have no doubt that you guys immediately saw the, the problems that we're having here and are hopefully seeking solutions. I, um, so, and I also appreciate the mayor suggesting that he would support it on that notion alone, and I agree with that. I think it's right that we say, hey, we care about this and we're asking you please to do something. I also can't let it slip by without suggesting that, reminding everyone that we waived the opportunity for an engaged conversation on this when we passed on our annual parking meeting with the DDA most recently. This surely would have been a topic to discuss when we discussed the parking agreements with the DDA. And so there is, here's an unfortunate instance of we ceded our authority and um, now we're having to take a little back. And I would finally suggest that um, ARPA funding may indeed uh, produce um, at least a partial um, donation to this cause. Thank you. Councilmember Ramlawi, and perhaps we can vote on this. You know, repeating the same point that Councilmember just made, we, we were set to have a, a collaborative meeting this month with the DDA to discuss um, shared interest. Um, we, we, we did not take advantage of that opportunity. And, you know, it's so weird hearing some members of council who at times become fiscally conservative and at other times have no problem spending money unaccountably. Um, I've seen the DDA spend millions of dollars on things that are outdated or something that was, you know, more broadly supported, perhaps. Um, I mean, we spent a million dollars on wayward signs 10 years ago in the light of, in, in the age of GPS. We spent, I don't know, I'm guessing four to six million dollars in the recent years in bike lanes. Um, so the money's there. It's whether we want to make it a priority. That's all. Further discussion? Councilor Song. I'd like to know how this is a small community and when these incidences happen, I know uh, in folks who work are actively working in bettering mental health conditions and policies and programs for kids and adults struggling with mental health. It's, it's seasonal. I mean, we've seen this. We've seen county. Uh, the county has presented presentations on this years ago when we had a spate of uh, teen suicides. Um, I just want to note that when we get these calls and notices that these are people in our community, uh, my friends were immediately able to name the family. Um, and I hope that, you know, I appreciate our DDA director beginning this conversation, sharing his condolences first. So we might be referencing budgeting 
out of concern and out of uh, just trying to see if we can come back to these families and say, you know, it was, it was an effort um, when the bigger dilemma is not just the pandemic, but the underfunding of mental health programs and services since Engler. So, I mean, we could go back and we know the depth of the need in this community. So, um, I just don't want to make, I just want to make sure that this is not an, on, the, that the comments following up on this are not unserious or uh, not compassionate. Thanks. For the discussion, roll, uh, all in favor? Opposed? It's approved. Do you have a closed session today? I recognize that it's past midnight, but I'm asking you to please indulge me. I am requesting a closed session under MCL 15.628E to discuss pending litigation. The case is Attorney General et al. and City of Ann Arbor et al. as interveners versus Gelman Sciences, Code of Appeals number 357599, Washtenaw County Circuit Court number 883473434-CE. I'm requesting your indulgence because some deadlines are coming up and I need your guidance. We have a motion please to go into closed session on that basis. Moved by Councilmember Hainer, second by Councilmember Dish. Discussion, roll call vote. I have some. Councilman, discussion? Uh, yes, uh, just for future reference, we have a council rule. Council shall strive to discuss complex litigation matters during special sessions. It's on uh, section 5A, page 8, just for, for future planning purposes. Thank you. Roll call vote, please, starting with Councilmember Dish. <clears throat> Councilmember Dish? Yes. Councilmember Griswold? Yes. Councilmember Song? Yes. Councilmember Grant? Yes. Councilmember Gardino? Yes. Mayor Taylor? Yes. Councilmember Iyer? Yes. Councilmember Nelson? Yes. Councilmember Briggs? Yes. Councilmember Lowy? Yes. Councilmember Hainer? Yes. Motion carries. All right, we're in closed session. Meet up, meet you upstairs.
May I have a motion, please, to go back into open session. Moved by Councilmember Grand, second by Councilmember Dish. Discussion? All in favor? Opposed? We are back in open session. Can I have a motion to approve that we have before us the clerk's report? May I have a motion to approve the clerk's report? Moved by Councilmember Dish, seconded by Councilmember Grand. Discussion of the clerk's report? All in favor? Opposed? The clerk's report is approved. Do we have communications today from our indomitable city attorney? I just, um, I believe I've reported this by email, but I just wanted to take a second to say thank you for the opportunity to file the amicus brief in the Supreme Court in support of Governor Whitmer's case. Um, that brief has been filed, and uh, we will be watching the case and keep you updated. Thank you. Thank you. We now come to public comment general time. Public comment general time is an opportunity for members of the public to speak to council and the community about matters of municipal interest. To speak at public comment general time, one need not have signed up in advance. Speakers have three minutes in which to speak, so please pay close attention to the time. Our clerk will notify you when 30 seconds are remaining and when your time has expired. When your time has expired, please conclude your remarks and cede the floor. Is there anyone who'd like to speak at public comment? Ms. Boudry, is there anyone online who would like to speak at public comment? Yes, we have a caller online. Luis Vasquez, you have a comment? Uh, yes, uh, greetings, uh, City Council. Um, and, and just a brief comment. Um, you know, much of what we've been seeing um, needs to be looked at in terms of uh, making sure that everybody can, um, you know, expand the opportunities uh, afforded to us um, in terms of uh, increasing, you know, the number of people who can live here in Ann Arbor. So, um, you know, going forward, um, I'm encouraging, of course, uh, as a citizen, um, just you know, uh, let's uh, keep pushing forward um, in terms of uh, what we can do to increase the number of, um, you know, housing uh, units where people can actually live um, and uh, maximizing that. Uh, you know, I would love to um, make a, you know, fourplex out of my property on Pontiac Trail, you know, I mean, uh, you know, uh, that's the kind of thing that we, I think we should be looking at and encouraging and pushing forward on. Thank you for your time. Good night. Thank you. Caller with the phone number ending in 556. Do you have a comment? Go ahead. Hello, this is Ralph McKee again. Can you hear me? Yes, we can. Hi, it's late and maybe uh, all of us are, are burned, but I, I think there's a couple of things that I'm very puzzled by in the discussion of the TC1. The first is, uh, on the safety issue, the site plan, site triangle, and all of that, it's, this seems to be presented tonight as this is a simple solution and so on. I'm very, very puzzled why in the, the planning commission meeting, which 
that was discussed for an hour. Nobody, not a staff person, and none of the planning commissioners even raised that as a possibility to solve that serious issue that Commissioner Gibrandle raised. And then in the first 40 minutes of the ORC meeting, the following week, nobody raised it either. And now it's like, oh, this is simple. It'll just be done at site plan approval. These are the people that are doing that. And they didn't even seem to know that was an, a possibility for better part of two meetings. That's shocking to me, number one. Number two, on um, Ms. Dish's argument that since we can already do 25%, or, you know, only, we're only doing 25% on some of these parcels, that why would anything happen? Two points. One is that assumes right now that they could do four times what's there right now. After this rezoning, it'll be eight times through 28 times. 28 times what that's on that parcel now. And you think that's not an incentive? Okay. Then, if it's not an incentive, how are you, how is any more housing gonna be built? In other words, if it's not an incentive, what are you doing this for? You're not gonna get any housing if it's not an incentive beyond those few vacant sites. And the other sites, I understand you, you think there might be infill in these shopping centers. That is not gonna happen unless you work with the shopping center owners like Bricksmore that you just kicked in the teeth. They, they're objecting on the same grounds that I raised, that it would mess up their leases, it would mess up their, their potential addition and expansion and how they run their business. I understand nobody likes the malls that were built in the 50s, but they're there. You can't replace them. They're not going to magically be turned into housing without working with them. It, 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 it's just amazing to me that we're just denying reality here. That's all I have for tonight. I'll probably write something else because there's a lot more to it, but you have to deal with reality. Thank you. Good night. Thank you. Caller with the phone number ending in 486, do you have a comment? For star six, unmute your phone, go ahead. Good evening, City Council. This is Gerard Campaign, a constituent in the third ward. Um, I'm calling in reference to the information released by the Washtenaw County Health Department. Infant mortality rate is one of the most widely used measures of the overall health status of a community. Reading the numbers of the discrepancies between the overall infant mortality rate and that specifically for the African-American infant mortality rate has me livid. I'd like to know what amount of responsibility the sitting council takes for these numbers after the repeated instances of anti-black racism in City Hall with Wilkerson, with Lazarus, with Chief Cox, with two cops suing for racial discrimination. The list goes on and on. How much have you spent in racial discrimination lawsuits? It's time to spend some money on reparations. It's time to stand up and, and think about some justice. Whitewashing deeds doesn't get you off the hook. You need to step up and build some affordable housing. 
get rid of your luxurious golf courses and build some housing. Thank you for your time. Good night. Thank you. Mayor, I don't have any other callers on the line with their hands up. Seeing no one, public comment is closed. Are there communications today from council? Councilmember Griswold. Um, I just want to clarify based on uh, some statements that were made uh, for the resolution that I introduced for nonpartisan elections. The reason I, res I introduced this and I did not expect it to pass was that at least six different people have asked me about starting a petition campaign. And I said, before we do that, let's take it to city council and we'll get all the language updated. And even though it probably won't pass, we'll be ready for the petition campaign. So that, that was my motive there. And uh, I apologize for the lengthy discussion tonight. That was not my intent at all. Thank you. Further communications, Councilmember Hainer. Thanks. I, we just came out of a closed session about Gelman, and of course, the Gelman matter is kind of dear to my heart. And and uh, I don't know. I guess it's one of the things that got me interested in politics in the first place. To hopefully have a seat at this table when we could make some changes to that. And I think we have had some progress. And you know, I, I'm as hopeful as I can be in the face of a giant multinational corporation fighting us in court every bit of the way. Um, sometimes I take. You know, that's that's probably my biggest disappointment, and, and it almost had me wanting to run again so that I could stay involved in that project. Sometimes I take little notes when we're meeting about things I wanted to say, and, you know, we have some complaints about all electric buildings and requiring them and so on, but I got to tell you, I got some information a couple weeks back on that depot project. I think it was 320 depot, and, you know, I, I forwarded it to the owner of that building, and the response and the back and forth that we had was was... Uh, very promising and he just was kind of unaware of the options that he had for making a building carbon neutral and and has sort of made sort of a, a, a general commitment to learn more and so on and has reached out to some of the people that I referred him to and so on so I'm hopeful that that might serve as an example for us to work with these developers and say hey can we can we get a little bit better thing now speaking of better things this that you know I float lower town all the time and I'm sure you're all annoyed by that but I'm equally annoyed that people bring up Lockwood as some kind of anti-housing thing because when we voted down the first Lockwood the ultimate result of that was a better bigger project in a different part of town that had more affordable units in it. And so sometimes you have to say no to the first thing that comes along to get the right thing. And that was the case with Lockwood. Um, I guess, I guess finally, I, I'm going to say that, you know, sometimes I'm bummed out that we speak as a body because when people go back and look at, geez, that thing happened when you were on council, Jeff, you know, and now all I'm going to be able to do is refer them to Councilwoman Nelson's fine accounting where I said no and no and no <laughs> over and over again, you know, and so I'll council just have member? to take my own satisfaction in that. Further communication from council, Councilmember Song. Um, just to speak a little bit about mental health services and supports in our community. Uh, community. The county's community mental health program is having a quarterly provider meeting on October 18th from 10 a.m. to 12 p.m. So that's a really good time and place perhaps to engage our, our providers and see where their input might be in supporting our youth in our community. I think some of us might already be aware of Garrett's space 
which is started by a family here in town. Um, that's also a resource for young people who are also struggling. Thanks. Further communication from council. We have a motion to adjourn, please. Moved by Council Breyer, second by Council Dina, discussion? All in favor? Opposed? We are adjourned.